When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. Welcome back to Unshaken. If you survived last week, our near five-hour episode that covered the entire book of Leviticus, you are either an insomniac, a masochist, or a true lover of the Word of God. I'm banking on the third. The fact that you would spend that much time. If you made it to the end, I feel like I owe you a bumper sticker or something. Uh, I survived Leviticus, or better yet, I love Leviticus, finally. Uh, I hope that's the case. The, the plan for church was simply to study chapter 1, chapter 16, and chapter 19. So you get a little taste of some of the, the sacrificial rituals. You spend a good chunk of time in the Day of Atonement, uh, well deserving of your attention. Uh, and then talk a little bit about some of the I am the Lord commandments that he gives us. Well, we did cover those three chapters, but we covered the other 24 as well. And if you didn't have time last week to, to spend five hours in Leviticus with me, I understand. Actually, only four hours were Leviticus. The first hour was finishing Exodus. So, uh, But if you didn't have time, I do hope you'll at least go back in last week's lesson to study those three chapters the church recommended, as well as chapter 14, which is the ritual of the cleansing of the leper. To me, it's one of the richest and deepest and, and weirdest, if that piques your curiosity, uh, sacrificial rites that we see in the Old Testament, but it is so oh, dense with doctrine. It's so full of, of types and shadows pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And I hope that we are finding him in the Old Testament. This is his book, Foundational Scripture, and, and I pray you're falling in love with it. Today we're going to be studying the book of Numbers, and unfortunately the title oh, just scares most people off before they even open the book. When I meet my students at the beginning of a semester and ask what they're studying, when I meet a math major, my heart goes out to them. Uh, well, they did it to themselves. But I often joke with them. I said, man, I haven't had math since high school. And the closest I ever come to math is when I teach the book of Numbers. And they laugh, uh, which means they don't really know the book of Numbers because the book of Numbers isn't about numbers so much. The book is not about math, definitely. It is about the Messiah and finding him, in fact, following him and coming unto him in hopes of being able to dwell with him in the promised land. The book, in reality, is about the obstacles and this, whether it's a speed bump or a full-on wall that keep us from coming unto him, that slow down or even stop our progress toward the promised land. And you will see example after example of that in this amazing book. We are going to try to cover it all. So buckle up and spread these things out. If you do, well, probably, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes every day, you'll get through the book of, of Numbers this week. But to see what he's going to teach us, in my mind, well, I'll put it this way. If you want a number for the book of Numbers, then stick with the number 40. Because in this book, 40 years will pass of wilderness wandering, unable yet 
to cross the Jordan and enter the Promised Land. And yet, like those math majors I talked about, they did it to themselves. It was on them that it took 40 years. Look at a map. The distance from Egypt to Israel is not a 40-year walk. They get there in about a year and a half. That's all it took. And even that was slow because, well, they had to study the book of Leviticus too. But what was it that made them wait an entire generation before they were finally enter, able to enter that land of promise? It was poor decisions. It was lack of faith. It was murmuring and it was contention and disobedience and all the other things that you and I are often guilty of. What I hope will come across loud and clear today through all of this material that we will study is a principle that I call the wander, wander, die principle. And it's the idea that God is patient with us, which is a good thing, but also can t t be a long thing because we require so much patience. In this case, and we'll see it all, basically at the midpoint of the book of Numbers today, when the Israelites are at the Jordan River, they made it a year and a half in, and they cross the Jordan and come back with incredible reports, but also with a lot of fear to the point that God says, fine, if you're not yet ready, I'm eternal. I can wait. And so why doesn't this generation go ahead and just wander? In fact, wander, wander, die. Wander, die. And then maybe your kids will be ready to enter the promised land. I mean, it sounds brutal. It sounds stark. But this book is. And that first generation was not prepared to enter the promised land. Their children were. And yet, as we'll see today, even with them, as they're back to the Jordan 40 years later, the Lord warns them, are you guys ready to go? Because if not, I'm still eternal. I can still wait. And maybe it'll be the grandkids that get in. And they're like, no, no, we're good. We're good. And as we'll see in, in the book of Joshua, yes, they cross. And yes, they conquer. In fact, with the Battle of Jericho, they blow trumpets and march around. Conquering the enemy wasn't as hard as their parents assumed it would be. They, they won with the marching band, for crying out loud. Oh, if we, can, if we can trust God in all of this, then we won't have to wander, wander, die, wander, die. We'll be able to enter full of faith. And the problem is it wasn't just them, it's us that's still wandering. And that's what I hope will come across loud and clear in the book of Numbers today. If you remember a few weeks ago at the end of Exodus with the golden calf experience, Moses came down the mountaintop with the tablets of stone with the higher law. Temple more than tabernacle, Melchizedek more than Aaronic, God more than angels. He was ready to give it. He already had. It was right in front of them. But because they were lowering themselves to this telestial level and worshiping this golden calf, God started over. Moses broke the tablets and got a, a lesser set the second time. And God said, that's okay. I'm eternal. I can wait. I'll give you a new chance with Melchizedek priesthood in, say... A thousand years, give or take? Oh, that was a long time. To fast forward to our day, when Joseph Smith took, the, took Zion's camp back to Missouri to try to redeem Zion that they'd been driven off of, what do they say in those Fishing River Revelations? Dan C. 101, 103, 105. In 101, he said, there is even now already in store sufficient, yea, even an abundance to redeem Zion and establish her waste places, no more to be thrown down, were the churches who call themselves after my name willing to hearken to my voice. And in 105, Behold, I say unto you, were it not for the transgressions of my people, speaking concerning the church and not individuals, they might have been redeemed even now. 
You understand what he just said there? They're here in Missouri, Zion's camp is, and Joseph is told to about face and return to Ohio. You're not prepared to redeem the land of promise because you're not keeping your promises with me. That's okay. I can wait. I'm eternal. Uh, but there might be some wilderness wanderings. There might be a side trip to Salt Lake. And yeah, you might be there for a while. But what he said there in Missouri, looking into the promised land, you could have done it right now. If you would have listened, if you could have hearkened and obeyed. I'm haunted by those kinds of wander, wander, die, wander, die kinds of moments. When God is so much more ready than we are to bless us, to bring us in. I wonder about that when it comes to the second coming. When it says in scripture that no man knows the day nor the hour. I've wondered, is it because God just won't say? Or is it because the time just isn't set? In terms of our readiness and fulfillment of prophecy and gathering of Israel and building of temples and all that we have to do to prepare the earth for the coming of her king. Are we ready? Is the world ready? I have a feeling God is. But if we're unprepared, God is eternal and he can wait. Old President Spencer W. Kimball said an intriguing thing about the timing of the second coming. He taught, in my estimation, the Lord's timetable is directed a good deal by us. We speed up the clock or we slow the hands down and turn them back by our activities or our procrastinations. This was the same President Kimball who said, it's our fault we're not in China, not the Chinese government's. We're not ready. We don't have enough members to speak Mandarin. And a young regional representative, not a general authority, a leader of state presidents, was at a meeting when he heard President Kimball say that and got home and said to his wife, honey, we're learning Mandarin Chinese. Oh, the Lord might have to wait, but he's not going to wait on, on me. Not, not going to wait on us. And that young regional representative is now the president of the church. That was a young Dr. Russell M. Nelson. And yes, he's taught surgery and, and been an influence in China because of that gift. He's the one that is now telling us to quicken our pace, to prepare the world, to let God prevail in our lives, to build some spiritual momentum so that we can actually get over the obstacles we'll see today in the book of Numbers and get across the river and get into the promised land. I've joked with my students. Have you been alive to hear someone like a President Hinckley or a President Monson or a, or a President Nelson tell you that you're the greatest generation, the, most, the highest potential? And they'll smile and go, yeah, yeah, we are. And I'll say, wait, I hate to break it to you, but when I was your age, or younger, President Benson told us that we were. And go talk to your parents or grandparents. Talk to your grandparents, and they'll probably tell you that David O. McKay told them that they were the ones prepared for this latter day. I don't know how far back we can go. Uh, anybody alive during the days of George Albert Smith or Heber J. Grant? When did it start? When did prophets begin telling the rising generation that they were the, the greatest one yet? Uh, brace yourself. Peter said it in the New Testament. 
In fact, a few weeks ago, Moses basically said it in the Old, in Exodus. You are the kingdom of priests and the holy nation, if you'll choose to be. That generation didn't. And like I said, God is patient. He's eternal. He can wait. Go ahead and wander, wander, die, wander, die. And I'll try again. I do worry, my friends, if there are times where we find ourselves wandering, where God is already prepared to bless us. We're just not prepared to receive those blessings. And as I said, today in the book of Numbers, we will see some of the reasons why. And if we can overcome them, then the promised land awaits with the coming of her king. And that, I hope, we are preparing ourselves for. So let's dive into the book of Numbers, shall we? And sadly, yes, we do have to start with some numbers in Numbers. Uh, but, but we can handle this kind of math, okay? Simple arithmetic. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The way it all begins, The Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of the congregation, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take ye the sum, there's our first arithmetic problem, uh, addition, Take ye the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel, after their families, by the house of their fathers, with the number of their names, every male by their poles. In other words, Moses, take a census. I want you to make a head count of all the house of Israel. We'll see why in a moment. Verse 3, from 20 years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel, thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. We speak of God as the Lord of hosts, and in Spanish it's el Señor de los ejércitos, the Lord of the armies. It's a host of, of soldiers ready to go forth to war. And sure enough, as they're going to enter the promised land, which is already occupied, inhabited, we're going to have to fight to be able to conquer it. And so they're going to number their armies here. If you, this was a, something we skipped when we, one of the few things we skipped back when we were in Exodus. In chapter 30, they're told this in verse 12. When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, which is what we just saw at the beginning of Numbers, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. Which seems to suggest that there's a danger in doing the census. I, did, I was a census worker. Uh, when was that? 2000? Yeah, 2000. I'd just gotten married and, and needed every penny. And so I did earn a few extra bucks by walking around the neighborhood asking really invasive questions of people. They did not like me. So I understand this idea of being plagued when you have to take the census. Theirs was a more literal version, though. We see it in, in the story of King David, where in a moment, oh, a lapse of judgment, King David decided, I need to number Israel so I know just how strong my army can be. If I want to go out and extend the borders of Israel, then I want to know what forces I can muster. That wasn't a good idea in his case. Here they're being told by God, you need to do it. But I think David was supposed to be content with what the Lord had allotted him and not worrying so much about measuring his biceps to see just how much strength in the arm of flesh he could put his trust in. See, that's the problem with a census. I know the, the level of, of the arm of flesh that I have. I, I can trust in that if I have sufficient numbers. And yet for God, there's only one number and it's the number one. It's him. As long as I'm on your side, then there are more that be with you than be with them. 
we'll see that later. And so as, a, as punishment for that lapse of faith on King David's part, God does plague the house of Israel. And there are casualties. That whatever the number was that King David reached, it went down considerably because he'd put faith in numbers instead of faith in God. So back in Exodus, when they're told, you're going to someday make a census, and yes, it's going to be important, and I will command you to do so, but I'm also commanding you to ransom yourselves, make an atonement, pay a price, because it's the arm of God you're going to have to trace, place your real trust in. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 16, he even tells them what to do with that money. Thou shalt take the atonement money. How's that a good word for it? Okay, this is ransom. The atonement money of the children of Israel and shalt appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. So even the money taken is then just turned around and returned to them in the form of tabernacle service. The Lord doesn't want our tithing <laughs> for himself. He wants to take it change its form into something more usable, something to bless his people and all people with. And so to take the ransom and turn it into a redemption, thats we're going to see more of that, that switching of places. In the ancient world, and even through the Middle Ages, if you were wealthy enough, you could pay somebody else to go to war for you. There's some ransom money. And I'll send you out to war so I don't have to go. Well, in this case, there is ransom being paid for all the house of Israel by a redeemer who is willing to sacrifice and suffer himself in their place. And in the tabernacle where sacrifices are being performed, there's that incredible reminder of that redemption. And so the ransom, you see how it all fits together? It's wild. The ransom to the redemption and switching places and who's going to war and the Lord of hosts will fight our battles for us powerful things. And here in Numbers, it's all actually beginning to happen. They're taking the sum. So the rest of chapter 1, there's a lot of counting going on. Leaders of each tribe are named, and then each tribe is numbered. In verse 17, Moses and Aaron took these men, which are expressed by their names, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month, and they declared their pedigrees after their families. By the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names, from 20 years old and upward by their poles. That's going to be the army of Israel. But notice they declared their pedigrees by their families. We'll see this repeatedly in the Old Testament. You better know your tribe. You better know who you are and where you're from. Oh, to understand our family history, our having hearts turned to the fathers and fathers to the children, to recognize our, our inheritance in the house of Israel and our responsibility as seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how we're going to number. This is a very well-organized, I mean, if it's the army, it's military precision, okay? And they will know, based on their family tree, where they belong in Israel. With each tribe, it would go along these lines. Of the children of, fill in the blank, Asher, or Gad, or Zebulun, or Naphtali, or whomever, by their generations, after their families, by the house of their fathers, see how focused this is on the family? According to the number of the names, from 20 years old and upward, all that were able to go forth to war. Those that were numbered of them, even of the tribe of blank, were blank. And there's the number. 
So how many in the tribe of Reuben or of Simeon or of Judah, Ephraim, Manasseh, on down the list. This actually reminds me of Captain Moroni when he's out there waiting for troops. And he sends this letter to Pahoran wondering, where is everybody? I mean, I haven't taken a census. We haven't gone tribe by tribe. There's fewer of them there. Uh, but I need to know how many people we have available to us. And then he says this to Pahoran. For we know that they are more numerous than that which they have sent. I don't have an exact number like Moses will get in chapter 1. But I know there's more than what's coming. And we're out here dying on the battlefield for lack of additional soldiers. I got that sense this last general conference when apostle after apostle was talking about serving missions. I imagine that like most other areas of life, the missionary department took a hit with COVID as well. But to see this surge waiting in the wings, are you, are you ready? Are you ready to come forth? Because I know that there are more than have been sent. And to you, young men and young women, to you, my older friends who are, are preparing to, to head off into the war, as senior missionaries and service missionaries and proselyting missions, missionaries and family history missionaries and everything else there is. Have we numbered ourselves to the point that God can know, not to trust in the arm of flesh, but to organize his kingdom and know that there are enough to leaven the lump? Are there 10 righteous in Sodom? Enough to save them? Are there enough back in Zarahemla to send some more troops to the front lines? Are there more young men and young women and older couples ready to come forth in the service of God? The chapter gets to its end with a final number, and it's in verse 46. Even all they that were numbered were 600,000 and 3,550. And remember, those are merely the men that are old enough to fight. The house of Israel is much larger than that. Now, there is an exception to this general census, though at least as far as sending them off to war. It's in verse 47. But the Levites, after the tribe of their fathers, were not numbered among them. For the Lord had spoken unto Moses, saying, Only thou shalt not number the tribe of Levi, neither take the sum of them among the children of Israel. Because the priesthood was for peace, not for war. And these would be servants, not soldiers. So separate out the Levites here. Don't include them in the general census. Because, verse 50, thou shalt appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of testimony, over all the vessels thereof, over all things that belong to it. They shall bear the tabernacle and all the vessels thereof, and they shall minister unto it, and shall encamp round about the tabernacle. We're talking temples more than troops here. Speaking of King David, David and his army, he wasn't allowed to build the temple because he was a man of war. Instead, that would pass to a man of peace, his name means peace. That was Solomon. And we're getting that same sense here with the Levites. In verse 51, more of their responsibilities. When the tabernacle setteth forward, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. This is serious business. Only the Levites are about, allowed to do this. But they'll be doing it a lot. By the end of the book of Numbers, when he lists and looks back and remembers, we, t we did a lot of camping these last 40 years, didn't we? And we picked up camp and moved it often. And every time that we moved, it was the Levites breaking camp, 
as far as the tabernacle is concerned. And then moving forward to set it up elsewhere. Anytime the pillar of fire or the cloud of smoke chose to move, we moved with it. That many times, by the way, would have gotten the tribe of Levi very good at, at setting up the tabernacle. And all that we learned in Exodus about its symbolism, every time they covered it with its multiple coverings, every time they situated the candlestick and the table of showbread, every time they put the veil to protect the presence of God and to make sure the lid, the throne of grace, the mercy seat was over the Ark of the Covenant, they would have remembered and with this many moves, yes, the tribe of Levi is going to be always remembering him. Hopefully that spreads to the house of Israel. In verse 52, the, the children of Israel shall pitch their tents, every man by his own camp, every man by his own standard throughout their hosts. But the Levites shall pitch round about the tabernacle of testimony, that there be no wrath upon the congregation of the children of Israel. And the Levites shall keep the charge of the tabernacle of testimony. Now, can you picture in your mind the camp of Israel? In pole position, center stage, I should say, is the tabernacle of testimony. God is at the center of their lives, as he should be. Surrounding the tabernacle, then, are the, is, the tribes, is the tribe of Levi. Those who are going to be serving God most closely. Well, it, we're trying to cut down the commute here, okay? So, live close. And the Levites surrounded the temple. And then from there, the house of Israel surrounds them. And we'll see their orientation later on. To me, it reminds me of, well, Salt Lake, for one thing. And a lot of the early towns of, of Pioneer, Utah. The tabernacle of those surrounding communities, or the temple in the case of Salt Lake, is the center spot of Zion the center spot of the community. And then you have North Temple and South Temple and East and West Temple, and then First and Second and Third going out from there. It makes so much more sense, the grid system and then the cardinal directions than most other communities in terms of how they're set up. Uh, Joseph Smith with the city of Zion as he platted it out, uh, and same with Brigham Young in Salt Lake, they, they were good city builders, but they were just following the examples of ancient Israel with the temple in the middle and everything extending out from there. There's even a, another visual aid of that in one of the best chapters in all the Book of Mormon, 3 Nephi 17, when Jesus is the epicenter of holiness and, and healing. But he asks the people to bring your little children. They're the closest thing to me, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Bring them so I can bless them. So here's Jesus in the middle surrounded by little children, and then surrounded by the people who brought those little children, the moms and the dads, the rest of us. And I don't want to call that celestial, terrestrial, telestial, uh, but there are certain extensions of holiness, and, and Jesus, of course, is, is right there at center stage. And so to see the same thing unfolding here. Now, chapter 2, this is how you set up the camp. Okay, we're going to stay with that. we got our numbers. Uh, we're going to center everything on, on God and put him in the middle of everything. But this is how we set up from there. Verse 1, The Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard. We saw that at the end of chapter 1. With the ensign of their father's house, far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. 
their own standard, the ensign of their father's house. These were, these were banners. High on the mountaintop, a banner is unfurled. These are ensigns to the nation and insignia representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Do we know our standard? Are there standard bearers? My wife's maiden name is Stoddard, and we had a family reunion on that side, and Stoddard means standard originally, and to be a standard bearer. Oh, this, this family is trying to do exactly that. And every family in the house of Israel needs to be trying. Holding this banner aloft, the cause of Christ, ready to march forward in it. Because yes, you might have your own family flag, so to speak, but it's still the tabernacle that's at the center of it all. Uh, on your missionary tag, yes, your last name is there, your family ensign. But more importantly is the name that's beneath that, Jesus Christ, and having him at the middle. And verse 3, here's how they're situated. On the east side, toward the rising of the sun, shall they of the standard of the camp of Judah pitch throughout their armies. And then Issachar and Zebulun will be beside Judah. We're starting with Judah. No, he's not the birthright tribe. That would be Ephraim. We'll see him in a moment. But as far as political leadership, yes, he is in charge. Uh, we'll see that. We saw that in the Book of Mormon, right? Where the brother of Jared was the spiritual leader. But Jared was the political leader. And they understood the difference. Got along really well. Well, here, Judah, you're going to start. And in fact, I want you to camp to the east. Oh, that's fitting. The rising of the sun. He's trying to help us with our symbolism here. Uh, who is the most important member of the tribe of Judah we'll ever see? It will be the Messiah. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's Jesus Christ. And when he arises with healing in his wings, arises, son of righteousness, there's the east. Second coming, as the light shines from the east, of, even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Yes, Judah needs to lead the way. And he will lead on the east side, first to catch the sunrise. Reuben then is on the south, with Simeon and Gad beside him. Ephraim, there's our birthright, on the west, with Manasseh and Benjamin alongside him. So you have Judah and Ephraim facing each other. Different perspectives on the work of God, but still oriented toward God's house to build his kingdom. And then on the north, you have Dan with Asher and Naphtali beside him. So four kind of key tribes, Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, Dan, in the four cardinal directions of the compass. And then two other tribes with each of those four to make three on each, from each angle. Okay. Verse 34, he then says, The children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they pitched by their standards, and so they set forward everyone after their families according to the house of their fathers. Do we pitch by our standards? Do we set up camp alongside the laws that God has placed for us? Do you have a family flag? Do you have a family insignia? A coat of arms, perhaps? Or at least some set of standards by which you organize your family life. Are we holding to those things? And do our children and grandchildren know who they are and what that means to them? Now, if you turn the page and see in Numbers chapter 3, we're going to get back to some math. And yes, it's simple arithmetic, but really important. We're going to number the Levites. We saw Moses being told to do that, not so they can function as soldiers, but so they can be servants. But remember that, that ransom money 
and, and taking place on the battlefield. Notice what happens here. This is great. Some good math here. Numbers 3, verse 5. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near. Present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him. And they shall keep his charge and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation to do the service of the tabernacle. The Levites are meant to minister. They're going to keep the charge, which means to perform the duties. They're gifts to Aaron, because Aaron can't do it all himself. Uh, so they will keep Aaron's charge, but they're also gifts to the people because they will do the service of the tabernacle for the whole congregation. They're taking my place so that they can serve me. And in a way, physically, temporally, militarily at least, I will be serving them. But in terms of taking place, it's interesting to think of the Levites showing the house of Israel, this is what you would be doing if you were called to this service. I'm performing your charge. So here's what it looks like. I think in some ways to look at oh, general authorities, for example, and full-time missionaries, which are the closest thing to general authorities I know as far as a full-time commitment to God. In a way, they are performing the charge for the whole congregation. They're doing our work for us, in a way. We need to be helping, supporting. We need to be doing that work ourselves. But somebody's got to pay the bills, right? Somebody's got to go fight the enemy. Uh, and so, no wonder I can't give my life full-time the way I did on my mission. But to see their examples of what a consecrated life looks like, in its most concentrated form. I've sometimes told my students that so much of getting better at something is the process of isolation, concentration, and reintegration. If you think about learning to play a song on the piano or some other instrument, and there's just this one part that I just can't get, well, don't just keep playing the whole song. That's not practice. Practice is focus on the part you're having a hard time with. Isolate just those measures. If you're struggling to, to remember your lines in a play, don't do the whole scene again. Work on the part you can't get. Isolate it. Concentrate on it until you've mastered it. Once you have, then reintegrate it into the rest of the piece or the rest of the performance. Make sense? As full-time missionaries, that's what we did. We isolated ourselves from all the other cares of the world. It was a busy life as a missionary, but it was a simple one. Had one thing to do, right? And I'm isolating so I can concentrate on that. And once I've mastered that, the real challenge is with hole in ear, right? Ear pierced return missionaries. Can I reintegrate that into my, my regular life? It's one of the things I told my son as he began his service mission. He said, this is going to be a glorious experience because so much of what you're doing is sustainable post-mission. I've never gone tracting again since my mission, but I have done a lot of service. Uh, and to see what, what he, my son is learning and what we all learn as we serve, that's a chance to continue doing that once we've reintegrated our mission back into life. Make sense? And so, Levites, you are keeping the charge. You're performing the duties of everybody, but showing them what a concentrated version of it looks like. I hope when we see missionaries and when we see general authorities, we just see a more concentrated version of ourselves. That the times that I can give to God, which might be more than we are giving Him, can be just as consecrated and, and focused as I did on my mission.
It just can't be perhaps as frequent or as uninterrupted as life was back then. The Levites are giving him that example. Verse 11, God then says something else to Moses about the Levites. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that openeth the matrix among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine. Remember the first of everything belongs to God? The firstlings of the flock, the first fruits of the field, and yes, the firstborn of every family. That's why the firstborn died in Egypt, because they belonged to God. And if they weren't coming unto God, if they weren't following his commandments as far as the Passover, blood of the lamb, was concerned, then you haven't given God his due, and you can't keep it for yourself. What's happening here is this reminder, Levites, they're mine. And in a way, they're meant to take the place of every firstborn that does belong to me. You see, if we understand why God takes the first, it's because he gets dibs. At least he should. I've joked that any time a new technology is created, both God and the devil say, dibs. And that's true of just about anything. Anytime someone is born, both God and the devil want their allegiance. What will we give him? Do, I'll put it this way. Does God get first choice in our lives? The first flock, the first fruit, the first choice. Oh, I want that part. Can I take your Sabbath? Can I take some time every day for scripture study? Can I, can I be your highest priority? After all, you're mine. And so, letting him take the first portion of anything he, he asks for. That's what happens when someone opens the matrix and, and enters the world. God wants dibs first. Verse 13, he explains more of it. Because all the firstborn are mine. For on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. Mine shall they be. I am the Lord. That phrase should arrest our attention every time we see it. So like I said before, this is Passover reminders. I purchased your firstborn because I saved them. They belong to me, and yes, they are bought with a price. That's what Paul will say. Ye are bought with a price. And it's the price of the lamb without blemish on Passover. So what happens here? God commands Moses to number all the males of the tribe of Levi. Aaron's sons have been subdivided into individual families, and each one is given a responsibility as far as the tabernacle is concerned. But with the head count, there are a total of 22,000 males in the tribe of Levi. Now, fast forward. Verse 40, the Lord says to Moses, Number all the firstborn of the males of the children of Israel from a month old and upward, and take the number of their names. And thou shalt take the Levites for me, I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel. Understand what he just said there? This is a key text here. Number the firstborn uh, throughout the tribes of Israel, and then number the males in the tribe of Levi. And I'll tell you what, since the firstborn of every family belongs to me, I'm willing to substitute. I'm willing to take a vicarious offering and accept people by proxy. Does that sound familiar, uh, you temple-attending Latter-day Saints? It should. 
This is substitutionary atonement. This is replacement, taking somebody else's spot. And it's the Levites that are going to take the place of all the firstborn in Israel. I love this. The Levites are going to become the firstborn so that the firstborn can then live their own lives while the Levites live a life of consecrated service to the Lord. Now, don't take that too far. You belong to God, too, in, in, in a different way. But to see these Levites, I will take their spot. I will be the firstborn that God has purchased, redeemed, and I will give my life in service to him, isolated and concentrated, never to be reintegrated. That's all I've got. The rest of us need to learn from that and reintegrate from those kinds of experiences. And then a little math. This blows me away. Moses does as commanded and has this secondary census. When he does the head count of the firstborn male of every family in Israel, the total com comes out to 22,273, which is miraculously close to the head count of the males in the tribe of Levi. That was 22,000. So here, you're only 273 off. And when you're talking about 22,000, 273 is plus minus 1%. They're so close. That's amazing. Close enough, right? Well, we learned from Elder Dunn a couple of conferences ago what a difference 1% can make. It was a great talk. And, and by improving 1%, that's it. Amazing results come. God does care about that tiny, so-called negligible fraction. I guess close enough isn't, isn't quite enough as far as God is concerned. If there's a distance, a gap between where you are and where you should be, work on it, okay? And to see what the Lord says next, verse 45, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel. That was his plan all along. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And for those that are to be redeemed of the 203 score and 13 of the firstborn of the children of Israel, which are more than the Levites, so yes, God knows his math too. Any of you accountants out there in the church, this just might be your most applicable verse of scripture, <laughs> that God is counting to the penny. And 99% is not 100%. We're not quite there. And so as the Lord says... Since I'm replacing firstborn that belong to me with Levites that will now be mine, will you owe me 273? And I expect an exact ransom of all that belong to me. We talked about this in Doctrine and Covenants section 18, that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And if you should spend your whole life crying repentance and bring, save it be one soul unto him, how great shall your joy be with him in the kingdom of our Father. Yes, God cares about the one, which is why he does ordinances and allows Nephites to come and handle his hands and feet one by one by one. All 273 of them. You remember when the resurrected Lord stood on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and the apostles with a boat full of fish came in? This odd detail is included as they bring the nets to shore and gather these fish of every kind and realize, wow, there's 153 of them. <laughs> I think, did, did that really matter? Do we need that detail preserved in Scripture? Well, I guess to the fish it mattered. To the Lord it did. And he wants to count every single one. 
He knows if you are missing. And he needs you. He's counting on you. And this isn't just accounting for him. This is more than even just accountability for him. This is a shepherd who knows every single lamb. And will leave the 90 and 9 to go after the one. To go after you whenever you are lost. In this situation, verse 47, the Lord says to Moses, Thou shalt even take five shekels apiece by the pole. After the shekel of the sanctuary shalt thou take them. Thou shalt give the money wherewith the odd number of them is to be redeemed unto Aaron and to his sons. So that takes us back to that ransom money first talked about back in Exodus. I will, I'll accept that in the place of the 273 people that you owe me. And it will be given to Aaron to then be turned into tabernacle help for the rest of the house of Israel. I, I don't need the ransom money, but you do. And I, I do count every last, every last bean, all you bean counters, better said, every last soul. They, even when he says the odd number of them that is to be redeemed, every single one of us needs to be redeemed. Not a single person is left out. And so if the church has a way of blessing every single child of God that's ever lived, and that's just as far as the redeeming reach of Christ and as far as with what is spreading in the love of God, oh, every, every, every last fish, every last lamb, every last soul to be redeemed by a God who loves them. I, I do love the math in that part of Numbers. Now, chapter 4 we talked about the setting up of camp. Well, how about moving it? In verse 5, When the camp setteth forward, Aaron shall come and his sons, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of testimony with it. That's how breaking camp begins. When we set it up, we started with the ark of the covenant and then extended out from there to the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and the, the courtyard of the sanctuary and then setting up the Levites and then the house of Israel. Well, when it's time to get up and move, we're again going to start with the most important thing. We'll start at the Ark of the Covenant and we will cover it with the veil. So even in, during transport, it's still covered by the veil. There is still something that separates, something that protects the presence of God from outside influences. As you go on from there, each individual furnishing, table of showbread, candlestick, incense altar, and so on, is also covered. It's covered in cloth, sometimes blue, sometimes scarlet, sometimes purple, those three important colors of the tabernacle. It was then covered with badger's skins, which we saw earlier might be seal's skin, to waterproof everything. Every part of the house of God is being protected, veiled, covered by, remember covering, there's our atonement word as we are moving forward along our path. In verse 15, and when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary, there's our atonement word again, and all the vessels of the sanctuary as the camp is to set forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it. That's one of the subfamilies of Aaron, the sons of Kohath, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. It'll be important to remember that when we meet Uzzah in 2 Samuel. He's the one that steadies the ark. And here, he's been warned. 
you do not touch any holy thing lest you die. Well, further responsibilities are given to all these subfamilies within the tribe of Levi, uh, the sons of Aaron particularly, as far as responsibility for moving the ark and all of its components. And then chapter 4 ends, verse 49, according to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered, there's our title again, by the hand of Moses, every one according to his service and according to his burden. Thus were they numbered of him as the Lord commanded Moses. You see, every single part of the tabernacle is important. From the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat down to the tiny pins that help keep the curtains together. And so every piece and every person needs to come together. All of the sons of Aaron with their individual responsibilities. You have service, you have burden. So bear it. I love Elder Uchtdorf's famous phrase, to lift where you stand. And each Levite was lifting exactly where he'd been placed with a portion of the tabernacle. Now chapter 5 then shifts from big picture moving the camp to, no, to moving the pieces of worldliness out of us that shouldn't be there. How do we cleanse ourselves from sin? In Numbers 5 verse 2, God says to Moses, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper and everyone that hath an issue and whosoever is defiled by the dead. Both male and female shall ye put out, without the camp shall ye put them, that they defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell. We saw in Leviticus what to do about leper, leprosy and issues of blood and touching the dead and ceremonial purity and impurity and the kinds of sacrifices and rituals that need to take place to cleanse us before God. He's repeating that here, but I love the way he put it. I'm in the midst of you. So yes, I, I need some cleanliness around about. When you have someone important visiting, yeah, there's a lot of cleanup that goes into it. And so removing those kinds of evil influences in order for God to feel comfortable in our midst. That is why he calls it the sanctuary after all. It's home base for him. But can we extend his holiness out in all directions? That's what the house of Israel visibly is trying to be. In verse 6, When a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit to do a trespass against the Lord, and that person be guilty, then they shall confess their sin, which they have done. And he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof, and add unto it the fifth part thereof, and give it unto him against whom he hath trespassed. We saw that in Leviticus. Confession, essential. Restitution, essential. Give it to whomever you offended. Well, what about in cases where there is not a, a, a literal person that I've offended? What if I've offended God? Well, verse 8, If the man have no kinsman to recompense the trespass unto, then let the trespass be recompensed unto the Lord, even to the priest. Sometimes we confess to other people. We always confess to God. Sometimes we give restitution and recompense to other people. We always try to make it up to God. No, we're not paying him back for covering our nakedness. But we have transferred our allegiance from the cares of the world to the cares of God. And what would he have us do? Now, the rest of this chapter is fascinating because it deals with trials of jealousy. And the tricky part here is it's hard to confess or make restitution because... I don't know for sure if this actually happened. 
this is going to be tricky. In our day, when you got, I don't know, private investigators, and you have detectives and, and, and policemen and forensic work and DNA analysis and everything else, lie detectors, you know, maybe it's a little easier to figure out uh, when somebody's trying to hide how to coax them out of the shadows and, and help them repent. Well, in this case, here's the specific situation. It's about if, uh, over adultery, if someone assumes or worries that their spouse has been unfaithful, well, they're not going to be forthcoming necessarily, so how do, I, how do I find out if they've done anything wrong or not? The way it's phrased in verse 14 is, if the spirit of jealousy come upon him. You've wondered if your wife has cheated on you. 15, this is what you do. Then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and he shall bring her offering for her. The tenth part of an ephah of barley meal, he shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon, for it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And that's the real question here. How do I bring iniquity to remembrance? What does it take to awaken a guilty conscience that has either been soothed by rationalizations or smothered out of fear of being found out. How do I do that? Especially in another person. Now notice the details of that sacrifice. No oil there. Oil, Gethsemane, olive press, right? Uh, oil, sweetness, light, none of that. This is going to be an offering of, of guilt, an offering of jealousy, an, altering, an offering that brings iniquity to remembrance. And so this is uncovered by the atonement of Christ. There's no oil here. Frankincense, there's the prayers of the saints, a sweet savor to God. None of that either. This is an odd kind of sacrifice. We're taking all the good parts out. Well, isn't that what you're doing? You've, you're trying to hide your own wickedness. You don't want your sin to be found out. Well, if you're stiff-arming the Savior and not accepting the grace of God, the smoothing and soothing oil of the atonement. There's no prayers of the saints ascending to heaven. Of course, no frankincense. Now, what are we going to do with all of this offering? Verse 16, the priest shall bring her near, the suspected guilty party. Well, innocent until proven guilty. But how do you prove this if they're not going to confess? How do I awaken a guilty conscience? The priest brings her near, and set her before the Lord. He is the one that ultimately will judge. The priest shall take holy water. Picture gathering a cup out of the laver where you're supposed to be washing and cleansing priests to present them to, before God. Put that holy water in an earthen vessel. Here's that tabernacle of clay that we all are, right? And of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take and put it into the water. You see what's happening here? This is fascinating to me as far as oh, mosaic criminology is concerned. How do I find out if they're not going to confess? Well, bring them before the Lord. Help them recognize the all-seeing eye of God. You might hide your sins from us. You have not hidden them from him. So come before him, the tabernacle, presence of God, the cloud of smoke, the pillar of fire, it will peek into the darkest recesses of your life. The holy water in an earthen vessel. Do you realize that you're holy? At least you're supposed to be. God, the God of holiness is trying to make you holy like him. Holiness to the Lord, 
when the priest comes to interrogate you, you're seeing it on his forehead. Is it starting to be engraven upon your own? You are holiness placed into an earthen vessel. Yes, I know you deal with the natural man or woman. We all do. But there is holiness within. Can you recognize that? And then to gather up the dust from the tabernacle floor and sprinkle it into the water? Yes, there is dirt mingled with your divinity. And that's true of us all. Recognize that. Admit it to yourself and to others. Come clean. We're removing dust even from the tabernacle itself. And we're giving you a chance to remove the dust from your own life. If you'll only come and confess and be willing to be, to be cleansed. In verse 18, the priest shall then set the woman before the Lord. Again, he sees and knows everything. He will uncover the woman's head. You cannot hide your sins from God. You are now uncovered, unatoned for, unless you repent. Put the offering of memorial in her hands. So that offering of barley with no oil and no frankincense, you're now holding it. It's a memorial. Do you remember your sins? Which is the jealousy offering. That's what this whole thing is called. And they're being judged by a jealous God that wants us to be faithful to him. The priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that causeth the curse. That's the holy water now mixed with dust from the tabernacle floor. And it's bitter, but it's what you've been drinking lately instead of the living water. So you hold your so-called sacrifice. No oil, no frankincense included. And I'll hold this water of judgment. Oh, it, it might be bitter in this case if you don't confess and repent. But let's see what happens here. Verse 19, The priest shall charge her by an oath, and say unto the woman, If no man have lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of thy husband, then be thou free from this bitter water that causeth the curse. You see, the priest is about to make this woman drink the bitter water. Almost like a token, a metaphor of what you've been doing, if you're indeed guilty. You have been consuming bitterness, and you will reap what you sow. But if you haven't done any of these things, if this is a false accusation or a, an unfounded concern, then be thou free from this bitter water. You see, a clear conscience has no fear of investigation. I'll go ahead and look. I'm, I'm happy to drink the water. It won't be bitter to me because I've done nothing wrong. There's no, there's no dirt I'm trying to hide. And therefore, no bitter taste in my mouth when I drink this water. There's no aftertaste of sin because I haven't sinned. In verse 21, but if you've been unfaithful to your husband, the priest says, the Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people. When the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell, and this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. In other words, I agree, I agree. I will accept the potential consequences of this bitter water. If it does make my belly swell and my thigh rot, then I deserved it because I was trying to hide my sin. But if I am innocent and clean, then I trust this will do me no harm because I don't have a troubled conscience. 
And then what does the priest do? He makes her drink the water and then burns this jealousy offering upon the altar. No oil or incense to please the Lord or to sweeten the sacrifice. This is hypocrisy, giving God something where your heart's not into it, if indeed this woman is guilty. And by offering sacrifice, the priest is calling God's attention, even though this person technically has nothing good to give. Fascinating ritual. Verse 27, And when he hath made her to drink the water, then it shall come to pass that if she be defiled and have done trespass against her husband, that the water that causeth the curse shall enter into her and become bitter, and her belly shall swell and her thigh shall rot, and the woman shall be a curse among her people. On the other hand, verse 28, If the woman be not defiled but be clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive seed. With that last line, we're back to the idea of adultery. Oh, conceiving seed, how do I know if this child belongs to me? A jealous husband would worry. Well, if she has been faithful, true, amen, amen. I accept whatever results this investigation shows. Okay, you can trust now as she conceives seed, that that baby belongs to you. Your wife has not been unfaithful. Now, some have looked at this chapter and scratched their head and said, this is really odd, first of all, but second of all, does it, does it work? Uh, is God really going to rot the thigh and swell the belly of this guilty party uh, if she's trying to hide her sin? Now, can God do that? Sure, of course. There, but is this divine judgment? It's all on God. Or some would say, ah, this is just psychosomatic symptoms. No, nothing actually is going to happen. It's just water with some dirt in it. And they probably drink that all the time. Okay, No water purification then. So what are we supposed to make of all this? Well, again, I will allow for divine displeasure and that God will make something happen with this person. But even in, that, in the absence of that, if you're skeptical to that, what I, what's amazing to me, if this is just psychosomatic, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Because what does a lie detector test do? Is a lie detector test or all of the scanning technology that they're starting to put in places, is it all knowing? It does, is the lie detector detecting truth and falsehood, or is it detecting psychosomatic symptoms? That's the amazing thing about it. It's detecting increased heart rate. It's, it's noticing the, the eyes, the pupils dilate, and so forth. It's seeing you know, body temperature and slight variations of things because the person knows. And the body will even help make that manifest. As Isaiah says, the show of their countenance doth witness against them. Wow, you might be a, have a good poker face, but are there slight things that, that are the tell that you're bluffing here, that you're lying in this case? That's why I love about the thigh rotting and the belly swelling. To me, it's this sense of, do you get a little weak in the knees? There's the rotting thigh. Do you get a little sick in your stomach? There's the, the, swelled, the swollen belly. Is there something inside of you? And are we simply trying to put you into a position where your conscience can pass judgment upon yourself? Yes, God will be your ultimate judge. But you're the judge that will, that will lead you to come to him and confess your sins 
So for you and for me, trying to find relevance in Numbers chapter 5, we need to ponder our sins. We need to take our own spiritual temperature. We need to ask ourselves in moments of honest reflection, what does my heart tell me? In fact, more than my heart, what does my gut say? Does it feel like I've eaten or drunk something off? And we talk about the, the, the mental brain. What about the gut brain? There's so many synapses firing down there, too. Uh, trying to help us see what's, what's going on here. What, what do we really feel about this? No wonder the scriptures speak of God's bowels of mercy. And my bowels are filled with compassion. There's God's gut. That's that yada verb, to know, but to know down there, to feel it, viscerally taste it, partake of it, drink the bitter water. What is it doing? And I think if we'll do that, in fact, I know if we'll do that, then our conscience will be awakened to a point that we can know where we still have some things to change. My mother-in-law is a master of mindfulness and meditation. And she'll speak of doing a full body scan and just trying to mentally probe the depths of practically every cell in the body. Just scan everything. And what are you feeling about this? She works with addiction recovery patients as well. And it's amazing to see as they do that and can sense there is something amiss. There is some underlying desire that I perceive is unmet and it's pulling me in wrong directions. There's a guilty conscience that, yes, has been covered up by so much oh, justification and rationalization. But when I let my gut really speak to me, oh, the Spirit brings to my remembrance the things that are still left unrepented of. You remember when Joseph Smith was heading off to Carthage jail? And what did he say? I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards all men. Ah, the power of a clear conscience. And Joseph had one. He had been drinking bitter water, the dregs of a bitter cup for much of his life, all the opposition he faced, but he wasn't bitter. And he wasn't concerned about God's judgment because he knew God had already pronounced it and pronounced him clean. I do love Numbers chapter 5, this strange ritual, because it's allowing the person to look inward and allowing their body to confess a sin, even if their, if their mouth is still unwilling to do so. This does hold up even in modern courts of law. Oh, and to see it in the ancient world, the way God is doing it, just trying to help us recognize our own sins, and come clean. Now, for those who are clean and want to remain so, number six is for them. This chapter deals with the Nazarite vow. Now, a Nazarite is not the same as a Nazarene, and that's important to, to differentiate. Jesus was a Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. A Nazarite comes from a different verb. In Hebrew, Nazar means to separate, and that word is going to come up so many times in chapter six. Because it's people who are taking upon themselves a covenant of separation. I want to be set apart to more fully live the life that God would have me. So, verse 1, 
The Lord said unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. He then explains what that will entail. Now, Nazar, as I said, to dedicate, to consecrate, to separate, to set apart, it's all of that. And a Nazarite, then, is one who is set apart. It can be male or female. In the Catholic Church, this would be like a monk or a nun. Okay? In, for Latter-day Saints, this would be like a full-time elder or sister missionary. We all have standards to follow. Right? It's a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that God is trying to develop. But when we're missionaries, we take the normal Latter-day Saint standards and put them on steroids. Right? We raise the bar and we commit to a life that is more separate more dedicated, more consecrated, more holy, more distinct than any life we had before. Uh, and that's the case of a Nazarite. It could be lifelong or it could be for a brief period. Back to Catholicism, if you think about Easter season and during Lent, they will often separate themselves from certain things, certain foods they won't eat, certain practices they won't indulge in. And the same, similar thing is happening here. To think about uh, President Nelson when he first became president of the church and called for a social media fast. Oh, social media isn't against our religion, but there, it's healthy and helpful sometimes to separate yourself from those kinds of influences. Uh, sometimes it might be worth to do it more frequently than, than just when a new prophet comes on board or, or to make it longer than just a week, perhaps. You'll have to be the judge of that, right? Let your gut tell you. Uh, Samson, who we meet in the book of Judges, was a Nazarite. Uh, there's a strong likelihood that Samuel, the boy Samuel, was a Nazarite, at least for a time. Uh, perhaps John the Baptist was. Some suggest that Paul the Apostle had a Nazarite vow as well. Interesting possibilities throughout Scripture. But what are they separating themselves from? Verse 3, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. And shall drink no vinegar of wine, or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes, or dried, no raisins even. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. So a Nazarite is going nowhere near a vine. I mean, it's one thing to not cross the line into intoxication. It's another thing, I'm not even going to touch wine or strong drink. In fact, it's another thing not even to touch a moist grape or even a dried raisin. I can't even eat raisin bran? Nope. How about grape popsicles? That might actually be okay since I don't think those have anything to do with actual grapes. They're pretty good though. In their case, I guess what I'm saying is here's the line that none shall cross, but you Nazarites, let's establish a few preliminary lines. This is like Eve. Don't just, don't eat the fruit. Don't even touch the fruit. I'm going to try to separate you, there's our key word for Nazarites, as far from, from the lines you shouldn't cross as absolutely possible. There's a great phrase in the New Testament that says to abstain from even the appearance of evil. And that's either appearance like it's looking like you're doing something wrong, or appearance as in evil is about to appear here. So let's abstain from even that possibility. And Nazarites are as far away from the line as you can get. And when it comes to wine and strong drink, that seems to be more obvious. Now there's, yes, we saw last week in Leviticus, there are kosher laws. But there's not the same word of wisdom for them as there is for us. And so wine, strong drink, was allowed for the, the basic Latter-day Saint, but not for the, the Nazarite. 
I think in some ways, if wine and strong drink are indicative of, of pleasure or a certain kind of sociality with the potential of getting out of hand, then you Nazarites need to steer clear of even the possibility. If wine and strong drink can lead to a succumbing to the senses or a numbing of the senses, you've got to be on your A-game. You're dedicated to God. So don't go give in to those lesser desires. And do not numb the senses of the spirit because you need to be guided by, by that constantly. If you think about what Alma said to all three sons, Helaman, Shiblon, Corianton, be sober, which I think again is more than just avoiding intoxication. It's being absolutely serious about the life that God is asking you to live. Yes, you might have to sacrifice a piece of your sociality for a time. I did on my mission, you probably did on yours. When I taught at the MTC, there was one elder, it was a, a, a district with elders and sisters, great bunch of, of servants of God, and this one elder was so outgoing, had a great extrovert personality. I'm like, this guy's gonna get in any door he knocks on, <laughs> amazing. But he seemed at times to be, I, I, he, he was never flirting, I, I wouldn't say that, but was sometimes a little too friendly uh, with the sister missionaries. And I remember in an interview I had with him, I just pointed it out, and he didn't get defensive, but just like, oh, I'm not, I'm not trying to, my, my, my heart is locked. Thank you, Spencer W. Kimball. Um, I, but that's just who I am. I'm just a real friendly, outgoing kind of a guy. And I said, I know, and I love it. And all of your introverted companions will love you for it as well. Don't give, don't give that up. But as far as the normal friendliness and social gifts that you have, I would just caution you to rein them in around members of the opposite sex. That's all. You might, but it's me, I know. You just might have to lay that piece of your personality upon the altar. You've already given up so much else to come and serve a mission. This might be one more thing to offer to him. To use it in the right places, investigators, being friendly with members and so on, within the bounds the Lord has set. But be, be sober. You're a Nazarite for now. In verse 5, the next piece of separation. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head, until the days be fulfilled in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy, and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. And that's where we see Samson, so famous for not cutting his hair, at least not until he cut his hair and broke his Nazarite vow and lost his strength and all those other things we'll see at the end of Judges. Well, what's up with the long hair? It's interesting how hair is such a symbol of oh, style and, and what's, what's normal as far as cultural tastes are concerned. And there's something to be said here for this oh, disheveled, unkempt look. Oh, you get a sense of John the Baptist with his camel hair and leather. And this is a wild man. Okay, this is a little out of the norm. Well, in this case, they seem to be less concerned with worldly styles and, and fashions. Of course they're less concerned. They're separated from those things. They just care what God thinks. It's also an interesting way to, to gauge just how long they have been separated. You can see by the length of someone's hair. That's the, since the la how long has it been since they last cut it? And in this case, how long has this vow of separation lasted? 
in verse 6, another, a third level of separation. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. Now this one sounds easy. Why would I want to hang around a dead body? Well, what if it's someone you're related to and you want to be at the funeral? He says, he shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die because of the consecration of his God is upon his head. I mean, there's a couple of things to consider here. On the one hand, avoid death. Well, spiritually speaking, good, good advice. Uh, why seek ye the living among the dead? Be separate from, separated from dead places and find real life, life in Christ, in, in living influence, in living water. More than that, this separation is going to give you a different perspective on the separation that death entails. Separating body from spirit, separating living from dead. Well, you're separate from worldly concerns and worldly cares so that you can be one with God. You've overcome death in a fascinating way. And if you understand, even missionaries, we often hear of someone at home passing away. And on occasion, they are given their choice. And I would never second guess if they feel that the Lord needs me home with my family at this point of sorrow and loss. But I also know of missionaries that have such a different perspective on death when they're out in the field. Knowing that they will see that lost loved one again, not lost to them, not eternally. And so they choose to stay and continue preaching and serving and lifting and blessing and helping other people know how they can overcome the separation that occurs through sin or through death. It's, it's noble, it's amazing to them, to me, but it makes sense how they would have the power and courage and faith to move forward. They're separate after all. The consecration of God is upon them. Verse 8, he then says, All the days of his separation he is holy unto the Lord. In verse 12, he shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of his separation. You see, being set apart signifies that full consecration, that full separation. We desire to be holy. We want to be different so that we can make a difference. This is the Lord's time. What would you have me do with it? When we can make that separation from our will and offer it all to him, it's amazing what he can do with us the kind of disciple he can turn us into. Well, when that period of separation or consecration is over then, according to number six, the Nazarite comes to the tabernacle with the priest and offers a burnt offering, a sin offering, a peace offering, a meat offering, a drink offering. He's offering it all, which makes sense. You just gave your all this time. And as kind of the, the culminating moment of it all, Let's come to the tabernacle and make it more visible for the whole congregation. This person has given every kind of sacrifice. Makes me wonder about reporting to the high council seems a little anticlimactic for returned missionaries compared to this kind of mass sacrifice on the altar of God. Well, in verse 18, the Nazarite shall then shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall take the hair of the head of his separation and put it in the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And then in verse 20, after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Now, talk about an interesting ritual. 
And yes, one that makes reporting to the high council pale in comparison. Can you imagine returned missionaries coming in and then shaving their head? <laughs> I mean, yes, get your ear pierced so you keep serving, but shave your head. Uh, the period of your Nazarite vow has come to its end. And then let's go burn the hair outside, shall we? Can you imagine the stench outside the chapel? Have you ever smelled burnt hair? It's nasty. It is this bitter smell. Compare that to the sweet savor that's rising to God with all of these offerings. What's going on here? Oh, and then now you can drink wine? This symbol of, of rejoicing in the ancient world? Well, talk about a bitter, sweet experience. Sound like being released from a heavy calling or coming home and being released after the end of your mission? I don't know of a, of a more bitter, sweet experience than that. I didn't want to be released. My dad was my stake president at the time. He released me, and I still don't know if I've fully forgiven him for that. I didn't want to go home. I just wanted to extend my mission indefinitely. And I guess I sort of have, and I'm grateful for that. Glad the Lord has let me. But it's a bitter thing. It's hard to take that tag off and set it aside knowing I'm not authorized to wear it like I once was. The period of that level of separation, right? Isolate, concentrate. Wow, oh, that concentration, that consecration was glorious. But now I have to reintegrate it, which means bringing it in with all these other kinds of parts of my life that I'm no longer separate from. School and work and social life and everything else pulling at my attention. It is sweet to come and reintegrate with family and friends. It is sweet to move forward to the next chapter of life and continue growing in other areas. But yes, it's bitter. There's that burnt hair, that smell lingering in the, ear, in the air. I miss, I miss that. I miss what I used to be able to do full-time, fully consecrated, fully separated. In verse 22, then, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, and then he gives them the words. The words of what is called the priestly blessing or the Aaronic blessing. I think it's fitting that it's mentioned here at the end of this chapter on the Nazarite vow. Oh, someone who's fully given themselves over to God and separated themselves in order to bless others. Well, how do we bless anyone? Here's some pretty good words for it. Verse 24 to 26. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. This is sometimes called the threefold blessing. Because sure enough, it's the Lord do this, and the Lord do this, and the Lord do this. And to see the kinds of blessings that God wants to give us, to keep us, to make his face shine upon us, there's the glory of his countenance. And is that countenance being engraven upon ours? Do we have, have we received his image in our countenance? To, to give us his peace. I hope that your period of Nazarite consecration introduced you to those kinds of blessings and left you wanting more of them. I wonder if that would be a, a sweet and appropriate way when the return missionary does come and report to the High Council for their priesthood leaders to 
give them that kind of priestly blessing. From this moment forward, oh, the Lord is proud of you, grateful for what you've done. Oh, more than return missionaries. Anyone serving in a calling and ending it, that'd be a powerful thing. All those who can show their gratitude for their service, please show by the uplifted hand. Oh, that's good. I'm grateful we can all express that gratitude. But the ultimate gratitude will come from God at the close of your mission or your service as you feel the light of the Lord shining upon you in appreciation. The chapter then ends, verse 27. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. And he does. Blesses us every time we look to him and serve him and separate ourselves so that we can be one with him. Interesting difference. Separate from those to be at one with, the, with these. There's the at-one-ment of Jesus Christ. Numbers chapter 7 then, the tabernacle is finally ready to be dedicated. And in verse 1, it came to pass on the day that Moses had fully set up the tabernacle and had anointed it, there's that anointing oil, Gethsemane, and had sanctified it, holiness that comes through God, and all the instruments thereof, both the altar and all the vessels thereof, and had anointed them and sanctified them, that the princes of Israel, heads of the house of their fathers, who were the princes of the tribes, and were over them that were numbered, offered. And then we're going to see throughout chapter 7 all of their offerings, and it's massive. Do you catch who's making these offerings? These are princes of the tribes, the leaders of each tribe of Israel, and they're bringing this massive sacrificial offering to kind of kick off the dedication of the tabernacle. Princes? Ah, yes, princes paying homage to the king, the king of kings. They come with oxen and with wagons to help the Levites move, transport the tabernacle from place to place. Although, verse 9 says, it was only given to the sons of Gershon and Merari. Unto the sons of Kohath he gave none, because the service of the sanctuary belonging unto them was that they should bear upon their shoulders. You see, Gershon and Merari were responsible for parts of the tabernacle that, yeah, you could load them up in a wagon and move them that way. But the sons of, of Kohath, they were the responsible for the actual tabernacle furnishings, Ark of the Covenant, first and foremost. And that, no, you don't put in a wagon. You bear it on your own shoulders. Look at Aaron's high priestly robes. There are precious stones on his shoulders. House of Israel, bearing them up. In our day, there are so many machines to do so much of the heavy lifting. But there are times where it does still require, even in our technological day, manual labor. Where somebody actually has to sweat a bit. And somebody ha actually has to move something and lift something and do something with their own hands. Lift where they stand with their own shoulders. And that's the Ark of the Covenant. Some things aren't to be delegated. Some things aren't supposed to be made more convenient or easy. Some things still need to be born personally and directly. And, and temple work is one of those. Well, each priest then makes this massive offering for the dedicating of the altar. Best way to dedicate an altar of sacrifice is to sacrifice. <laughs> Put it to use. Each prince did it on a separate day. They started with Judah on the east, the rising of the sun, and then day after day they went clockwise through each of the 12 tribes of Israel, 
a prince of each one, making the exact identical offering. And it was massive. By the way, this is also where Jewish tradition comes in. According to the text here, the prince of the tribe of Judah, who started the process of, of offering sacri sacrifice to dedicate the altar, was Naashon. And he's the one, when we talked about parting the Red Sea, that according to Jewish tradition, was the first to enter the water and kept wading deeper and deeper until it got up to the nostrils. Well, we're going to see nostrils again today, later. But here he's offering, he's, he's just as deep in his service of God as he was in his faith to move forward. And he's the first one leading out, giving these, these offerings and sacrifices. Like I said, every tribe is going to do it. It's going to be the clockwise all the way around. It's going to be identical for each tribe, which again leaves us with the, the reality that every tribe has something to give. Every one of us, whatever your patriarchal blessing might say, you have gifts to give. So give them to God. None are greater or lesser than any others. Then at the end of a very long chapter, that with a lot of repetition, the exact same thing said about all 12 of those tribes. Verse 89, when Moses was gone into the tabernacle of the congregation, now that it's been dedicated, to speak with him, who's the him here? Then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him from off the mercy seat that was upon the ark of testimony from between the two cherubims, and he spake unto him. That is real prayer. True prayer. In fact, picture it, if you will. Here is God's servant, Moses, coming boldly to the throne of grace. He's passed the altar of sacrifice outside, the altar of incense inside, the smoke ascending to God and filling God's house with this sweet savor. There at the altar, there at the Ark of the Covenant, for Moses to speak to God and for God to speak to Moses, to hear his voice from off the mercy seat. The king of kings, the princes have offered homage. The king has come to accept what has been given and to speak with Moses from his throne of grace. Oh, to understand what's happening here to see what God is receiving and what God is giving. This is Kirtland Temple. They've given their all, all that they had, such sacrifice. And then DNC 110, the Lord comes to accept the offering, speaks to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. This is far beyond just Kirtland. This is every temple. Whenever we go to participate in the endowment, we've separated ourselves from the wicked world. There's our Nazarite vow. We've come to make these covenants to further separate us from others, for, from other concerns, other, other issues, so that we can be at one with God here in his holy house. And at a sacred moment, to think about what real prayer consists of, altars and sacrifice and offerings. And in this moment, there's Moses at the mercy seat and surrounding the house of God is the house of Israel, all offering the self-same sacrifices, raising their hearts their voices, their souls, their spirits, giving their all in identical ways all around the circle 
of Israel. Understand what they're doing here. Can you picture this with me? And with that unity, with that unison, that, that oneness of heart and mind, the sameness of sacrifice, they are communing with God and hearing his voice. This is real prayer in sacred places. And in our own way, it can be real prayer even when we enter into our closet, separate ourselves from the world, and allow our souls to come into contact with God. I had a student once come to me at the end of an institute class and <laughs> very point blank, he just said, and forgive my language, he just said, I suck at prayer. That's exactly how he said it, very stark. And I try not to, to laugh, but he was just so bold. He's like, but he was like desperate, help me. I want to be able to talk with God and I'm not, not good at it. We had a great conversation. Uh, I had a feeling this analogy would resonate since he's of the rising generation. I asked him if he liked the Avengers and he said, of course. I said, how do you feel about Dr. Strange? He's my favorite one because it's the most spiritual. Not that the movie is spiritual per se, it's the, that he is the superhero that was forced to really grapple with the possibility of a spiritual realm. Something beyond merely the rational or super scientific. And when he realized that there was one, and the effort of soul that it took to reach that other realm, that's what I love about Doctor Strange. Okay? He has this sling ring, right? And he's you know, rotating it. He's making a circle. And with that sacred circle, it is opening a conduit to something far beyond him. Oh, it, to me, there that's prayer for you. And what are we trying to muster in our prayers? Real depth of feeling. We sometimes hide behind words because they're easy to say. I've sometimes asked foreign-speaking students to offer prayers in institute because then I can't hide behind language. And just go along with the flow because it all makes sense to my mind. No, I want you to speak in an unknown tongue because it forces my heart to try to feel the spirit in ways that go beyond the mortal mind. And in my own most significant prayers, sadly, I, I stink at praying sometimes still too. But in those moments of real connection, I simply try to sit with the depth of feeling until the sparks start to fly. Instead of just saying thank you to God, I sit with my blessings and count them one by one until I begin feeling a depth of gratitude that I finally have something to offer God at this sacrifice, at this altar. I am giving you my gratitude. Because I have it in hand, I have it in heart, I'm ready to extend it in an offering to thee. I don't just ask, please bless me with, fill in the blank. No, I sit in my, in my nothingness, in my lack, in my need, until I can feel that well up within me and I can offer God that feeling of, of desperate need. And he'll know what, I, what I'm asking for. Instead of just saying sorry for my sins. No, sit with that swollen belly and that rotten thigh for a while. Taste the bitterness of the water and realize I have sins 
that need confessing and wrongs that need redressing. And I have something to give you, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. This is true prayer. And you are seeing it in Israel at the end of, Num of Numbers chapter 7. Now Numbers 8 shifts then to back to the Levites. Every tribe has offered their all. But the tribe of Levi, that's all they'll be is an offering. And so verse 6 after Aaron lights the lamp of the candlestick, Moses prepares the Levites with this. Take the Levites from among the children of Israel. So from among, separate them, set them apart, and cleanse them. So now make them clean. And thus shalt thou do unto them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purifying upon them. There's a washing. Let them shave all their flesh. There's a new beginning. Let them wash their clothes. That way you can now have holy garments and so make themselves clean. They then offer a meat offering and a sin offering. And then verse 9, thou shalt bring the Levites before the tabernacle of the congregation and thou shalt gather the whole assembly of the children of Israel together. Thou shalt bring the Levites before the Lord and the children of Israel shall put their hands upon the Levites. Now, I have no idea how that happened because it's impossible to do that literally. You can't have the whole house of Israel laying their hands upon the Levites. But maybe in our day, that's why we raise our hands to sustain them as if we're lifting them up, ready to reach them out and lay them upon the hands. It's God's hand ultimately that sets apart his servants, right? It's that priesthood authority that, that gives us power and authority from God. But there is also power that comes from the community of saints that is there to support them. I am here to sustain you in your calling. So I'm laying my hands upon you as well. It's as if authority from above is meeting faith from below. And this middleman or middlewoman being set apart is receiving blessings and strength from both directions. In verse 14, thus shalt thou separate, there's our key word for Nazarites, I guess it applies to Levites too, separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. Verse 16, they are wholly given unto me from among the children of Israel, instead of such as open every womb, even instead of the firstborn of all the children of Israel, have I taken them unto me. Another nod to the substitutionary atonement. Another reminder of Passover and vicarious substitution. I will take the Levites as my gift from you. But what will I do then? I'll just return them as my gift to you. Which is exactly what he does. Verse 18, I have taken the Levites for all the firstborn of the children of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons from among the children of Israel to do the service of the children of Israel in the tabernacle of the congregation and to make an atonement for the children of Israel that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come nigh unto the sanctuary. Just catch how many times he said children of Israel, uh, four or five, however many it was. That's God's focus. Yes, I will take the gift you gave me. And in the ultimate example of immediate regifting, <laughs> he then returns it to them with increase. The, only, the increase only he can offer. I will take the gift and then return it to you because that gift is meant to bless everyone. 
This is all about the children of Israel. And so to accept the Levites in place of the children of Israel and then give them as a gift back to the children of Israel, that's all God ever does with what we give to him. How do I return it to bless an ever-expanding circle of my children? That's what he's doing. The Lord then explains that Levites will serve from age 25 to age 50. At age 50, they shall serve no more, at least not the way they did before, but shall minister with their brethren in the tabernacle of the congregation to keep the charge and shall do no service. You see, so much of the service of the Levites was a lot of heavy lifting. I mean, literally, when you're taking down the tabernacle and hoisting it upon your shoulders and moving forward with it, setting it all back up every time you set, establish camp again, there's a lot of work. And even, I mean, sacrificial offerings every day and burnt and sin and trespass and heave and wave and everything else, there's a lot of work to be done. Slaughtering animals, cooking meat, removing skin and, and dung and kidneys and liver, and it's amazing how much effort is going on. And by the time you're 50, after 25 years of this kind of service, wow, I guess I'm ready for retirement. But we'd never fully retire from service to God. You won't be serving as you did before, but please continue to minister with your brethren in the tabernacle. There are so many other things still to be done. And at any age, you can offer your all to the Lord. I love that thought when I go to the temple and see people who have spent a lifetime serving and doing so much heavy lifting with callings that just taxed them to the limit. And even in their retirement years, you cherubim that serve in temples, that serve in family history centers, that served anywhere you can. It's amazing for me to picture those, those later Levites still ministering with their brethren every chance that they can. Thank you. And may the Lord bless you for lengthening your stride, or as Elder Holland has once joked, for lengthening your shuffle, <laughs> whichever it was. Numbers chapter 9, they then celebrate the Passover. It's been another year. This is how much time has passed to get to this point. Uh, it's time to commemorate the Passover, and so they do. But what's interesting here is there were certain men that had touched a dead body. My guess is that they were burying a loved one. We saw that hinted at with the Nazarites. But as a result, they're now ritually unclean. We saw that with Leviticus. And with ritual impurity, you have to be outside of Israel. We're trying to keep the contagion away, right? But ah, did that have that happen on Passover? I, what am I supposed to do? I can't participate in this holy day of commemoration. Well, what they do is they come to Moses and ask, it's not our fault. We had to bury the dead. And we still want to give God our all. We want to participate in this, but we're unclean un, through no fault of our own. What can we do? Now, this was something that had never happened before. Their heart was in the right place, but Moses knew the law. So verse 8, Moses says unto them, Stand still, and I will hear what the Lord will command concerning you. I love that Moses doesn't jump to some conclusion, doesn't just decide on his own. In fact, doesn't err on the side of justice or mercy because he doesn't want to err. He wants to find out from God. 
This seems like a situation where mercy could be applied, but you are a God of justice, and I don't want to step on any divine toes here. So what should I do? Verse 10, the Lord responds, If any man of you or of your posterity, so I'm establishing a precedent that will hold going forward, if any shall be unclean by reason of a dead body, or be in a journey afar off, so too far to make it to Jerusalem on the day that we're supposed to come together for this, yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord. Oh, here's mercy. But how's this for justice? It has to be the 14th day of the second month at even, they shall keep it. So exactly one month later to the day. And eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, just like everybody else did the month before. They shall leave none of it unto the morning, nor break any bone of it, just like those others. According to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. It's amazing how well the Lord balances justice and mercy here. Balances flexibility with fixity. Balances order with freedom. You get a sense of someone who's really good at proving contraries? God is. And so, yes, I will give you the flexibility and freedom to the mercy to allow you to celebrate Passover at a later time. That's very kind of him. But you still need to do it my way. On the date I give, in the order I give. That's what Passover, Seder, means order. It's got to be according to my order. And so I'm not going to err on the side of justice that, nope, you missed out and sorry. But I'm not going to overcorrect with mercy either to just say, fine, do it however, whenever you'd like. No, my house is still a house of order, even when it's a house of mercy as well. It's a glorious balance the Lord has just struck. You see, he clarifies in verse 13. But the man that is clean and is not in a journey and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season. That man shall bear his sin. So if you could have done it the right way the first time, we're, we're not pushing oxen into the mire on the, the night before Sabbath, just so we have a good reason. We're justified in breaking the Sabbath to get our ox out. No, we did everything we could, but through no fault of our own, I couldn't do it the way the Lord had initially intended. Do not presume upon his grace. Don't push the envelope of his flexibility because then you're overcorrecting. And God just wants us to be in that celestial center. Then verse 15, on the day that the tabernacle was reared up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, namely the tent of the testimony of that title. And at even there was upon the tabernacle, as it were, the appearance of fire until the morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Cloud, that's water. So you have water and fire, two cleansing, purifying elements. You have cloud giving shade and fire giving light. It's amazing. Again, we saw there's a need for justice and a need for mercy. There's sometimes a need for cloud in the heat of the sun. There is sometimes need for fire in the cold of the night. And it's amazing just how perfectly God knows what to give and when. His balance is amazing. He will meet our every need at the time that we need it. And he can adjust on the fly. He'll always be providing for us, though. So it was always. Now, when the cloud and fire moved, Israel moved. 
when the cloud and fire stayed, Israel stayed. This is Ruth and Naomi again, right? Where you goest, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Now, sometimes the cloud tarried long. That's verse 19. At other times, it stayed put only a few days. That's verse 20. But however long it stayed, when it moved, Israel moved. Verse 21, whether it was by day or by night that the cloud was taken up, they journeyed. Have you noticed that God doesn't always call you at the most convenient time? Are you ready to pick up and move at the drop of a hat? Are we light on our feet and nimble enough to be exactly and immediately obedient? That'd be, that'd be an interesting uh, exercise. I, a, a fire drill of sorts. There in the middle of the night, the fire moves. And Moses and Aaron and the camp of Israel is getting up, you know, blurry-eyed and breaking camp right then in the middle of the night. And the opposite was also true. Ready to move at the drop of a hat, the moment the Lord commanded, but also ready to stay as long as the Lord wants, if the cloud and fire happen to stay put. Verse 22, whether it were two days or a month or a year that the cloud tarried upon the tabernacle, remaining thereon, the children of Israel abode in their tents and journeyed not. But when it was taken up, they journeyed. Remember those two phrases in section 51 of the Doctrine and Covenants? Beautiful contrary to be balanced here as well. Where the Lord says, oh, go to the Ohio. Yeah, you'll only be there for a little season. But act on the land as for years. And it will turn to your good. We have to learn to balance the little season. And I'm ready to move at the drop of a hat with the as for years. I'll stay here and set down roots and make a difference. As long as you want me to be here. That's a beautiful balance. And then the overarching principle. Verse 23. At the commandment of the Lord, they rested in the tents. And at the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Will we be exactly and immediately obedient? When the Lord commands, do it. Good counsel from Joseph Smith. Good counsel from Moses. Good counsel from God. Now chapter 10 is going to be, well, how do we wake people up in the middle of the night if it's time to go? Uh, there's a, a heeding of the trumpet's call that's described in chapter 10 that is beautiful. In verse 2, Moses is commanded by God, Make thee two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. Now, some trumpet blasts are meant to gather the whole assembly to the tabernacle. Others are to gather just the princes. We'll get those rulers of thousands or rulers of tribes entirely, and then they can get the word out uh, through lesser leaders. Some will be alarms to move the camp forward. Some will be a call to muster the troops to go off to battle. Some will be to call the people together to rejoice in the blessings God has given them. They'll have to understand what each trumpet blast means. Verse 10, also in the day of your gladness, in your solemn days, in the beginning of your months, you shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the Lord, your God. So yes, trumpet blasts for just about everything. This reminds me of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? These need to be crystal clear, clarion calls. I need to be able to hear as it 
the, the sound reverberates across the camp of Israel. I need to know what that sound means, what it signifies. What am I supposed to do as a result of this? Am I ready to move forward? I am grateful for prophets and apostles who are clear, who are trumpeters all. In fact, in verse 8, it says that the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets and they shall be to you for an ordinance forever throughout your generations. And to live in a day where sons of Aaron have been called prophets and apostles with trumpet in hand, ready to call the attention of the camp of Israel to move us forward. The book of Revelation speaks of the last days filled with trumpet blasts. Are we listening to them? In fact, Isaiah 62, verse 6, powerful verse. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace. Prepare to keep hearing blasts from the brass section. God is trying to prepare us for the coming of Christ. And thank heaven, watchmen that never hold their peace. In verse 11, it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year, the cloud was taken up from off the tabernacle of the testimony. Time to break camp. The children of Israel took their journeys out of the wilderness of Sinai and the cloud rested in the wilderness of Paran. Israel marches forth in tribal order. It goes Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. Then, so those are all the tribes on the east rising in the sun. Then after those three, you get Gershon and Merari, sub-tribes of Levi, sons of Aaron, with the tabernacle at least kind of the major, the curtains and boards and all that kind of uh, peripheral kinds of material. Then you get the tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Those are the southern, the ones that camped on the south. And then after them, we're going clockwise, right? And then the Kohathites, another sub-tribe of Levi, the most important uh, furnishings, they march forward with the furnishings of the sanctuary. So this is the middle of Israel. So it's the middle of camp when they set up, but here also it's this middle. We've got six tribes before us to protect the most sacred parts. And then after the, Go the Kohathites march forth, then it's Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. There's the west side tribes. And then Dan, along with Asher and Naphtali. There's the northern ones. Uh, and Dan is, is there referred to as the rearward of all the camps. If you've ever been on a, a, a hike with a bunch of you know, young men or young women, there's usually a leader at the front and a leader in the back. And so to see what's most precious there uh, protected in the middle, and here you have the tabernacle surrounded by the camp of Israel as they're marching forth. This is a highly organized, well-disciplined camp. This is military precision, which makes sense. They're following the Lord of hosts. In verse 29, then, Moses says to a brother-in-law of his, so one of Jethro's sons, his name's Hobab, and he says, We are journeying unto the place of which the Lord said, I will give it you. So come thou with us. We will do thee good, for the Lord hath spoken good concerning Israel. Beautiful that Moses is inviting others to join him. You're a Midianite. We're Israelites. But you can be one with us. I married your sister for crying out loud. You're, you are one of us. So come. This is a great example of missionary work. 
We are headed toward the promised land. We'd love to have you join us. Come with us. We will do the good. After all, God is doing good to us, and you can be one with us. Converts are not second-class citizens. And as soon as you join the house of Israel, you are an Israelite. You're one with us. And God hath spoken good concerning Israel. From the longest lifelong member, pioneer ancestry, to the newest, freshest convert, God hath spoken good concerning you. Verse 30, Hobab responds, I will not go, but I will depart to mine own land and to my kindred. I'm comfortable in my own life. I don't want to change. To which Moses responds in 31, ah, Leave us not, I pray thee. This is persistence. He's being bold, but not being overbearing. For as much as thou knowest how we are to encamp in the wilderness, and thou mayest be to us instead of eyes. You see, Hobab, as a Midianite, knows this area better than the Israelites do. Moses was a stranger in a strange land. He didn't know where exactly to go. He's following the the cloud of, of smoke and the pillar of fire, right? Uh, but Hobab, you're familiar with this neck of the woods. You could be such a blessing to us. You could be our eyes. So come. It's not just that Moses recognized the good that he had to offer Hobab. He recognized the good that Hobab had to offer him. I think too often as missionaries, we only think, oh, you need the gospel. And they do. But we need to admit a little more readily the gospel needs you. The church will be better with you. And so please come and bring the gifts and talents that the Lord has already blessed you with. I love the message that Clayton Christensen included in The Power of Everyday Missionaries, that he as a business professor at Harvard and in certain circles of people that were very high uh, in all kinds of areas and therefore perhaps didn't feel like they needed a lot of help, oh, I'm good he realized that's a good thing. Uh, we should ask them to help then. And some of his most successful missionary work in Boston was not by saying, we have something to give, but rather, you have something to give. Could you come and help this family move? Could you come and teach some things to the youth based on your areas of expertise? And when people felt needed, ah, that's what drew them into the gospel. I have something to contribute. Moses is doing exactly that. In verse 32, it shall be if thou go with us, yea, it shall be that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same will we do unto thee. Again, no second class citizens. Of course you're not. I mean, you're, you're giving first class help. So you're just as much of us as, as any of us are. Verse 33, and they departed from the mount of the Lord a three days journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them by day when they went out of the camp. So Hobab, as necessary and helpful as he is, God is actually the ultimate scout here. He will lead the way and blaze the trail. It's up to us then to follow. In verse 35, it came to pass when the ark was set forward that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. When it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. You see what an, an integral part of the camp the Lord is, as far as Moses is concerned? When we're going, you go, God. Rise up, Lord. Make the difference that only you can. And when we stay, please return unto us. We can't go forward without you, and there's no reason to stay if you're not here. 
Moses understands that beautifully. Do the people, that's going to be the question. There seems to be so much faith thus far in the book of Numbers. Now is when it starts falling apart. We've had our great spiritual experience, these amazing outpourings. But now it's kind of day-to-day drag. I've got to pitch tents, and I've got to set up camp, and I've got to gather food, and keep eating manna every day. And now you start to see some trials and troubles along the trek in chapter 11. Verse 1, when the people complained, oh, there they are again, Laman and Lemuel's all, it displeased the Lord, go figure. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. Catch who were the victims, those that were furthest away from the tabernacle. That is most likely literal there, but think of, spiritually speaking, as we wander away from God, as we head to the uttermost parts of the camp. I mean, technically, yeah, I'm still in Israel, okay? Deal with it. But can't I be on the fringe of the faith? Can't I just be as far away from the central authority of God as possible? Well, be careful, because if it leads to the wrong kind of separation, and not seeing the inner workings of God to know that he is present among us, then yes, no wonder we start to complain. In fact, Laman and Lemuel only complained about Nephi's boat when they weren't helping to build it. As soon as they put their shoulder to the wheel, as soon as they rolled up their sleeves and helped Nephi build it, no more complaining on their part. They were brought in inside the workings of the house of Israel. Don't stay at the uttermost parts. Come make a difference. We need you, Hobab. We need all of you. Bring your gifts. And it's amazing how much less inclined we are to complain because we're contributing. Still, in this case, God's righteous indignation is kindled as fire, and it burns among them. I have seen, haven't you, that negative attitudes, once they're kindled, do tend to spread? You ever seen that happen among a youth group that one person just has a bad attitude and then it starts to spread like contagion? It can spread like wildfire. If enough people, there's this social contagion and social media really adds to it. It fans the flames and pretty soon, oh, we're up in arms against God's chosen leaders. But ironically and tragically here, this negative emotion, these uncontrolled pessimistic attitudes, they spread and end up consuming the very people that kindled them to begin with. That's what happened to them. Well, Moses, ever the mediator, prays for them, and the fire is quenched. But then verse 4, the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, oh, the whole Egyptian menu. But now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Now, are you serious? Israelites fell a lusting, murmuring about one thing, and now murmuring about something else. We, we had free fish in Egypt, to which I want to say, yeah, the fish were free, but you weren't. Oh, we had onions, and now all we have is manna before our eyes. Do, 
Are you serious? Do you not remember? You were begging me for deliverance. I saw your tears of anguish. It wasn't the onion that was causing it. It was your harsh bondage. And you were weeping for me to remember you. I did, and I brought you out. And now you just want to go back? Buyer's remorse is one thing, but being the recipients of deliverance and then getting deliveries remorse? It's amazing how forgetful we can be, especially with the devil's help, who wants us to look to the past and maximize the good times, even in our sinful state, and minimize the hardship that we were bringing upon ourselves. And then he turns to the present and he reverses it. He maximizes the, the hardship of a life in Christ and he minimizes the blessings that come in following him. It's so ironic, these switches of perspective and the devil's a master at it. Well, Moses is displeased with all this negativity, go figure. He says to the Lord in verse 11, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? Wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them, that thou shouldst say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth a sucking child, unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? I mean, Moses is at the end of his rope, and I can't blame him. He's been going through this for the past year plus. And now it's, he's gotten to a, a breaking point where it's like, God, I didn't give birth to these people. They're not mine. Remember we saw that, <laughs> the conversation he had with God once they caught wind of the golden calf? And God's ready to just start all over. At least he says so, to kind of push the mercy of Moses. Do you really want to just bag it and start over? Is that really what you want to do? And that helps bring Moses back to his senses. We're going to see the same thing here. But he's wrestling. He's frustrated. I do love the way he even puts it. Am I a nursing father? Because that's a, ver a word that Isaiah will use. Speaking of the last days when kings become the nursing fathers and queens the nursing mothers of scattered Israel. People from that level willing to come down to try to pick up scattered Israel wherever they can find them and gather them home to Zion. Moses, on his best days, is always willing to do that. Yes, Moses, you will still need to be their nursing father. They are infants after all. But let's lead them along. They'll grow up in God. I'm patient. I'm eternal. I guess I can afford to be. Let's see what they'll do. In verse 13, Moses continues his, his frustration. Whence should I have flesh to give unto all the people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone which is exactly why Jethro taught you to delegate, Moses, because it is too heavy for me. Why do you think Aaron and her were there to hold up your heavy hands, Moses? If thou deal thus with me, then kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. I don't know if there's a lower point for Moses than this one, but did you catch all of his pronouns some of this dirt was getting in his eyes because it was an eye problem, as President Packer used to say. 
but the I pronoun. That's the biggest problem of all. I can't do it. I can't do it alone. Why would you do this to me? It's too heavy for me. Let me not see my wretchedness. It's Moses. This was never about you. It's okay. I just need you to look to me in faith and then look to them in mercy and love and do the very best that you can. But this is a hard moment for Moses. There's a moment in Brigham Young's experience as they're crossing the plains, as the American Moses is leading modern Israel to a new promised land. And he gets frustrated on occasion. And at one point he said, unless, unless this people are more united in spirit and cease to pray against counsel, it will bring me down to my grave. I'm reduced in flesh so that my coat that would scarcely meet around me last winter now laps over 12 inches. It is with much ado that I can keep from lying down and sleeping to wait the resurrection. Wow. Brigham's lost a lot of weight. He's probably lost a lot of sleep. And now he's beginning to lose a lot of patience. Come on, Israel. You're better than this. And Moses is feeling the same way. Well, God tells Moses to gather the 70 elders of Israel, just like he'd done back on Sinai. Bring them to the tabernacle, and I'll give them some marching orders from there. Verse 17, I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee and will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. You see, it was never about you, Moses. It was about the spirit, my spirit, that I put upon you. That was our first conversation at the burning bush when you're sitting there, me, I can't do it. And I said, I know, but I can. So just be my servant, okay? I'm doing it again. And this time I'll say it all over again in the presence of these 70 elders so they realize I'm with you and realize that I can be with them. A portion of that same spirit will I put upon them. And therefore they'll be able to bear part of that burden also. They'll lift where they stand. In verse 18, say thou unto the people, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, who shall give us flesh to eat? It was well with us in Egypt, therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and you shall eat. You're accusing God of being a worse taskmaster than the Egyptians? Well, at least the Egyptians gave us fish and cucumbers and leeks. Okay, fine. I will provide you with exactly what you're asking for. Flesh to eat will prepare yourself for an abundance. But it's going to come with strings attached, just like it did back in Egypt. You want a taskmaster again? Then fine. If you cannot handle the small and simple daily grains of goodness I give you, manna, morning by morning, you want something more than fine. Verse 19, ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month, until it come out at your nostrils. There's where we see those again. It will be loathsome unto you, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, why came we forth out of Egypt? Oh, be careful with what you ask for. You want, you want it? Fine, I'll give it to you. And I will give you so much of it that it's more than you can bear. It'll come out of your nostrils. You will be vomiting this, this meat you've been lusting for until you're so sick of it you don't ever want to see it again. I have wondered about that in terms of some of the mistakes we make 
and some of the mistakes we have made collectively throughout our history. Have we ever done something wrong and have it come back to haunt us? Has it ever, uh, we gorge ourselves on something we shouldn't be eating in the first place, and it does end up coming out the nostril. I've actually wondered when it comes to early racism in the 19th century that stayed way too long through the 20th century, and we're still fighting against in the 21st. These are old ghosts that continue to haunt us. I don't have the time here, and I already did in our lesson on the second official declaration in the Doctrine and Covenants, to deal with all of the issues of race and the priesthood. And what were the necessary evils versus what were the unnecessary evils that were just evil and should never have been entertained or indulged in? That's racism. And I do wonder... Because 1978, as many people say, seems a little late to rescind that policy. Well, it, we had to wait on a revelation. And there's a lot of history there. But even people like David O. McKay in the 1950s and Hubie Brown, one of his counselors, were begging the Lord for the exact revelation that Spencer W. Kimball received in the late 1970s. And it just wouldn't come. Now, why? We don't know all the reasons to that. But the fact they were asking that question and God was not yet giving them the green light, it's hard to say if God had anything to do with the beginning of the restriction. Yes, some of that was motivated by racism in the mid-19th century. But it does seem he was involved in a part of the perpetuation of it. Because he wouldn't tell David O. McKay that you're, we're ready to change. Who was he waiting on? Not on David O. McKay, not on Hubie Brown. Was he waiting on us? Was he waiting on members of the church to overcome their racism? Was he waiting on the world to be ready for a change? A change that was in the making in the 1950s and 60s and early 70s. But I do wonder, on the, from a Latter-day Saint perspective, if there was a certain amount of worldly flesh they were lusting for in terms of giving in to the natural man with racism and God saying, fine, then you'll deal with the consequences of racism until it comes out of your nostrils. I was ready. You were not. I was giving priesthood to black men in, in Nauvoo for crying out loud. I was... I've said it before, the, world, the church is still trying to catch back up to Joseph Smith when it comes to racial things and gender issues. And sometimes we have to wait because of our own inability to live up to the manna that God is giving us every morning. I imagine there's probably other examples we could use, but this is just a place I think about that and think, you're going to have to deal with your humanity longer than you want to because you wouldn't repent earlier on. And so you're going to deal with the consequences of your, of your natural man until they come out your natural man nostrils. By 1978, believe me, the Latter-day Saints, by and large, were so sick of being accused of racism, so sick of not being able to open 
the priesthood and the temple with doors wide open to people of every race. Okay, good. You're as sick of it as I've always been. It's about time. I'll let, it, I'll let you sit with this for a while, and then in 1978, the revelation will finally come. I, I hope that makes sense. I, I pray that was not offensive to anyone on either side of these contraries, but I do, that's a place I felt like I needed to talk about that particular issue. Well, back to Moses. When God says, I'm going to give you a month worth of meat to eat, Moses is incredulous. Like, how is that going to happen? That's impossible. He wonders, are we supposed to slay all of our flocks and herds? Like one massive sacrifice and everyone's going to gorge themselves on that for the next month? We'll have nothing left. He wonders, are there enough fish in the sea? The Red Sea's not too far back. Do we go back and are we going to eat that for a month? And then the Lord responds in 23. Is the Lord's hand waxed short, Moses? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. In other words, I can do this, Moses. You don't have to worry. It was you you were so concerned about just a few verses ago. Well, stop thinking about yourself because you're not the one that's going to provide the meat. I will. You didn't provide the manna. Of course, you're not going to have to provide the meat. I will give it all. More than you could possibly imagine. And, but the way he puts it, is my hand waxed short? It's like, oh, that much meat, it must be hiding on the top shelf. But poor God has such short arms and there's no stepping stool. He's never going to be able to reach it. Oh, come on, Moses. My hand is stretched out still. The long arm of God's love and law can reach to, ed to, to meet any need. I joke with my daughter who loves dinosaurs and loves Despicable Me and it's those little minions because I, she's getting to, she just turned 13, she's now a teenager and so showing dad how much she loves me, I hope she still does, uh, is awkward at this age. And so when I try to give her a hug, sometimes she's a little hesitant to give me a, the full hug I'm used to and so instead she kind of sticks her arms out like halfway and just kind of pats my sides. And since she's a dinosaur lover, we, call, we laugh at that, that again now. And we call them T-Rex hugs. And since she loves despicable, loved when she was little, despicable me, we call those minion hugs. Because minions just have those tiny little arms. T-Rex, Tyrannosaurus Rex have those tiny little arms. And there my little girl is giving me this tiny little hug with those tiny little arms. And I'm like, no, I don't want a minion hug. I want a real hug. I testify that God does not have minion arms. Yeah, he does not have T-Rex arms. He can reach to meet our every need. And he's going to do that for them. Well, meanwhile, Moses gathers the 70 elders of Israel to the tabernacle. In verse 25, the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him, and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders, just as he'd promised a few verses ago. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. Now we're weaving two stories together here, so we're going to try to keep them separate, okay? Or at least keep them both in our mind at the same time. There's the, we're hungry and God's fine, I'm going to overfill you with, with meat. But then there's this also, how do I do this? And God's like, I'll, I'll give my spirit to the other 70 elders, okay? So there's this conversation, I'm going to overload them with meat. Now let's go back to the 70 elders, let me give them my spirit. In verse 26, there remained two of the men in the camp. So for whatever reason, they hadn't been at the tabernacle with all the other 68 of them. 
The name of the one was Eldad, the name of the other Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written. So they're still on Moses' list, okay? But they went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp, out among the people. Now verse 27, there ran a young man. He told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. So here they assume there's only one right way of doing things. It's, it's Moses or nobody else. And it's like, no, there's Moses and these other 70 elders of Israel. Well, but they had to come to the tabernacle. There's only one way of doing this. This is kind of what we saw about the, the Passover. I know there's one way, but are, is, are there exceptions to the rule under oh, certain circumstances? extenuating circumstances. That seems to be the case with Eldad and Medad, but this young man's freaked out about it. This is outside the box. Joshua is freaking out about it. Tell them to stop. Is it all fixity and no flexibility? Is it all unity with no diversity? All order with no individuality? We'll see several more examples of this today. But Moses' response is classic. Verse 29, famous verse. Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Joshua, you don't have to be any more offended by this than I would be. And I'm not offended by it at all. <laughs> if anybody should be feeling jealous, it's me. I'm not jealous at all. So envious thou for my sake? I am so relieved I didn't want any of these burdens to begin with. I almost, I would just, I was this close to turning my back on all of them just a moment ago. But no, God said he would lift, raise other people to help bear the burden. And I am thrilled. So I'm not envying at all. It's actually interesting, back to ideas of early church history and mistakes that we've made or problems that have taken place. I do worry sometimes when I hear people wrestle over them, justifiably so, but I sometimes worry, envious thou for their sake? Or are you more offended by this than the people who actually suffered through those periods? There's a safety in playing armchair historian from the comfort of a 21st century perspective and just think, how dare they? And all plural marriage was wrong. And and that racism was absolutely unjustifiable in any way. Well, to a degree, I, I might agree with some of that, but are you more offended than the people who actually went through it? Because those people who practiced plural marriage, as difficult as it was, they did so because they had a testimony of it. And I'm amazed at the courage and strength of the Elijah Abel's and the Jane Elizabeth Mannings of the world, African-American Latter-day Saints, that might be saying to someone with sympathy symptoms in the 21st century, envious thou for my sake, are you offended for my sake? Because I went through it, and yes, it was hard, and yes, I prayed for different outcomes, which eventually came, but I knew the gospel was true. And I followed Joseph Smith. I followed Brigham Young. I followed God's chosen prophets. And I trusted that God would someday make right 
anything that might be wrong. And he did. Again, I hope I'm not saying this from the comfort of a privileged position. Because my heart does go out to those who have suffered in the past and in the present. But I think there's a danger in assuming that God isn't helping them through their trials. And us being angry when they are less so, and perhaps not angry at all. God has been carrying me through this, confirming my faith and strengthening my testimony through it all. He's willing to do the same for you if you'll turn to him. Careful with that phrase, envying, or being offended for anyone else. Back to what Moses said in the next sentence. I wish everyone was a prophet. Lowercase p. I wish everyone had the Spirit of God upon them. It's the only thing that's lifted me up above my natural man. And that's the prayer of every prophet. We saw it in DNC 84. Moses sought diligently to sanctify the people that they might behold the face of God. This is all I've ever been dreaming of. I was lonely on Sinai. I wanted the whole house of Israel with me. So if everyone else can become prophets, then all the better. Let's, let's do this. Book of Revelation, what is the spirit of prophecy? It's the testimony of Jesus. That's something we should all have. We should all be prophets in that light. You see, spiritual gifts really are meant for all people, not just for prophets. And Moses wants us all to grow up in God and live into those spiritual gifts. Why do you think every commandment of the law was given through Exodus and Leviticus? Holiness to the Lord. Once it's on your mind, you won't need the garments of a high priest. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what I'm after. Verse 31, then, we're back to our other story. Okay, back and, back and forth between the meat and the messengers. And 31, there went forth a wind from the Lord. Remember wind, it means spirit and breath in Hebrew. It brought quails from the sea. And let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side, as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. This is roughly a three-foot deep flock of quails that has just <laughs> landed upon the camp of Israel if, with miles in every direction. Oh, yeah, we're going to be eating for a month at least on this stuff. And what do the Israelites do? Immediately, they start gathering it's like, the, the, this is, we just hit the jackpot. And they are just stuffing their faces and filling their sacks all that day, all that night, all the next day. Now, all year you've been eating manna. And what have I been trying to teach you? Eat enough for today. Give us this day our daily bread. If you get greedy and impatient and unfaithful and start to worry that I'll never provide for you again, then I'll take away what you already have. Because in verse 33, this is where it gets a bit disgusting. While the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. This is when it's coming out the nostrils. Uh, they're, they're just stuffing their faces and it's not even chewed up yet. It's still kind of sticking out between their teeth. 
are they eating it raw? Do they not take time to cook it? Is it, I mean, because then it's going to, yes, it's going to come out the nostrils. Okay. You got salmonella or botulism or, or some, something's wrong, but whether natural or divine consequence, there's a plague that is tearing through the camp of Israel. I mentioned uh, Dr. Strange. If you want another movie, a little older this time, think of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers if you've ever seen it. When Millie, the new wife of the oldest brother, is there trying to feed all seven of them, and this, this pack of of the uncivilized just dives into the dinner table and no, no civilization at all, no patience, no nothing. And so what does Millie do? She overturns the table and tells them if you're going to eat like pigs, then if you're going to act like pigs, then fine, eat like pigs. And so they do. That's what's happening here. You want to gorge yourself and forget every lesson I taught you through a year's worth of training with manna, then fine. I'll give you more than you can handle. Verse 34, he called the name of that place Kibroth Hata'avah, because there they buried the people that lusted. That Hebrew word means the graves of lust. And I guess it's our choice. We will either be buried in a grave, as we've succumbed to the lusts of the flesh, or we can choose to bury our lusts and overcome them and be men and women of God. Well, you'd think that this would solve the problem, right? Not only are the most wicked, the nethermost parts of the camp uh, consumed in their own self-destruction, but hopefully this woke everyone else up to realize the consequences of their sin. But turn to chapter 12 and in verse 1, Miriam and Aaron now have a problem. They speak against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now, Ethiopian there is better translated as Cushite. And that could be someone from Ethiopia, but it could also be someone from Arabia. Now, if it's the Arabian possibility, maybe they're just referring to Zipporah. She was a Midianite. Is that Cushite? Is that Ethiopian? I don't know. But that would be odd because, I mean, they've been married for a long time. And this is the first time we ever see any concern over this. So maybe not. The other possibility, if it wasn't Zipporah, is perhaps Zipporah has passed away since we haven't seen mention of her for a long, long time. And if she's gone and if Moses has remarried, perhaps then this Cushite is an Ethiopian literally. But remember when Israel left with a mixed multitude from Egypt? It could very well have been an Ethiopian convert to the God of Israel, wanting to join the people of Israel off to go to Israel as a promised land. Okay? In some ways, this could be the equivalent of Joseph and, and Asenath, a convert to the faith. Or Moses and Zipporah, who's a Midianite, that's descended from Abraham, there's some connection, but to really come fully into the house of Israel. And if Moses is remarried along those lines, then there's nothing wrong with this spiritually. In fact, what's interesting is I wonder, why would, why would Miriam have such an issue with this? Aaron has an issue with it too, but he is mentioned second. And in the Hebrew, when it speaks about them speaking against Moses, that's actually, the verb is in the feminine form. So Miriam's the one leading out on this, which might stand true to the personality of Aaron, where it's like, poor Aaron, he just kind of is along for the ride, it seems like a lot of times. 
And as long as he's with somebody good, like Moses, then he'll speak out for good. But he's, if, if he's with somebody struggling, like the house of Israel, and they say, hey, make us gods, and he's like, okay. Or Miriam wrestling with, how could Moses do this and marry a non-Israelite? Oh, okay. You're mad? I guess I'm mad too. Aaron does seem to be a little chameleon-like and turn into whatever color he's surrounded by. And that's a problem he would need to overcome. But to see Miriam particularly, she's, she was raised in Goshen. She was raised as an Israelite in bondage to Egyptians. She was part of a probably pretty tight-knit community that had a bone to pick with outside communities. She was perhaps a little too exclusivistic and isolationist, and it's us against the world. Whereas Moses, 40 years among the Egyptians, plundering their riches, uh, so to speak, as far as his upbringing, seeing the, the good things that he learned from them, 40 years among the Midianites, and seeing the value of what a Jethro had to offer, seeing still the value of Hobab, his brother-in-law, I wonder if because of Miriam's experience, she was clo more closed-minded, and because of Moses' experience, he was more open-minded. And he's not marrying outside the covenant here. There's no, there's no hint of that. But I do just, I just wonder based on our own experiences. He hasn't broken any commandments with this marriage, but is Moses simply more open to outsiders, to others that have come in? A convert to the church? Fantastic. Someone, oh, different from the regular mold. Totally fine. If they want to engage in the cause of Christ, then that's someone worth marrying. And Moses does. Now, they say in verse 2, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now, that's basically exactly what Joshua and that young man said about Eldad and Medad. They're prophesying in the camp. They shouldn't do that. No, it's totally fine. I'm trying to extend this to the 70 elders, and they just weren't fast enough to reach the other 68. It's okay. Other people can prophesy. I wish everyone could with the Spirit of God. All should be prophets. So Miriam and Aaron, in some ways, wait, God's spoken through us? Then why, Moses, do you think you should be in charge? Now Moses is going to be, again, that's not the problem here. In fact, I really do wonder, speaking of that, what you just said about marrying a, an Ethiopian, maybe that's not the real problem here either. Maybe what's really frustrating you is the fact you're not first in command. And so instead of admitting that and realizing that weakness in yourself, you're looking at me and trying to find something you can pick at, even though I've done nothing wrong. I found that when people are struggling in their faith, often they don't want to have anything to do with them. And so it's just a historical issue. It's just a doctrinal issue. It's just some social concern. I'm not implicated in any of this. But it is interesting to see that sometimes we, we pick at things or bring up issues that aren't really the issue because it feels like a more justifiable projection for our own insecurities. And that does seem to be the case with Miriam here. Oh, it's about your wife. Is it really? No. How come you're in charge? When God speaks to us as well. 
Now, like I said, Moses had just one chapter ago honored the spiritual gifts of others and prayed that those spiritual gifts would be extended throughout the entire camp. So believe me, Miriam and Aaron, I want you to speak. In fact, Aaron, I was banking on you speaking all the time when we went back to Egypt the first time. I didn't want to speak. I didn't have that gift. God was trying to stretch me and make me become something from my inadequacy. Well, maybe he's trying to stretch and help you become something out of your adequacy, out of your abundance of gifts. And maybe he's putting a natural first in second place so that a natural second can become first. And maybe there is a first and last and last shall be first trying to help everybody grow up in God. I'm just going to trust God in this. And and not err on either side where it's, it's all me and no one else can speak. But neither should it be, well, we can all speak, so why should there be one central voice? Why do you get to blow the trumpet? Well, because if the trumpets are all sounding uncertain sounds in cacophony, then of course we don't know how to muster the troops for battle. I hope this is making sense. Moses finds himself in an interesting place within these chapters. And I see that in the balance between democracy and hierarchy, between equality on the one hand and leadership and order on the other. And both are important as we try to strike a balance between them. Now in verse 3, we, hear, we learn this about Moses. It's even in parentheses, so kind of somebody sneaking this into the text. Now the man Moses was very meek, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. You see why that had to be written by somebody else? Just parenthetical insertion. Because Moses isn't going to write that. Or it wouldn't, it wouldn't count. I'm the meekest guy ever. I want to make sure they know about that. So I'm going to write it. No, this would be somebody else vouching for Moses. He'd never do it for himself. He's not going to say, I'm so proud of my humility. Oops, because there goes the humility. No, someone else is recognizing the meekness of Moses. And meekness is not weakness. I think we sometimes misdefine or, or misinterpret what meekness really looks like. Meekness is power, and Moses is powerful. But it's not being selfish with that power, and it's certainly not being self-serving with it. It's recognizing power, but also recognizing the power source. This is not some fake humility that's hiding behind false self-deprecation. This is, oh, I recognize the gifts of God, but they're gifts, so there's a giver. That's it. And that meekness is power and it's strength, but it's relying upon its, its proper source. That's Moses for you. And he wants them to rely on that proper source too. I want you to be prophets. I want you to rely upon the spirit that I'm relying upon myself. Well, Moses calls, excuse me, God calls Moses and Aaron and Miriam to the tabernacle. They get called to the principal's office, okay? We got some things to correct here. And in verse 5, the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. Uh-oh, tail between the legs. He said, hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you. And again, Moses wants them everywhere, so do I. But if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision. I will speak unto him in a dream. God can and does reveal his will to pretty much anyone who's open to his promptings. And there's things from visions to dreams to spiritual impressions to priesthood blessings to whatever it might be. But, verse 7, My servant Moses is not so who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth. 
even apparently, not in dark speeches. Other translations say, I'll speak clearly, not in riddles. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then? In other words, why were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? This is the same Moses with whom God spoke face to face back in Exodus 33. As a man speaketh with his friend. This is not just my servant Moses. This is my friend Moses. And we go way back. He turned aside to see at the burning bush and he's been turning aside to see me ever since. And so it's not speaking darkly. It's not riddles. It's clear with him. Clear trumpet. That's why he's such a good trumpeter himself. Uh, mouth to mouth, face to face, friend to friend. Of course I believe in individual revelation, but I also believe in institutional revelation. There is a difference between what I say to the individual with inspiration and what I say to the prophets of God by way of institutional instruction. I'm balancing here, Miriam and Aaron. Will you try to strike a better balance yourself? Institutional revelation does not deny the fact of individual revelation, but individual revelation must not be allowed to trump institutional revelation. That's the balance. In fact, this blew me away, blew me away one year, uh, starting about year 2000, I think I did it for, I don't know, four or five years. I, would, I made this chart for myself to read a little bit of Old Testament, little New Testament, little Book of Mormon, little Doctrine and Covenants, and a tiny bit of Pearl of Great Price every single day in order to finish the entire standard works over the year. And so January 1st, I read Genesis 1, or started Genesis 1, and Matthew 1, and 1 Nephi 1, and Doctrine and Covenants 1, and Moses 1. Okay? And December 31st, I finished all the books. It was, a, it was cool, so I did it several years. And what I loved about it was it was really allowing me to, I mean, intertextuality was the name of the game and finding connections between Scripture, because I was in all the standard works every single day. And it kept them all kind of near to mind, right? Easier to remember. But the day, one day that blew me away was the day I happened to be studying Numbers chapter 12 in the Old Testament. I can't remember where I was in the New Testament or in the Book of Mormon, but it just so happened to be that day that I was in Doctrine and Covenants section 28, the same day I was in Numbers chapter 12. Big deal. Well, it was a big deal. Because in Numbers, excuse me, in DNC 28, it talks about Hiram Page, who's receiving revelations that, that are in, oh, that are contra against the revelations that Joseph Smith has received. But he's got his own little seer stone, and well, if he's got one, why can't I have one? And if he's getting a revelation, why can't I have a revelation? You see the parallels? It blew me away. I'm like, whoa, I'm reading the same story twice. Uh, one in, with ancient Moses and one with modern Joseph. And here's Hiram Page as a modern Miriam saying, why can't God speak through me? And in fact, Oliver Cowdery, as a modern Aaron, is siding with Hiram Page. And he's wondering, well, well, how come God can't speak on this side too? It's actually amazing because in, in DNC 28, the Lord even says, this is a revelation to Joseph and to Oliver. And he's telling Oliver Joseph is the leader here. He's my Moses, he's actually told. And Aaron, you're my Oliver. Excuse me, <laughs> flip it. And Aaron, Oliver, I keep messing up. And you, Oliver, you are my Aaron. Now, 
I read that strictly from a DNC 28 perspective, and it was like, yeah, Aaron, you're supposed to be the spokesperson. You're better educated than Joseph. So yeah, that's good. But what you share is by way of instruction, not by way of commandment. Yours are great speech, but don't, it shouldn't all be written as like the law of the Lord. And so I thought, ah, that makes sense. Okay, Joseph is Moses, Oliver is Aaron, and prophet, spokesman, we're good. But reading it in the context of, of Numbers chapter 12, there was a whole other angle to Oliver equals Aaron, and it was the complaining side. It was the willingness to step ahead and maybe outpace the pace of the prophet. And when I read those two on the same day, boy, was it an eye-opener that, yes, there is room for both levels of authority, but there are levels to this. And they, that need, needs to be kept in mind. Well, the cloud departs from the tabernacle. Miriam is cursed with leprosy. Not Aaron. We're going to see some issues with Aaron later on, uh, as we've seen previously. But that also suggests that Miriam was the instigator. She was the Hiram page here. Uh, and Aaron was just... It's kind of like Sam versus Lemuel. I don't know if there was really much of a difference in personality between Sam and Lemuel. They just picked different people to follow. And Sam wisely chose Nephi, and Lemuel unwisely chose Laman. Well, if Aaron is kind of a combination Sam-Lemuel, it just depends on who he's with. And he happened to be with a Laman today, and uh, tomorrow he'll be back with a Nephi. And so Aaron isn't punished here, but Miriam is. And she's punished with leprosy. Now, verse 11, Aaron says to Moses, Alas, my Lord! Catch what he called him. He just acknowledged real authority. I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. You see how he acknowledges his own complicity in the sin this time? It's not just, it just came out. It was the weirdest thing. No, he's using active voice. He's using personal pronouns, okay? But he asks, let her not be as one dead, as of whom the flesh is half consumed when he cometh out of his mother's womb. In other words, please don't make her look like a stillborn baby whose disease has consumed this body. Aaron is begging for mercy for his sister. And even though he's including himself in, in what has happened, he's hoping for her sake. Please be merciful to her. Now, in fact, Moses will follow suit and, and plead for mercy just like Aaron does. Even though he was the one that was sinned against, as another great example of him as mediator, as Christ type here. That even though you have sinned against me, I will plead your cause. This is the victim asking for mercy for the, per the perpetrator. And so he does. In verse 13, Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O Lord, I beseech thee. But the Lord responds, Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that let her be received in again. And sure enough, Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. Here's God balancing mercy with justice. Yes, some consequence is necessary. Really, I mean, even if it was something as small as spitting in somebody's face. Well, she's kind of spit in yours, Moses, and spit in mine, since I'm the one who chose you. There does need to be a consequence. But I understand your desire for mercy, and I'll honor it. Seven days. And I won't make the, the camp go forward without her. 
She won't be running through the wilderness trying to catch up. No, we'll honor her. She is Miriam, after all. A beautiful song of Miriam. Miriam, the prophetess. Even prophets and prophetesses have bad days. She'll change, and she does. Now, Numbers 13, then, and Numbers 14, in some ways, is the climax of the story of the book of Numbers. Because we're getting there. We're at the promised land now. It's only been about a year and a half, and it's time to see what it looks like across the river. God commands Moses to take a spy from each tribe. We're trying to create equality among the house of Israel, and so each tribe gives the same kinds of sacrifices. Each tribe now will provide a spy to go in and scope out the land. Uh, Can you name? There were 12 tribes, so there were 12 spies. Can you name? I won't ask for much. Can you name three of them? I picked three on purpose because I imagine a lot of you can probably name two of them. From the tribe of Judah, a spy named Caleb. And from the tribe of Ephraim, a spy named Joshua. Interesting, it would be those two tribes. Uh, Birthright and political power. Leader on the east, leader on the west, surrounding the house house of God, the tabernacle. But anyone want to try to give me a third? I'm not asking for all 12. Just give me a third, please, anyone. I've never met anyone that remembers any of the others. And there's a reason for that. Because Joshua and Caleb had faith. And faith is to be remembered. The other nine had fear. And fearfulness, that's something to forget. To understand what happens here, such a magnificent part of the, of the story of the Exodus, he commands these 12 spies in verse 18, go see the land. What it is, again, none of us have ever been there before. See the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many. See, we're going to have to measure the strength of the enemy we're up against. See what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad. I mean, does it really flow with milk and honey? See what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds. How easy is it going to be to conquer them? You'll see what the land is, whether it be fat or lean. How long can we live off the land before we have to plant our own crops? See whether there be wood therein or not. What kind of building materials are we, are we thinking about? And then the all-important counsel in verse 20. And be ye of good courage. Bring of the fruit of the land. That way by their fruits ye shall know them. You see, when it comes to pioneering, scoping out land you've never been to, ignorance is okay. This is how you overcome it. But cowardice isn't. There has to be faith to move forward. There cannot be fear holding you back. So cross the river. Scope out the land. Bring back the fruits of your, of your labors. Help us see what the fruits of our labors will be. But be strong. Be of a good courage. Which is counsel that will oh, find personification in Caleb and Joshua. Well, they go in. All 12 of them do. And after spying out the land, in verse 23, they came unto the brook of Eshcol. And cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bear it between two upon a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. So here are the fruits of their labors. Figs, 
Think about the cursed fig tree in Jesus' day, where if there's leaves, there's supposed to be fig fruit as well. And in that case, it was a hypocritical fig tree and only leaves and no fruit, and so God, the Savior cursed it. Well, here's actual figs. We didn't just bring fig leaves back. We brought the fruit. And so this sense of there's no hypocrisy. It's exactly what God promised it would be. This is amazing. There's pomegranates. Think about the hem of Aaron's priestly robes. This is a land of fruitfulness. There is seed everywhere. No wonder God wants us to go there to open our own pomegranates, to have seed ourselves like the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. This is a place that will, that will provide for that. And maybe best of all, the grapes. This is joy. This is rejoicing. But a, but a cluster of grapes so big that it took two guys holding a pole between them. This is like the staves of the Ark of the Covenant. And here's these two spies with a stick and one cluster of grapes hanging down from it. It's like they ran into the promised land and, and conquered the fruit of the loom guy, right? And now they're bringing him back hostage to tell the tale. Oh, this, this is a massive cluster of grapes. Like, would you like one? Uh, amazing what's happening here. They come back and, and that's all the, the news. All of Israel wants to find out. It took us a year and a half. We're ready to cross the Jordan River, ready to take the promised land. And I'm, oh, I'm, I mean, I'm getting a little tired of manna. I'm not going to say that anymore. Uh, I got really sick, literally, of quail meat. So, um, but grapes, pomegranates, figs, that's even better than leeks and onions. So let's, let's go. In verse 25, they returned, the, the spies did, from searching the land after 40 days. 40, good number. We're about to see 40 years. Here, 40 days. When was the last time we saw 40 days? Oh, yeah, 40 days and nights of rain with the flood. Ah, this is a period of, of purifying, of preparation. Oh, yeah, because uh, more recently, we saw the 40 days of Moses up on Mount Sinai. Had to do that twice. Sorry about that. Uh, fast month and a half. Way worse than Fast Sunday. But periods of purification and preparation and 40 days of scoping out this land. Now, 27, here's their report. And yes, they brought the fruit to back it up. We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. This is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, now if they would have stopped there, all would have been well, but they didn't. They went on, nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. And then it goes on and lists and the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites. In other words, yeah, the grapes are big, but the people are bigger and there's no way we're going to be able to handle this. Yes, the land flows with milk and honey, but if we try, if we test our luck and go over there, it will soon be flowing with our own blood because we can't handle the enemy that's, that's across the river. What have we done in coming this far? God's hand, his arm is too short and there's no way we're going to be able to combat and conquer the long arm of the people that are in the land of Canaan. Promised? No. It'll never be promised to us. To which Caleb responds, 
one of the two faithful spies, he speaks up first and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. He stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. There is the confidence of Caleb. Don't hesitate. We can do it right now. We don't even have to marshal our forces. If God be with us, then who can stand against us? Cross the river. Cross the Rubicon. Cross the Jordan. We have, it's God's promised land to us. And if we'll keep God's commandments, then God will keep his promises. I know it. So let's get marching. Meanwhile, the other 10 spies, we'll find out later that Joshua is right alongside him, seconding that motion. And yet the other 10, verse 31, no, we be not able to go up against the people. They are stronger than we. The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. Can you sense their concern? We can't do it. They're stronger than we are. They're bigger than we are. Both of which was probably true. But God is bigger and stronger than they as long as he goes with us. No, 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 no. They, we, we're grasshoppers in their sight. Just a bug to be squished beneath their feet. But did you catch how he said it? Yeah, you're grasshoppers in their sight because you're grasshoppers in your own. People tend to take cues from you as far as how they should perceive you. And if you have faith and confidence They'll usually look up to you. And if you have fear and feel like you're nothing, then they'll take the cue and treat you like you're nothing also. It's exactly what's going on here. And even when they said, that land eateth up its inhabitants. We saw before, and at the end of Leviticus, we'll see again today. Yes, it's a land that might eat people up. And it even might spew people out. We've gotten used to vomiting since the quail came. Ah, this land, are we worthy of it? It won't eat us up and vomit us out if we'll be true to the God of the land. So will we? In chapter 14, they make their decision. I wish I could say it was the right one, but it isn't. And in chapter 14, verse 1, all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. Not cried to the Lord for strength, but simply cried out of fear and sorrow. And the people wept that night. More than tears, also complaints. All the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? Same things they said at the shores of the Red Sea. And what they said at the, the waters of Mara and Meribah and so many other places. Seriously, come on, Israel. How many times does God have to prove himself until we trust that his arms are not shortened and he can do this? Moses is concerned about this. In verse 4, they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Forget Moses, we're out of here. And in verse 5, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces 
before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Oh no, we're in trouble. At least they're in trouble. Uh, and the, the, Moses who's so quick to mediate, well, how are you going to solve this one? They're not alone in this devastation. Joshua and Caleb stand up and rend their clothes. They, you're tearing me up. My heart is breaking because of your broken covenants, your broken faith. And so here I am tearing my clothing apart. And they say in verse 7, the land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. It's worth striving for. If, and here's the big if, if the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Let's focus on the positive, shall we? Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Talk about a great pump-up speech. This is faith over fear. This is the two over the ten. And if you'll simply trust in God, he is bigger than the inhabitants of the land. He will be with us. He will provide for us. All will be well. Fear them not. They're basically asking the same question Moses asked after the golden calf. Who's on the Lord's side? And you remember what happened in the aftermath of that? Some came running and others fell down in their fear and were consumed by it. I actually love the phrase also, they are bread for us. Earlier the concern was the people are too strong. They're going to eat us up. And for Joshua and Caleb, we're going to eat them. They're just bread. In fact, what has God been doing for the last year and a half? He's been providing bread from heaven. He's been giving us bread right outside our tent door. And he'll deliver these people to us as well. I think it was on my mission. I saw a Spanish translation of this. I've never been able to find it since. I don't know if I was reading some other book or some other commentary. But this phrase, they are bread for us. The translation I saw, I'll never forget. It was, los comeremos como pan. In other words, we will eat them like bread. Man, I wish I would have known that when I played my, my football days. I was a wide receiver staring across the line of scrimmage at the defensive back as they're just kind of talking smack to me. I would have loved to use that one. Te comeré como pan. I'm going to eat you like bread. And then go smoke them on a deep ball. Uh, there's something powerful about this. Just trust in the bread of life, the provider of every good grain. He's got this. Well, verse 10, but all the congregation bade stone them with stones. Oh, if we're going to die, if we cross this river, then better that they die than we do. And so they're rising up to go stone to kill Joshua, Caleb, Moses, Aaron, anybody that stands in their way. And now who comes to the rescue? As always, God does. Verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? How long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? Remember that phrase, by the way, how long? We'll see it again by the end of today's lesson. How many times do I have to come to the rescue? How many times do I have to prove myself? He goes on, I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them. 
and will make of thee a greater nation and, and mightier than they. Again, here's God pushing the justice, his justice, to the extreme. What will Moses do? Will you be a nursing father to them? Or are you ready to throw in the towel like God is pretending to do? In the next few verses, Moses does as he did before. Intercedes for his people. He tells the Lord about what will happen, just like he did with the golden calf. Oh, but if you bring them out here and destroy them, then all the surrounding nations are going to say, see, even God couldn't bring these people into the, the promised land. I guess our gods really are stronger than him. But better than that, Moses doesn't just appeal to God's glory with those kinds of words. He appeals to God's goodness. Remember we saw that in Exodus, that God revealed, Moses is like, show me your glory. And the Lord's like, I'll do you one better. I'll show you my goodness. I'll show you my long suffering. I'll show you my mercy. And here Moses pleads for that goodness as well. He says in verse 17, and now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great. According as thou hast spoken, there's glory, but here's goodness. Saying the Lord is long suffering. You just keep putting up with them. And of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. We saw that with Miriam's leprosy. But pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now, oh, please forgive them again. I know these people have been trying your patience from the day I reintroduced them to you. I'm sorry for that. I hope they'll be sorry for that. But please be merciful to them. In verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. So done, already forgiven. I'm not going to destroy them and start over with you. I'm not going to do what I said. I, but I'm not going to do what I want, which is to bring them into the promised land. In fact, that would be mercy robbing justice. So I will be just as far as doing what they asked for. I'll give them exactly what they wished. They had hoped either to die back in Egypt, that's too late for that, or to die in the wilderness, well then fine. They will. I'll let them pass since they did not pass the test of faith. In verse 21, as truly as I live, there's oath language. There's God swearing on his own existence. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So yes, someday we'll all need to have the faith to obtain God's promises. But until then, I'm eternal. I can wait. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, the ones who should know better, those miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these 10 times. Oh, God's keeping track, which means I guess they haven't fully repented since the Lord does remember these ones. Those who have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But, verse 24, my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. And the same would go for Joshua. I love how he puts it. Those two, they followed me fully instead of half-heartedly or intermittently 
or insincerely. He had another spirit on him, that same portion of spirit that God was giving from Moses to the 70 elders. And these two spies, it just, have you met people that just have a different spirit about them? A spirit of faith rather than a spirit of fear, a spirit of optimism rather than pessimism. People that focus on grapes instead of giants and pomegranates instead of problems. I'm grateful for people like that. I'd go on a trek with them any day. In fact, I have gone on trek with many of them. <laughs> they got me through it. And they could have gotten Israel through it too if they simply had believed and shared in that spirit and in that faith. Instead, here's the wander, wander, die principle. Oh, that generation isn't ready? Bummer. I was. I brought you here. You're on the banks of the Jordan River for crying out loud. You can look across the banks on the other side and, and see it. Can you smell that land flowing with milk and honey? You can see it right across the river. I brought you here, but you wouldn't come. And because I'm eternal, I guess I'll have to wait. So go ahead and wander, wander, die, wander, die. And I'll outlive you until some other generation rises in your place to give it a second chance. He says in verse 28, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. I'll give you exactly what you want. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, back from chapter 1, from 20 years old and upwards, which have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land, just like you said, concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein. Save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Did you catch what God called them? You're going to die in the wilderness. It's going to be wander, wander, die, wander, die, just like you asked for. Your children will grow up in their place and come back to these same shores, the same bank of the river, with two very old, old-timers, Joshua and Caleb. It'll be some interesting deja vu for them. Meanwhile, you will be buried in the wilderness somewhere. But notice the word, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Whoa. How does Paul refer to the human body in Corinthians? The temple of God. The temple of the Spirit. The body is a glorious thing. A physical gift. And yet here, how does he refer to their physical bodies? Yeah, your carcass. Yeah, I sense a little frustration here. Some righteous indignation. Okay? If there's no real spirit animating that body, if there's no soul, eh, you might as well be a carcass. And so they were. Verse 31, But your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, you weren't worried about them, you were worried about yourself, them will I bring in. Like I said earlier, they're going to march it, they're going to conquer it as the marching band, even more than just the, the conquering forces, them will I bring in. They shall know the land which ye have despised. He says it again in 33. Your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which ye search the land, even 40 days, each day for a year shall ye bear your iniquities, even 40 years. And ye shall know my breach of promise then your children will walk over just fine. 
I'll even part the waters for them. They'll have their own Red Sea experience. Do you get what the Lord is getting at here? The way he puts it, you'll know my breach of promise. You broke your promise, so you could not get the promised land. Your children will bear your whoredoms, your infidelities, your adultery against the covenant. You've been cheating on me. And so I cannot bring you in, but I'll bring them in as long as they're faithful. You see, that to me is the great tragedy of all of this. They had a choice to make. The 12 spies come back. Here's the grapes. Here's the pomegranates. Oh, here's the giants. Here's the concerns. But believe and God will be with us. And sadly, Israel trusted the fear of the 10 more than the faith of the two and succumbed to their lesser natures. And so God let them. And let them wander, wander, die, wander, die, because I can wait for a new generation. And so he does. The irony there is in that moment of realization of what God has just told them, there's some serious remorse on their part. Sorrow, although probably not godly sorrow. Just, no, 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 never mind then. It's okay. Uh, we'll go. We, we, sorry, we even ta we take back what we said. We're ready to cross the river. And God is, no, it's too late. You already made up your mind. It says in verse 40 that they, the people, rose up early in the morning and got them up to the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we be here, and we'll go up unto the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. So sorry. Uh, and we're ready to go. But now it's too little too late. God swore on his own life that there would be consequences to their decision that justice was there and mercy would not rob it. They would get just what they asked for. In verse 41, Moses tells them that. Wherefore now do ye transgress the commandments of the Lord? It shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that ye be not smitten before your enemies. He adds in 43, ye are turned away from the Lord. Therefore the Lord will not be with you. When Moses is like, well, you transgressed the commandment yesterday. Don't transgress it again today. Yesterday, God said, go. And you said, nope. And now God says, don't go. And you're going to go. Uh, I see one common thread through all of this wavering and waffling. It's that you don't trust God and won't do what he commands you. He says one and you'll always do the other. So this is not a good idea. He's not with you. Those giants really will eat you up and spit you out. And so they did. Verse 44, they presumed to go up unto the hilltop. They're still not going to obey God. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Okay, you're on your own then. Then the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites which dwelt in that hill and smote them and discomfited them even unto Hormah. In a way, there's, that is the whole book of Numbers in a nutshell of not hearkening to God, staying back when he went forward or going forward when he's telling them to stay back, murmuring against God and his prophets, wanting to do things their own way, suffering through fear at the expense of faith, and paying the price for it. We're going to keep seeing more of it. Chapter 15, story about breaking the Sabbath. In verse 30, the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, 
That was the same word that we saw at the end of chapter 14. They presumed to go up to the hilltop. If you do anything presumptuously, that's brazenly, defiantly, rebelliously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth, in other words, blasphemes the Lord. And that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Because he hath despised, in other words, considered it worthless, the word of the Lord, and hath broken his commandment, that soul shall utterly be cut off, his iniquity shall be upon him. There's an unrepentant attitude. There's pride and willfulness. There's presuming upon God's grace. And yes, you're going to cut yourself off if that's the case. And let's make it a little more concrete and show you an example of it. We just saw a collective example of it in the last chapter. Here's an individual one. Verse 32, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, we're now starting our 40 years, or I guess 38 and a half more years of wandering. They found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. They put him in ward, you're under arrest, because it was not declared what should be done to him. This had never happened before. This is like the man that blasphemed God during that fight between the two Israelites. And they didn't know what to do about that too. Well, now here's somebody blaspheming God, not through his words, but through his actions. What do we do here? And... Moses turns to God. Verse 35, the Lord says to Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died, as the Lord commanded Moses. Sabbath breaking under the law of Moses was a capital crime. They knew that. It was etched in stone, essentially. And for this man to presume, to defy, to rebel, to test the waters, so to speak, and say, ah, that would never actually happen. He's testing God's patience. He's testing the people's resolve. Because as we've said before, for the law to hold, the community must uphold the law. Well, they do, as commanded. In verse 38, God then commands Moses, speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. Now that seems to be kind of out of the blue, no pun intended, based on the color of the ribbon. We just finished stoning a capital criminal for breaking the Sabbath, and now you're telling us about sewing and what we're supposed to be wearing? Well, yeah, what's the connection? How often do you look at the clothes you wear, uh, the border of your garment, the edge of it? What is there? There's going to be a ribbon of blue. And what will the, that be for? Hopefully, that blue may be reminding you to look upward. You're looking down at the hem and they'll go blue up. God the, in heaven, yes, he's aware of everything I do down here below. We sometimes talk about tying a string around our finger to help us remember something. That sounds... What is like what is happening here? Because in verse 39, it shall be unto you for a fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which ye used to go a whoring that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. Here's a visible reminder, one that you will see frequently and hopefully it will help remind you of the invisible God. Reminds me of what Abinadi said to the wicked priests of Noah. 
wondering why does the law of Moses have to be so strict and all these little nitpicky details about what color of a ribbon you're supposed to have at the edge of your robe. Abinadi's response, therefore there was a law given them, yea, a law of performances and of ordinances. Why do you think Leviticus was so long and complicated last week? A law which they were to observe strictly from day to day to keep them in remembrance of God and their duty towards him. That's why. It's, he's too easy to forget. So I'm going to try to connect him to things you can't help but remember. In verse 41 then he adds, I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. I didn't do all that delivering just to be forgotten once you come to the promised land. And it seems that every time you forget me, you fall back into problems. It's what happened to the whole house of Israel at the shores or at the banks of the Jordan. It's what's happened here with this man. And I hope that one man can serve as an example, a cautionary tale for the rest of the house of Israel. Do not go and do likewise. Instead, remember God. Here's your sacrament prayer to always remember him. Well, chapter 16, how long is remembering him going to last? Well, if you know anything about Israel, not long. In verse 2 of chapter 16, you meet three rebels, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And their leaders from the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Reuben. Interesting, those two. Levi, priesthood tribe, so we're the spiritual giants here. Reuben, firstborn son of Jacob, so yeah, we should have more power than we do. They rose up before Moses, it says in verse 2, with certain of the children of Israel, 250. But notice how these 250 are described. Princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Compare that to meek Moses. You see, leadership is best trusted to people who aren't seeking it or for whom the leadership will not go to their head. Remember the caution in DNC 121 that as soon as you have a little authority, as you suppose, it doesn't even have to be real authority, you just have to think it is, then you start to exercise unrighteous dominion. And that's exactly what's happening here. These 250 princes, famous, renowned, how come Moses has all the power and all the authority? We should have more of it. And that's the same problem we saw over and over and over already. Well, notice the aftermath. Verse 3, they gathered themselves together against Moses, against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Exact repeat of the conflict with Miriam and Aaron. The same concern that Joshua and this boy had raised with Medad and Eldad. Moses is meek. I'm not trying to take more upon me. I didn't want this to begin with. Believe me, I kept trying to get out of it. And I saw the Spirit descend upon the 70 elders of Israel. I've been doing a lot of delegating ever since Jethro <laughs> whipped me into shape. I am not lifting myself up above anyone. I do want all the Lord's people to be prophets, but the only way they'll do it is by matching my meekness. Of course, he's not going to say that. Uh, but by being humble and 
qualifying for the spirit that only God can give. In verse 5, he says to Korah, that Levite, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his, the called, and who is holy, the worthy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. There's many are called, few are chosen. We're going to see the difference here. So Korah and his whole company of Levites is told in verse 6, Take you censers, put fire therein, put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. You take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. You accuse me of taking too much upon myself? God put it upon me. I am worried that it's you that is trying to take too much upon you. You're already sons of Levi. You are ministering. But to rise to the level of high priest like Aaron or prophet like Moses, that's not yours to decide. It's God's. So the Lord will choose and you'll be holy if God chooses you. Sound a little like the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu that we saw last time? Because they're, at, they're being asked, go kindle your fire. Go bring your incense. Go walk the walk and we'll see who God actually accepts. In Hebrews chapter 5, famous verse, it says that no man taketh this honor unto himself, speaking of the priesthood, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. And this way we'll give God a chance to call someone. You're going to be out there with your censers, your incense, Prayers of the saints ascending to heaven. We'll see which prayers God accepts that day. Now, verse 9, Moses then says to them, Seemeth it but a small thing unto you, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel, to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation, to minister unto them? He hath brought thee near to him, and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee. And seek ye the priesthood also? In other words, the high priesthood, you already have this Levitical order. You're not, you haven't been called to be the high priest. I love the way he puts it, seemeth it but a small thing unto you. Are you vying for position, aspiring to some kind of calling because that you think the calling you have now is beneath you? That it's too small? No, any calling is as big as... As you can imagine, I even worry sometimes about the word magnify our calling. Because we think of a magnifying glass making it bigger. And yeah, I want to magnify my calling. I want everybody to see what I'm doing here. No, there's another thing you can do with a magnifying glass. And it's concentrate the rays of the sun. That's more my kind of magnifying your calling. I don't care what people see. I'm not trying to make it bigger in the world's eyes. I'm trying to concentrate the power of God in this tiny pinpoint of opportunity God has given me. And if I'll do that, oh, there's, there's, there's a fire that will kindle. There's power that will come from the Lord. This is not a small thing you're being asked to do, even if you're just carrying one of the pins that keeps the curtains together. Understand who it is that called you. And now let's see who God really wants to call. Meanwhile, verse 12, Moses calls for Dathan and Abiram, the other two, but they refuse to come. Like, nope. They say to Moses in verse 13, Is it a small thing 
Ooh, are they kind of throwing that phrase back in Moses' face, a play on his words to Korah? Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? Except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us. Now notice what they just said. They're taking all kinds of words and throwing it back in Moses' face. Dothan and Abiram are, man, offender, making Moses an offender for a word? Oh, some small thing? That you have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey? Yeah, you keep talking about this promised land and its milk and honey. We miss the milk and honey of Egypt. Seriously? Back to the leeks and the onions and the cucumbers and the fish. The fish were free. You were not. You were tears in your eyes and they weren't onion related. Yeah, it was flowing with milk and honey, but it wasn't flowing to you. It was flowing to your Egyptian taskmasters. And you were under the imperial thumb. You begged for mercy and you got it. And now you're complaining about what I'm trying to give you? You're accusing Moses of trying to kill you in the wilderness when God, through Moses, has been meeting your every need? Oh, kill you in the wilderness? Well, remember the word carcass. It's coming. Except you make yourself a prince over us? That's exactly what Moses first heard the very first time he tried to intercede on the behalf of one of his own people. Remember when he stood up to the Egyptian who was smiting the Israelite, and he ended up killing the Egyptian. And then what did, how did they respond? Who made you a, a prince? Who made you a ruler? Who made you a judge over us? Well, I can answer that. God did. But in this case, are you really that warped? Are you really that far gone that you can't see what God is trying to do for you? Well, they were. In verse 14, they say to him, Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey, or giveth us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? Oh no, we will not come up. So not only are they complaining that you dragged us out of the land flowing with milk and honey, Egypt, and you haven't even been able to bring us into this so-called new land of milk and honey, to which Moses, I can picture him tearing out his hair, going, seriously? I picture Joshua and Caleb, like, so livid, righteous indignation. Why haven't we gone into the land of milk and honey? It's not us. That's on you. Because you wouldn't go with faith. You went with fear. Now you're going with, with greed and avarice and righteous, uh, excuse me, unrighteous dominion, ambition, vanity. Do not blame us for your failure to reach the promised land. Because if you would have done it our way, we'd already be there. There's something insidious about self-deception. It leads us to blame others for the very things we've brought upon ourselves or the very things we've done to them. Sin has that effect on us. And it's, it's happening to, to these three leaders and the 250 princes that are following them. And who knows how far that trickles down among the tribes. Well, the 250 bring their censors as commanded. Oh, maybe God really will pick us. We picked ourselves after all. They begin burning incense in them. And then the Lord tells Moses and Aaron in verse 21, separate yourselves. There's that key word for the Nazarites, right? Get out of here. I'm setting you apart. This time for a, in a physical way for a physical reason. Separate yourselves from among the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. 
And they, Moses and Aaron, fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? Again, they're asking God, please be very specific with your justice. And don't just rain down lightning bolts, so to speak, uh, so that everyone is consumed. Moses and Aaron continually are standing up for the people, trying to balance God's justice and his mercy. And, and please don't be angry at everyone when it's just been one man. Well, three men. Well, well 253 men. Okay, however many others are... Okay, sorry, maybe... Yeah, there's a lot of justice that needs to be meted out here. And it will be. God tells Moses to say to the people in verse 26, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. So you need to be separate. Who's on the Lord's side? Who? You've got a choice to make. Well, the people make the choice. They distance themselves from Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And now that they're at safe distance, Moses says in verse 28, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. See, this has never been about me. This was not a self-appointment on my part. This isn't a man-made authority. So I'm not giving man-made words. And we're going to see a consequence that is anything but man-made. I didn't choose to lead. I'm not going to choose to, to judge or choose to condemn I'm going to wash my hands of the whole thing and let God step in and do this personally. So verse 30, if the Lord make a new thing, can't be man-made, never happened before, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. Moses is stepping out of it. And immediately the earth opens up beneath the tents of these three ringleaders, they all fall into that pit and the earth closes over them again. Can you imagine? Earthquake, open, shut. It, it is an open and closed case, that's for sure. And they are now completely gone. Uh, imagine what's now spreading throughout Israel. Uh, this is like the, the death of Korahor, the smiting of, of dumbness to him. This is the death of Nehor, an ignominious death. I mean, it's... This is the end of, uh, of Sherem and the sign he wanted. Every Antichrist in the Book of Mormon. And the word begins to spread. And that's what's happening here. Meanwhile, what about the unholy men offering unholy fire? Well, some holy fire comes down and consumes them, just like it had happened with Nadab and Abihu. The 250 men that offered strange fire are consumed by true fire from heaven. And then the other priests gather up the censers that they had been using, these little shovels with the fire coals and the, the incense. They gather up these censers and beat them down and connect them together to form a new covering, cover, a tone, for the, for the altar. Interesting. Let the punishment fit the crime and then let the solution fit it as well in terms of we need something to cover our wickedness, cover our sins, cover our nakedness, cover the altar where we weren't sacrificing the way we should. And so they take what had been used as a tool of, of iniquity now to add additional layers of support to a true sacrificial altar of God. 
fascinating response to what these wicked people had done. Well, brace yourself, because in verse 41, shockingly, on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel, fill in the blank, uh, humbled themselves, uh, repented, saw the error of their ways. No, they murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, ye have killed the people of the Lord. What? The people of the Lord? God's not claiming them, because they didn't really claim him. And Moses didn't, <laughs> didn't kill them. He could, what, Moses parted the, yeah, what, Moses parted the waters, now he's parting the, the, the earth? No, God parted the waters, and now God opened the earth and closed them in within it. Don't look, you, look, you guys look at Moses in all the wrong ways at all the wrong times. And you misinterpret Moses and God in all the wrong ways. It, if you're feeling a little righteous indignation, a little frustration or impatience, uh, then you, you know how Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, and yes, God, feels about all of this. So again, God warns Moses to separate himself from the people so he can consume them all, to which Moses, ever the mediator, turns to Aaron immediately and says to him, verse 46, Hurry, take a censer, put fire therein from off the altar. True fire, by the way. Put on incense and go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron did so. He goes running. He stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. Still, in that short amount of time, between sin and consequence, or in this case, between sin and atonement being made by an outside intermediary, 14,700 people died in the plague. It wasn't the one man Moses had mentioned. It wasn't the three we met at the beginning of the chapter. It wasn't just the 250 priests, or excuse me, princes that thought themselves better than the law. This was 14,000 plus because sin is contagious. No wonder we tried to keep it outside the camp. Well, if that wasn't proof enough, how about number 17? More proof of the priesthood and who God has really called and chosen because they're choosing him. This one's an interesting chapter. God tells Moses to go among the 12 tribes and among a prince of each tribe, the leaders of the 12, take their rod. I mean, Moses, Aaron, has, they have their rod, right? And we've seen a lot of that since Exodus. But each one has a standard. And in fact, remember the family of the, the standard for each family, the ensign, the insignia? Bring them. And let's etch into the wood of that rod the name of that tribe. So now that we have all of them here with us, gather them in. Uh, we'll write down Aaron's name on the rod for the tribe of Levi. And verse 4, thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony, where I will meet with you. God's the one who's going to pass final judgment here. And it shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom. And I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against you. You see, God wants to prove this once and for all. So again, let me do something that no one else can do. We're going to take all of these tribal staves and stick them into the tabernacle where God will come down. And he'll make one 
blossom. Just a stick, and yet it will start to bud. In some ways, that's all you guys are, really, are instruments in my hand. You're just a walking stick, and yeah, I could do all the walking without you. But the one I touch, the one I choose, I send life into that lifeless piece of wood. I bring forth fruits by which ye shall know them. So let me do that in the, before the eyes of everyone. In verse 7, Moses did so. He laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And it came to pass that on the morrow, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded. But more than that, it brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds, <laughs> for crying out loud. Can I make it any more obvious that I've chosen the tribe of Levi? This mere stick really does have life in it, and it's producing actual almonds. I remember in Tennessee, and even in Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico, especially on my mission, it's so lush, and rain and humidity, anything will grow. And I saw sticks that were being used as fence posts with barbed wire connecting them. And some of those sticks, after a long enough time, just stuck in the ground started to bud and blossom. Never saw, any, well, no blossoms, no almonds. But I did see new growth coming out of it. It's amazing. If you can truly plant yourself in gospel ground and make sure you have access to living water, then a mere chunk of wood can bring forth fruit. I'm banking on that in my own case. I know the, the Lord's banking on that for all of us. There's a lot of almonds that need to grow to go around. And that's what's happening here. These are like branches being grafted into the true vine, like Jesus says in John 15, on the way to Gethsemane. In verse 10, the Lord says to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony, to be kept for a token against the rebels, and thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, that they die not. Here we will have yet another visible reminder of God's presence and God's will in their lives. We're starting to get more and more things on shelf one, if we want to use that example. More and more things to keep in the Ark of the Covenant. The tablets of stone will stay in there, a reminder of the law we must keep. The pot of manna is in there, a reminder that God really does provide day by day. And now we're going to keep as a token... Aaron's rod. I'm not sure if it'll still have the almonds on it or not, but we'll even lay that up before the testimony and keep it as a token to remind us whom God has chosen and, and that we need to trust in those divine designations. I've said this before and I'll say it here again. Don't forget that the ark and those three artifacts within it are covered by the mercy seat. If you've ever broken a law, a commandment, a covenant, be grateful that within that ark, those tablets of stone are still covered, atoned for, by the mercy and grace of God. If you've ever, that seems to be a sin of commission, if it's a sin of omission and you've forgotten the hand that feeds you, if you've neglected some manna or started to spurn the small and simple things God provides you with day by day, 
please know that above that pot of manna, there's still a mercy seat covering it. And if you, like me, in any position of leadership, have tried to lead but didn't always do it in the best way, if, if you didn't magnify a calling the way you should have or look back with regret at a, a moment of service that you didn't fully render, please know that the, of, the rod of Aaron is also covered by the mercy seat. And if you've been on the receiving end, sadly, of someone else's poor leadership, if you've felt neglected by someone that, that should have had more concern for you, or if you've been given counsel that didn't turn out to be the best imaginable advice, please know that their rods are in the Ark of the Covenant too. And that they hopefully tried the best they could and for whatever reason, if it fell short, the throne of grace is over them as well and will compensate for their mistakes and compensate for whatever you've suffered as a result. I do have a testimony of that. And so I love to think of these three tokens, these th three reminders that are there in the ark, covered by the mercy seat, the throne of grace. In verse 12, the people then say to Moses, Behold, we die, we perish, we all perish. Whosoever cometh anything, which means anywhere, anywhere near unto the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Shall we be consumed with dying? I wonder what to make of what they just said. Best case scenario, this is godly sorrow speaking. And they're saying, we perish, we perish, we are sorry. The sin be upon our heads, so to speak. It's obvious now who you've chosen, and we will trust divine leadership through Aaron and Moses. But I also wonder if this is not godly sorrow speaking, but the sorrow of the damned. Ready to just throw in the towel like, like Mormon's troops when he saw them sorrowing in the wrong way. I wonder, are they asking, we, we die, we, we perish. Is everybody going to perish? Are we going to be consumed with, with death? Man, it seems like everything you, you point your staff to ends up dying, Moses. Are we next? And if that's the case, again, I can picture a frustrated, sorrowful Moses saying, it's not my choice, it's always been yours. We'll see this next week with Deuteronomy. The choice is placed before you, and you get to choose life or death. So choose wisely. I'll add one other thing about this interesting story in number 17. I think it teaches a great lesson about decision making. Not just in terms of which priesthood tribe to follow, but I've got a lot of choices to make and a lot of them seem like pretty good options. If I've eliminated the worst, then I still probably have more things to, to pick from than one. And to me, there's something about this that if you will take, do your homework and carve out some rods. There's plan, here's plan A, here's plan B, or here's option C and D. And I'm trying to figure out which is the one the Lord would have me follow. And what do I do? Well, let's identify all these options. Then let's present them to the Lord. They took the rods to the tabernacle and laid them there before God's presence. So here's, I've done my homework. I'm weighing the options, I'm presenting them to the Lord, and then letting some time pass to see which one blossoms. Hmm. Spirit of Revelation, right? I will tell you in your mind and in your heart. What of those options seems to keep growing on the mind, start to deepen and, and bear fruit within the soul? 
It is amazing that if you'll present your options to the Lord and be patient, He really can help you see which one will grow and bear fruit. Because that's the one that you should go with. See, that confirming spirit that, yes, this is the best path to take uh, of all of those options that might end up bearing fruit. Good, good advice there in Numbers 17. Now, Numbers 18, the calling of the Levites is reconfirmed. I mean, how many times do we have to do this? Well, ask Israel. There's another one. Uh, here in chapter 18, the Lord repeats what he said earlier about taking the Levites to himself in place of all of the firstborn, down to the 273rd, right? Uh, making them responsible to serve the rest of Israel uh, at the tabernacle. In verse 6, they are given as a gift for the Lord. And in 7, I have given your priest's office unto you as a service of gift. Huh. So our service is a gift to God, but the chance to serve is his gift to us. This is like hot potato with gifts. Like, no, you take it. No, you take it. And the Lord will accept just to give it back to us so that we can be an instrument in his hands to bless other people. Reminds me of the great phrase from Moroni chapter 7, verse 2. When Mormon writes to Moroni and says... It is by the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and his holy will because of the gift of his calling unto me that I am permitted to speak unto you at this time. Do we feel that way? I always hear people get up to speak in sacrament meeting and complain. I wish we would do a little bit more like Mormon. What a gift that God has permitted me to speak to you. What a gift every calling is. And if I am trying to give gifts to God, the least I can do is receive the gift of his callings that he's giving to me so I can be of service to him and to other people. In verse 20, the Lord spake unto Aaron, thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. You see, that's the inheritance of the tribe of Levi. We'll see more of this in later on. You don't get your own chunk of land in terms of the tribal inheritance of the tribe of Levi. Because that would be confining the administration of the covenant. That would be restricting priesthood to one tiny portion. No, you're the leaven that leavens the lump, and everyone needs to have access to the priesthood. It's not about you hunkering down like, look, we're better than we have this authority. No, it's... I need to spread out among all my fellow man and woman to be able to bless them with what God has given me. So Aaron, you and your posterity, no inheritance in the land. Instead, I'm your inheritance. Which sounds like a pretty good gift. All that the Father hath shall be given unto you. There's oath and covenant of the priesthood, right? All ye sons of Levi. That's who he's talking to. It's also important to realize that sometimes when we turn to the Lord to accept his inheritance, saying yes to him might mean saying no to the world. We'll see that in a moment when we meet Balaam. That sometimes the word of God will keep us from worldly wealth, worldly fame, worldly inheritances. And I hope we can be okay with that. I'm grateful for what God has given me, the gifts of chances to serve. Then by the end of chapter 18, the people give a tithe, a tenth of all they have to support the Levites. And then the Levites turn around and give a tenth of what they've just received as a tithe to God. They offer it as a burnt offering directly to God. 
which lets you know no one's exempt from paying tithing. Uh, even those who live on tithing, as the Levites did, they're still giving a tenth of all their increase. It all belongs to God. Numbers 19 then gives us a very f interesting ritual about a red heifer. Perhaps you've heard of that, just the red heifer. What's all that about? Uh, it's a red colored cow. And in chapter 19 of Numbers, verse 2, the Lord says, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. Sounds like an interesting cow. It's going to be red, ah, color of sacrifice. Hmm. It's obvious, even from the outside, that this is a different kind of animal, one that is destined to be sacrificial. It's without blemish, so sinless. It's without spot. It's perfectly pure. It's never been yoked. Hmm. This one is set aside, separated, set apart for some special purpose. This is not a mere beast of burden. Hmm. Who are we thinking of? Who does this sound like? It's interesting that, uh, according to scholars, Red heifers are so rare that it might, at least without any spot, without any blemish, there might be parts that are red and so on, but completely red is so rare as to almost seem like a genetic abnormality. Or I could say it this way, a complete biological miracle. Hmm. Somehow this animal was born outside the norm. This is a miraculous birth. And I mean, to the point that even some have tried to trace the number of red heifers that have been offered according to Leviticus, excuse me, Numbers chapter 19, according to Jewish tradition from Moses all the way down to 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple after the time of Jesus, there were only nine red heifers slaughtered according to these specifications. That's miraculous. And again, to think of Jesus meant for sacrifice, pure, sinless, miraculous birth, totally rare, reserved for a special purpose. Well, what do you do with this particular red heifer? You sacrifice it outside the camp, Gethsemane, Calvary, outside of Jerusalem. You sprinkle blood upon the tabernacle. It needs to be sanctified. You burn the animal with, remember this triad, scarlet, and cedar and hyssop. There's our mini Passover model, okay? Its ashes then are mixed with pure, it's called running in, uh, in this chapter, pure water. And then that water, remember we did this in the jealousy ritual? You have water and mix it with the dust from the tabernacle and it's now bitter water. Well, this is now pure water. It's water of purification. And because of the sacrifice of the red heifer, and then this pure running water, you use it in rituals to, to cleanse people that have been pronounced unclean because of coming into contact with a dead body. This is a really specific thing in Numbers chapter 19. If that's the source of your contamination, if your life has been contaminated by death, then it's going to take the death of this red heifer to bring life back to you and allow you to resume your place in the house of Israel.
Fascinating chapter. Chapter 20 then. Here's Moses. And what's he up against? Same as always. Uh, more and more murmuring. It's like every once in a while you get this great moment of just here's God and here's blessings and here's amazing miracles. And then just wait a chapter or so. And we're back to Laman and Lemuel. Sure enough, verse 1, the camp of Israel moves forward. They come to a place called Kadesh where Miriam dies. She's buried. But in verse 3, sadly, there's no water there. And any guesses what's about to happen? The people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Wait, wait, really? You wanted to go up with the 14,700? You wanted to be swallowed up in the earth with Korah and his kin? Seriously? It took Moses and Aaron pleading with God and offering an, uh, an offering to make atonement for them. You wish they hadn't done it? Just because you're thirsty? Wow. They go on. Why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle die there? And wherefore have ye made us to come out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? <sighs> You'd been begging for deliverance in Egypt. They say, it's no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates. Neither is there any water to drink. Well, yeah, because it's on the other side of the Jordan. There, I, there were figs and pomegranates. I brought you proof. But your fear eclipsed your faith and you wouldn't move forward. It's interesting that these Israelites are looking at their past with misplaced nostalgia. That life of bondage was not as good as you're remembering. Believe me. They're looking at their present with bitter pessimism. There's nothing to drink here. We might as well die. And sadly, they're looking at their future with faithless fear. I'm stuck. There's nowhere to go, past, present, or future. Whereas God can help us out of our past, through our present, into a glorious future if we'll just trust in him. Well, what happens here? Moses and Aaron seek the Lord's help, as always. In verse 8, God tells Moses, Take the rod, gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. God sure seems to be calm there. That's a good thing. It's okay, Moses. Rough moment. I get it. Just go before them, bring the rod, speak to the rock. Remember when you smote it back in the wilderness and water came out? Remember casting tree, the tree into the waters of Meribah and, and bitter becoming sweet because of that sweet tree of life? Well, let's go do something similar. I always give you very specific instructions. Throw in the tree, smite the rock. This one, just speak to it, but before everyone. And with this kind, that's sometimes all you have to ask. You don't have to fight for things. Just ask. Pray. You need water? Then have the faith to ask me for it. Don't go around complaining that it's not there. Exercise your faith. That's always been the problem here. I'm trying to give you a chance to build it. So simply speak to the rock. Ask for what you need and it will flow forth freely. Well, verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. So far, so far, so good. And he said unto them, uh-oh, you're not supposed to speak to them. You're supposed to speak to the rock. But Moses says, hear now, ye rebels. Uh-oh, he's going off script. What's happening? Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock. 
twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. <sighs> Can you picture Moses venting a bit and hitting that rock, kind of getting his frustration out of himself? Well, God did honor the need, and the water did come forth, but Moses, that's not how I asked you to do it. Verse 12, the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Now, I've wrestled with this story a lot because it seems so harsh a consequence for so minor an infraction especially considering all they're up against. I can't blame Moses, but God did, so I can't blame God. So what am I supposed to learn from all of this? Let's take it piece by piece. Hear now, ye rebels. There's Moses venting when he was meant to rise above it. I can't condemn Moses for it because I do it sadly too often myself. In moments of frustration or impatience, Sometimes I do, I don't say here now ye rebels, but sometimes I get frustrated with my children when they're not obeying. Sometimes I say things I regret. And yes, I do apologize to my kids after the fact. And thankfully it doesn't happen too often. But I wonder, does it not happen because I bite my tongue or because they are just doing what's right? There have been times where I've in frustration, said to my wife, if these kids would just obey, I, I'm really patient with obedient children. My wife and I call this parental publicanism based on the Sermon on the Mount when the Lord says, if you only love those that love you, how easy is that? Even the publicans can do that. So it's like, oh, if you can be patient with kids that require no patience, big deal. You're a parental publican. Everyone is patient with people that don't require patience. Oh, what about the ones that seem more rebellious. Can we rise above that? Or are we taking the bait? Are we falling prey to the natural man just because they have fallen prey to the natural man? I did have an interesting conversation with one of my children not too long ago where they had done something they shouldn't have done and I reacted in a way I shouldn't have reacted. And we both came to our senses kind of independently. We were both for feel, feeling bad and licking our wounds and feeling sorry for the other person. And I remember speaking to this child and saying, you know, there's something interesting about giving in to the natural man or woman. It's contagious, sadly. And when one person gives in, the other person feels justified in giving in as well and responding in kind. And then it keeps spiraling downward and downward and downward until one of them decides to absorb the natural man action or attitude from the other person and not pass it on, not to throw it back. Just accept it, metabolize it, rise above it, and reverse the cycle so that it starts climbing back up because overcoming the natural man is contagious too. And if I vent, they'll just vent back. And if I don't vent, they'll usually calm. It, it's amazing how that works in interpersonal relationships. So that's one mistake on Moses' part. The other phrase, must we? No, you were just supposed to speak to the rock. Tell, ask God to provide living water. 
and let the people see that you're sanctifying me as I'm providing for you. Maybe one of these days they'll learn to do likewise. But no, must we, Moses, yeah, with just, even just a slip, used the wrong pronoun. He took a bit of credit. Are we going to have to do I've had to do this so many times, and now I've got to do it again. It's like, no, 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 it was never you, Moses. It was always God. And I've learned that we no longer shine once we claim to be the light. That if we will give God the credit every time, then water will keep flowing through us to meet the needs of thirsty people. But if you get in the way of the light, assuming to be the light yourself, then what have you left people in? In shadow, in darkness. And that's not what Moses is called to do. When he smote the rock, instead of calmly calling upon it, is he turning to some kind of physical force when words alone are all you're supposed to rely upon? Back to DNC 121. What happens? No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. No physical power, no threats, simply persuasion, long-suffering, meekness, gentleness, love unfeigned. Words, just speak to them. Teach them correct principles. Let them govern themselves. I'll point them to God, the Word Himself. By the time this episode ends, it's time to continue on their journey. They're no longer thirsty. We can leave this rock. They continue on toward the promised land. Now the direct route is going to lie, lie through the land of Edom. And Edom is descendants of Esau. So hey, Jacob, Esau, our ancestors got along great. Yeah, there was some friction. But at the end, this beautiful reconciliation. So the leader of the Israelites, Moses, speaks or sends messengers to the leader of the Edomites, their king, and says in verse 14, Thus saith thy brother Israel. Remember, our families go way back. Thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us. So let me remind you of our relationship. There's an appeal to fellowship and loyalty. Let me remind you of everything we've been through. So here's an appeal to compassion and empathy. He reviews more details about what they've been through on their sojourn from Egypt and then asks very, very humbly in verse 17, let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. We are trying to be as good neighbors, as good brothers as we possibly can be. We'll just stay on the path, won't go left, right, won't eat your stuff, won't cause any problems. We'll, we will leave no trace except some footprints on the king's highway to make sure you don't stand at any loss for our passing through. And to be <laughs> neighbors along those lines, that's pretty amazing. Sadly, in verse 18, the king of Edom responds, Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with the sword. Wait, what? Seriously? Moses asks again, equally calmly, equally kindly. I promise if anything goes wrong, we'll pay for it. Okay? Any, any damage, there will be no trace of our passing through. But again, the king of Edom refuses. In fact, he sends an army to go fight the people of Israel which then forces Moses and his people to turn and go find a different way. 
I guess we're not, the direct route will never really be ours. People are standing in the way of that. It really is a heartbreak considering that this really is Jacob and Esau. And they did figure out how to get along, but now their descendants can't. Sound like Ishmael and Isaac that learned to get along at the, at the funeral, the burial of their father Abraham. But now the descendants can't get along to see the conflict between Jews and Muslims, between Israelis and Palestinians there in that same promised land. Are we learning? By the end of chapter 20, Aaron dies. Moses takes the high priestly garments from him, passes them down to his son Eliezer. And for 30 days, the house of Israel mourns Aaron's passing. We're seeing a passing of the guard. Miriam passed away recently. Aaron is now gone. Time is passing far faster than just the turning of pages in the book. And there's not many old timers left. There's more and more carcasses strewing the way along the wilderness. And Moses is still around. Joshua and Caleb are still around. But that prior generation, they're dropping like flies. Part of it is their own doing. Most of it, in fact. And we see that in chapter 21. Famous, famous chapter, the story of the brazen serpent. Israel, avoiding Edom, still working its way toward the promised land. A Canaanite king attacks them. Israel promises to fight if God will deliver them. And he does. All is well. So they continue their journey still further. Then in verse 4, the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Only one verse after God delivered them from an enemy. But yeah, it happens quick. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Those always seem to be the whipping boys. And take out my frustration on God. I don't believe in him. Take out my frustration on the prophet. Don't want to follow him either. And they say, wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Not this again. For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. That's the manna. Are we looking every gift horse in the mouth? Are we complaining about everything God has provided for us? Just because it's not exactly the kind that we asked for? What do you mean there's no bread? I give it to you every morning. Oh, not that light stuff. What do you mean water? I just I spoke, smote, I know, sorry. You've had water every time you've asked for it. But here they are frustrated yet again. In verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Dropping light flies, like I said. Now, fiery in that verse, uh, same with two verses in Isaiah. The word translated as fiery is actually the word seraphim, which is the word for some kind of heavenly being. We've got cherubim and seraphim. And there's the cherubim, these heavenly creatures with wings overshadowing the altar excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant, seraphim are, must be some kind of similar heavenly being, but of a fiery sort. Uh, it's mentioned twice in the book of Isaiah, like I said. Actually, it's referred to as, well, several times in Isaiah, because Isaiah 6, he sees there's Isaiah in the temple, and seraphim are there to burn the iniquity out of him. Interesting. They have six wings, he says. Two, they cover their, their feet, there's humility for you. Two, they cover their, their head, their face. There's reverence for you. With two, they fly. There's a willingness to go serve for you. That sounds like heavenly messengers. 
And later in Isaiah, twice he speaks of fiery serpents, fiery flying serpents, in fact. And the word there is seraphim as well. So are these literal snakes? Perhaps. I don't know. Are they fiery in a literal way? Perhaps. I don't know. The fire might actually refer to the, the sensation, the burning you feel from the venom that's coursing through your veins. That's a possibility too. So how literal, how figurative, how natural, how divine? Oh, I'm sure the answer is yes, a little of everything. But here they are suffering as a result of their own sin. They admit it in verse 7. The people come to Moses and say, we have sinned. Oh, finally, important admission there. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. So this is a very specific confession. They're realizing what they've done. So pray unto the Lord, they beg, that he may take away the serpents from us. So they knew that help would have to come from God. And they turned to their mediator, the prophet, to seek it. And what did Moses do? He prayed for the people, willing to intercede, as always. Verse 8, the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent. And set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. I mean, no questions asked, just totally trusted, acted immediately. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. That's it? Yeah, that's it. And the rest of the chapter just describes Israel's movements toward the promised land. They ask the Amorites if they can pass through, and they're rebuffed, just like always. They fight the Amorites, they defeat them. Later they and or fight and defeat the people of Bashan. It's just the story continues. It's amazing how short this quick little episode with the brazen serpent is, when for many people it's the one story they remember from the book of Numbers. Well, it is worth remembering. It's actually worth pausing here and thinking, turn aside to see what's up with these fiery serpents. In fact, the way Nephi describes them, they are fiery flying serpents. That goes on, uh, together with what Isaiah said and with seraphim and so on. And for the Nephites, they looked back to this story about looking and living often because it was a lesson that they needed to learn. To Laman and Lemuel, again, true Israelites in the worst possible way, uh, Nephi says in 1 Nephi 17, 41, God did straighten them in the wilderness with his rod, for they hardened their hearts, even as ye have. And the Lord straightened them because of their iniquity. He sent fiery flying serpents among them. And after they were bitten, he prepared a way that they might be healed. And the labor which they had to perform was to look. And because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. Fast forward to Alma. And what does he teach the apostates he's trying to reclaim? Alma 33, 18, These are not the only ones who have spoken concerning the Son of God. Behold, he was spoken of by Moses. Yea, and behold, a type was raised up in the wilderness, that whosoever should look upon it might live. And many did look and live. That's good to know. They weren't all hardened of heart. But few understood the meaning of those things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. Many still did. But there were many who were so hardened that they would not look, therefore they perished. Now the reason they would not look is because they did not believe that it would heal them. From Alma, it sounds like there were various levels of hardness of heart. Some so hard 
they refused to even look. Some soft enough, enough they looked, but still hard enough they didn't quite understand what they were looking at. And then soft enough to look and live because they understood what they were looking toward. Fast forward one more time and you get Nephi, son of Helaman, who says in Helaman 8, Yea, did he, Moses, not bear record that the Son of God should come? And as he lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, even so shall he be lifted up who should come. And as many as should look upon that serpent should live. Even so, as many as should look upon the Son of God with faith, having a contrite spirit, might live even unto that life which is eternal. That's beautiful what Nephi and Alma and Nephi, the later Nephi, are teaching their people and teaching us about this beautiful story. Because Moses doesn't, at least not according to the book of Numbers, Moses doesn't explain what this is all about. And neither does he say it to his own people. Maybe he did, and it's just not on the page. But he certainly doesn't say anything to us about it. It's just, they looked and they lived, and now we can move on and keep trying to make our way to the promised land. I'm grateful for this clarity. This is looking to the Lord and living. And what is it that keeps us from that? Not believing that it would work? It's too simple. It's too easy. When I was in the MTC, I got the best talk, the best piece of reverse psychology I think I'd ever received. When one of our, I think in the MTC presidency, was giving a talk at a devotional and just talked about how simple missionary life and work really was. How simple to keep the Spirit with us. But he kept saying to us, it's so simple, you probably won't do it. Simple things like keeping the mission rules. Simple things like following the commandments. Simple things, stay with your companions. Simple things... Study your scriptures every day and pray and give God your all. So simple that you probably won't do it. And I just remember as a 19-year-old, just full of zeal, like, I'm going to do it because it's that simple. And his reverse psychology worked on me. Well, whatever kind of psychology is happening here, it's not working on a lot of the people. I look at a, bra a brass serpent, a bronze serpent that Moses made, stuck on a stick. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's really going to help me. In fact, serpents were the cause of this problem. Why on earth would I look back at a serpent thinking it's going to heal me? No, this is illogical. It's nonsensical. It's too simple. It's too easy. I don't believe it's going to happen. They lacked faith. They lacked a contrite spirit. And that's really what God is after. Yeah, this might sound nonsensical. Will you just believe? Will you just look? This might sound... It's like, how on earth are we going to protect our families from the onslaught of worldly wickedness in our day? And you picture the prophets going, oh, I got a great idea. What do you say we, I don't know, get together maybe on a Monday night and sing some songs and share some stories and have some treats? And we're like, huh? I'm up against the powers of evil in high places. A song and a game? Yeah. You'd be amazed. Just look and live. Just give it a shot. Exercise some faith. Have a humble enough spirit that you'll do it the Lord's way. How's your way been working out for you, Israel? Yeah, not so good. But even back to that idea of why look at a serpent when a serpent was the cause of my problems, maybe he's making a point there. Maybe it's a matter of quit trying to run away from your sins. 
sit with them for a while. Let this bitter water settle into your belly and see if it swells the way it should. So that pricked by your own conscience, you can make some changes and turn to the Lord. Oh yeah, turning, looking, living. That's what repentance is all about. This whole story is just about repentance. So maybe I do need to face my serpents, face the devils within me, and try to root them out by turning to the source of light and life. Then again, another element here, just more layers of symbolism. I wonder, is the serpent, we just automatically assume the serpent's a bad thing. Uh, we're kind of wired to be scared of snakes. And in the Garden of Eden, there's good reason, right? But Satan is such a counterfeiter. Makes me wonder if he's ever actually come up with anything purely original. So maybe he was sending this slithering serpent as a trick. Because when you think about it, serpents actually could be amazing symbols for God. For resurrection, in fact. Because what do serpents do? They're able to shed their skin, to leave their former body, and yet go on living. Hmm. And in some ways, this is Satan just making another counterfeit, pulling another fake. So I do wonder if perhaps this is also an element of truly look to God. The God that can give you new life. The God that can pull you out of your surroundings. Shed your sinful skin. And give you newness of life. If you'll look to him. If you'll come unto him. Some did. Some didn't. And that's true of us too. Now, speaking of metaphors and truths writ large and symbol, the next three chapters give us a chance to see an amazing story and to see beyond the story to an interesting symbol. These next chapters, 22, 3, and 4, are the story, is the story of Balaam. Most famous for Balaam's ass, he had a donkey that ends up speaking to him. We'll see in a moment. Strange story. In context, Israel is working its way toward the Promised Land. They keep going through foreign territory, right? It's all inhabited. Edom doesn't want us. Uh, what about the Amalekites? What about the Bashanites? There's all these different tribes, and they're passing their way through. Well, Balak is the king of Moab. And Moab is another one of those places near, it's on the eastern side of Jordan. It's east of the Dead Sea. And Israel is coming around that way to come into their Promised Land, and and Balak, king of Moab, is really nervous about it. He's heard what's happened to the Amorites. He's freaked out about that. So he says to some of the elders of Midian, I don't know if they're kind of teaming up on this. He says to them, this is chapter 22, verse 4, Now shall this company lick up all that are round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. A little like, te comeremos como pan. <laughs> We're going to eat you like bread. There'll be bread for us. Well, they'll be able, they're going to lick us up like an ox licking the grass. You see, it's all about perception. The Israelites felt like grasshoppers, so people looked at them like grasshoppers. Here, these people perceive Israel for what they really are. This is the mighty people of God. Do we see ourselves as that? So, Balak sends messengers to Balaam. Balaam is probably how you pronounce it in Hebrew, but we'll call him Balaam for English speakers. Now, who's Balaam? It's hard to tell. 
because on the one hand, he keeps invoking the name of Jehovah. He's, he prays and blesses in the name of the God of Israel. But he's not an Israelite, and that we need to keep clear. He's some kind of diviner, you could say soothsayer, you could say you know, wise man, so to speak. Uh, someone at least that other people see in him, he's got some kind of connection with the gods. And when he says something, it tends to happen. So let's trust him. In fact, let's hire him. Later in the story, it says he's from Aram, so Aramea. There's that where Aramaic, the language, comes in, which is some kingdom north of Israel, modern-day Syria, Turkey, Iraq. Uh, in the story, though, think of Balaam as a metaphor for Israel. He's not an Israelite, but he's speaking on behalf of the God of Israel, like an Israelite should. He knows the talk. He knows what God to invoke. You'd think that he's one of the go-to guys, chosen people. But as Paul warns us, not all of Israel is of Israel. And that's definitely the case with Balaam. But think of him as a metaphor as we go through this story. Now, in verse 6, the king of Moab, Balak, sends the messengers. They say this to Balaam. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I wot that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. Wonderful. You're my kind of guy, Balaam. I've heard great things about you, that man, when you say the word, it happens. So would you mind coming down, and there's a group of people that I'm scared to death of, and I could use some divine help, and so you're my, my middleman. If you'll come and curse them, I'll pay you for it, which to me is so interesting about Balak, that really, you, rather than seeking God's help to make you better, you're trying to seek God's help to make them worse? That's interesting. So often we fall into that. If I can pull down somebody else and I rise up just by way of comparison, oh, no confidence in, their, in his own ability. So let me just try to shred my opponent. Verse 7, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. So here's the payment price. They come unto Balaam and spake unto him the words of Balak, which is the definition of priestcraft. I'm going to pay you to do something. Something that involves God in some way, but is leading people away from God instead of towards him. We have to beware of that. Even the thought that money can influence God's will man, they're missing the boat. Uh, but I might be able to influence Balaam's will. There's an option. Well, Balaam tells him to spend the night so he can have some time to turn to the God of Israel. I guess there's probably a bunch of gods he, he's used to working with. Let me, it's going to take me a while to go through my contacts. Uh, but once I'm tied in with their God, then I'll let you know what he has to say. And sure enough, God says to him, he actually gets on the other line. Verse 12, thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now with that, the story could and should have ended with Balaam simply saying to them, Oh, sorry, can't take your offer because it's not going to work anyway. These really are God's people, and he's going to bless them. So, sorry. Actually, Balaam does go ahead and tell them that. So far, so good, right? Uh, there are times where Israel heeds the words of the Lord. But how long does it last? 
And sure enough, in verse 15, Balak sends yet again princes, more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus saith Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. For I will promote thee unto very great honor. I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. See what Balak's up to? He's hoping that Balaam will waffle on this one, like Israel always seems to do. That's why Balaam is such a good metaphor for the house of Israel, for us, sadly. We're the Balaam in this story, okay? Let the guilt sink in, and hopefully it'll help us repent. But Balak is trying to sweeten the deal. I couldn't tempt you with this much. How if I tempt you with this much? I'll send more princes than before. I'll send you more honorable princes than before. You understand what I'm willing to give you? I'll promote you to very great honor if you'll just do me this favor. And we've seen Israelites struggling with wanting the honors of the world. We've seen princes and men of renown wanting to be kings with greater renown. And is Balaam going to fall prey to this? Well, we'll see. Verse 18, he answers, Sorry, if Balak could give me his whole house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, that's a great statement if it would have ended there. Instead, he went on in verse 19. Now, therefore, I pray you, tarry ye also here this night that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. Sound a little like Martin Harris and Joseph Smith with 116 pages. Yeah, I know he said no, so sorry, I can't do it, but stick around. Let's, let's ask again. Maybe he'll change his mind. Really? Change his mind? Does God change his mind on these things or does he just give in to you since you won't change your mind to submit to him? That seems to be what's going on. It was never a good idea to give 116 pages. God didn't change and just go, oh, you were right, Joseph. Thanks for giving me a few more chances to come to my senses. No. But at a certain point, I think God, like most parents, realizes, you keep pestering me, fine, do it your way, because you're going to end up doing it your way anyway. And that seems to be what's going on here. So, verse 20, God does come to Balaam that night. Says unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them, but yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. It really makes me wonder, is this God speaking or Balaam rationalizing? Hard to know. Because that's what he's really wanting. Remember the first one? Don't go with them and do not curse them because they're blessed. And I wonder if here Balaam is justifying, rationalizing, going, well, what if I went with them but didn't curse them? Hmm. I could, you know, see what it is that Balak has to offer. Maybe he'd pay me at least for the trip. I can cross the first line. I definitely won't cross the second. Okay, so stick around, wait around, and God's like, oh, is that what you're thinking? Fine, I'll, you're, you're trying to speak for me? Well, now you're really speaking for me. You're telling yourself that this is all okay. But that's his plan. I'm going to inch my way closer and closer to the line. But I won't cross it. Okay, I'm good. I'm good like that. I won't do anything that God doesn't tell me to do. Even though I'm doing something God told me not to do by going with him. Verse 22, God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Which again is why I wonder if that was, it doesn't sound like God is giving him that earlier message. I think this really is Balaam just putting his words in God's mouth. We sometimes do that. We sometimes struggle with, is this my idea or is this God's? 
And sometimes when it's, oh, but it's what I really want to have happen. That just might be confirmation bias. That just might be self-induced. And it's not the spirit. Okay? Real, when the spirit is truly there, there is discernment. There's a difference. Well, God's angry, sends this angel, right? And here's where the story becomes famous for us, the story of Balaam's ass. He's riding a donkey. Now, I've wondered if Balaam is symbolic of Israel and symbolic of us, hard-hearted, stubborn, wanting to do our own way, then who's the donkey that they're riding? Who's the beast of burden that is doing most of the work here? that Israel, that Balaam is relying upon. Ooh, is Moses the donkey here? Even worse, is God the donkey here? Have we just made him our beast of burden? Get me where I want to go. I, otherwise, I should have just stayed in Egypt the whole time. Interesting. Well, Balaam's riding this donkey. The donkey sees the angel. Balaam doesn't. This angel that was standing as an adversary has a drawn sword and so recognizing this, not the way to go, the donkey turns off the road into a field. And Balaam's so frustrated. I didn't pull you in this direction. What are you doing? That it starts to, that Balaam starts to smite it, okay? Hit it with its stick. So again, back on the road, the donkey's moving forward and the angel appears a second time. This time, a little better placement because it's in this narrow gap between walls. So... Yeah, no big chance to be able to turn away into a field this time, Balaam's donkey. So what's it do instead? I, he still sees the angel, still sees the drawn sword. We're both going to die here. And so he just turns however much he can and <laughs> smashes himself into the wall. Smashes Balaam's foot against the wall. And that really gets Balaam frustrated. So he starts beating it again. And they continue the journey. Third time the charm or three strikes you're out, you be the judge. The donkey sees the angel yet again, sword in hand, again in a place that there's no escaping from. Have you noticed that often God will put you in a place where there's no more avoiding the consequences of your dumb decisions? This is the waters of the Nile turning to blood and, oh, we'll just dig around it and make our own wells. It's fine. I'll just turn aside. Nope. You're now face-to-face, head-to-head, with, with consequences. You're staring the piper in the face, and he deserves, he demands to be paid. So what's the poor donkey going to do? There's nothing I can do. Oh, well, I guess there is one other option. I will just collapse right here at my, just on the ground. And I'm not going to go forward or back or left or right. I'm just going to go straight down and, and fall with, with Balaam on top of me. Now, Balaam's super ticked. For him, it is three strikes and you're out. And so what does he do? He keeps beating this poor beast of burden. And then verse 28, the Lord opened the mouth of the ass. And she said unto Balaam, what have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the ass, which is hilarious to me, totally unfazed. Like, wait, wait, how did you speak? No, he just says, well, I'll tell you why. Because thou hast mocked me, I would there were a sword in mine hand, for now would I kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said, Well, nay. 
You understand what the donkey is defending herself with? I've always been a good donkey, haven't I? Have I ever led you astray? Again, picture Moses saying that. Picture God saying that. Have I ever not provided for you when you needed it? Have I ever brought you down to destruction? No, I'm delivering you from it. I have carried you every step of the way. Trust that I'm still doing right by you now, even though it doesn't seem like it. It's amazing how fast we turn on God, despite all of his evidence of caring and loving and lifting. But no, not in this. He's cursing me. He's falling down on the job. He's leading me in wrong directions. He's hurting me. No, he's not. He's saving you because he sees things that you cannot. That's what a seer does. Well, as I've wrestled with this story, sometimes comically I think to myself, you know, if God can make one donkey talk, he can definitely make another donkey shut up. And maybe there's stronger words for donkey here. Because this does shut the mouth of Balaam for a while. Uh, What's going on here? Because what happens next in verse 31, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. Just like he opened the mouth of the donkey. Just like he'd opened the eyes of the donkey all the way through. Now, finally, Balaam sees what the donkey saw all along. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand and he bowed down his head. Nice time for some humility. And he fell flat on his face, just like the donkey had fallen flat moments before. You see, the angel then tells Balaam, this donkey saved your life three times. Why would you beat it for that? And Balaam responds in verse 34, I have sinned. I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displease thee, I will get me back again. Now, sounds good, sort of, what he said. I'm so sorry, I have sinned. We noticed that, that even Israel had admitted that a time or two. And yet, acknowledging sin and overcoming sin are two different things. And here, when Balaam is saying, I'm sorry, I did the wrong thing. I'll tell you what, if you really don't want me to go forward, then I guess I'll go back home. And right there, I can picture the angel ripping his hair out, going, uh... Are you seriously still asking if you should go forward? Three times and now you get it? And now, or do you get it? Evidently not. You're still wondering? Again, this, is this God speaking or is this Balaam rationalizing? Like, ah, oh, maybe I shouldn't go forward. I don't know. I mean, I've had three answers very clearly recently beyond the first answer that was crystal clear. But, you know, when I keep pushing my luck, God usually gives in. So I'll give him another chance to rethink this. Uh, If you really don't want me to go, I'll go back home. Verse 35, whether it's the angel speaking to Balaam or Balaam speaking to himself, here's the word, go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Okay, I'm going to cross the first line, but I promise I'm not going to cross the second. Again, does this sound like Pharaoh, who is us, saying, no, I'm not going to let the people go? Or maybe I'll let them go a little, but not too far. Just these ones. Come and then come back. Ah, so much rationalization, justification. I just don't want to repent. And that seems to be what's happening here. Then he finally makes it. Balaam gets to Balak, and Balak says to him, this is verse 37, Did I not earnestly send unto thee to call thee? 
Wherefore camest thou not unto me? Am I not able indeed to promote thee to honor? You see, that's really what he wants weighing heavy on the heart and mind of Balaam. He's trying to get Balaam to weigh more the risks and rewards of what the world has to offer. Oh, the honors of God or no, the honors of men. What I can really give you here. Verse 38, Balaam said unto Balak, Lo, I am coming to thee. Hey, better late than never, I'm here. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God putteth in my mouth, that shall I speak. Oh, there you are again, Balaam, saying all the right things. That's what always confuses people. Like, this has got to be a true prophet. I mean, he's, he's I'm only going to say the things God puts in my mouth. Well, the real question is, will you obey the things God puts in your heart? Because <laughs> it doesn't seem like you're doing that. Interesting that so often we keep putting ourselves in harm's way because I'm not going to cross the ultimate line. I wonder how close I can get. Speaking of the ox licking up the grass, we seem to be sticking our head through the barbed wire fence trying to lick the furthest piece of grass. But I'm still inside the farmer's field. I'm still on my side of the line. Mm, are you? Maybe, maybe not. That's how chapter 22 ends. The story continues on without a, a break in chapter 23. Balaam tells Balak, okay, let's try this. Build seven altars, offer a bullock and a ram on each one. Because I know enough about Israelite customs, I guess. I've, maybe I've heard some stories. That, that's what they do. Their God really seems to like the smell of burnt bullock and ram. Seven also seems to be a really good number as far as Israelites are concerned. So let's go with that. Seven altars, seven bullocks, seven rams. And I'm like, seriously, Balaam, are you trying to bribe God? Are you trying to sweeten? I mean, Balak sweetened the deal and it worked for you. Maybe if you sweeten the deal with God, it'll work with him. And so that's what he's trying. Well, God says to Balaam to say to Balak, this is verse 7. You said to me, come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. But how shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? How shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him. From the hills I behold him. Even from this great distance. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. They'll be set apart. They're a peculiar people. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel, their seed like the stars in the sand? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. That is a beautiful passage of praise and of blessing and of honor. This is that's almost as good as the priestly prayer and blessing we saw earlier on in the book. And it's coming from Balaam. To the people of Israel. Beautiful. Well, is it? I mean, he ends up blessing who he had intended to curse. And is that on him or is that on God? There's great stories in early church history where people were opposed to the Latter-day Saints. And they would send, this happened in England several times with Wilford Woodruff and others. They would send the constable to go arrest the Mormon missionaries. And, you know, these constables wanted to keep the peace. But... They didn't want to drag them off of the pulpit or the stand. And so they're like, well, I'll stay and wait for the sermon to be done. And then I will or escort them off to prison. And repeatedly, it would happen that by the end of the sermon, the constable wasn't there, to, didn't arrest them. 
Instead, they went and asked to be baptized by them. Uh, that didn't work quite according to plan. That backfired, and the same thing is happening. It backfires on Balak. Balaam, what are you doing? I'm paying you to curse Israel. Why on earth would you bless them? And Balaam's like, well, it just, I opened my mouth and let it be filled, and that's what God filled it with. I can only say what God said. Well, at least that part seems to be true. In verse 11, Balak said unto Balaam, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast blessed them altogether. Well, sorry, can't help it. This actually reminds me of Acts chapter 5, when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, are just up in arms against Peter and John and all those who are preaching of the, of the resurrected Lord. I thought we got rid of him. Ah, he just keeps coming back. And Gamaliel very wisely says to his fellow Jewish leaders, Refrain from these men. Let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. That seems to be Balaam's response. I'm just saying what God is requiring me to say. You want to fight against him? Be my guest. But you're fighting against the true God. I, I get that. Well, again, Balaam says, I can only say what God puts in my mouth. So Balak says, well, maybe it's the angle here is off. Let me take you somewhere else. And so he takes him to a different place in hopes of getting a different result. Do we sometimes do that? No, I don't want to do it that way. Then let me ask God from a different angle. Let me approach this problem. And again, he builds seven altars, offers a bullock, a ram on each one. Let's keep sweetening the deal. And verse 19 to 24 is the next round of what was meant to be a curse and ended up being a blessing. God tells Balaam to say to Balak, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? In other words, God can't be bought. He can't be bribed. He's not like me. He's not like anyone. Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed. I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. Now, either they repented and the Lord remembered it no more, or maybe from Balaam's outside perspective, like, well, they haven't done anything really wrong, nothing that I'd consider bad. Either way, the Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. That's actually a wild ox, better translation. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, even the kind that I'm trying to, to weave. Neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? If I remember correctly, those were the first words that were tapped out in Morse code as they passed over the lines, the wires of the telegraph. What hath God wrought? It's incredible what he has accomplished, not us. And that's the sense you're getting from this next round of prophecy and blessing from Balaam. Now, how's Balak going to feel about that? You can guess. Verse 25, he says to Balaam, neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. Just, just forget the whole thing, okay? But even Balak doesn't forget the whole thing. He takes Balaam to yet another location, and let's just try one more time. It's amazing how persistent we are in trying to avoid realizing we're on the wrong path. And now chapter 24 begins. Verse 1, When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, 
He went not, as at other times, to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. Makes me wonder if he's starting to rethink this whole life as a, not a hired gun, but as a hired God, so to speak, or one who wants to hire God against others. He's not going to divine like before. He's not going to seek for enchantments. He starts wandering off in the wilderness. At least sets his face there like, no, I think I'm done here. I've seen the error of my ways and I'm going to go home. Maybe sacrifice and worship and prayer and prophecy isn't what I thought it was. Maybe it's not about me changing the mind of God. Maybe it really is about God changing my mind. Go read the Bible Dictionary entry on prayer, and it gives us that, <laughs> that clarification. I think Balaam is starting to get it. I'm not trying to, to change God's mind. I'm trying to win God's good graces. And not by offering sacrifice to bribe him, but rather out of sincere worship just wanting to understand and follow his will. So in verse 2, Balaam lifted up his eyes. He saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and then repeats it, the man whose eyes are open hath said, I finally see. He hath said, which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. That whole set of verses was talking about himself. But what is he describing? I see, I hear, I'm starting to get it. I'm seeing as God sees, my eyes are finally opening. And so what's the ultimate blessing Balaam will give? Verses 5 through 9. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. As the valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of lion aloes, which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. There's the prosperity. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So there's posterity to add to prosperity. Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. Balaam's finally getting it. Now Balak, as expected, is absolutely livid. Verse 10, I called thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee thee to thy place. I thought to promote thee unto great honor, but lo, the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. That is such a powerful phrase. Has the Lord kept us back from honor? Or only honors of a particular kind? Is he trying to prepare us, reserve us for the honors only he can give? Because God will honor those who honor God. The world is the one that is trying to honor us in things that are not honorable. And sometimes God is holding us back from those things. If you think about the great story about Hubie Brown being kept, held back, the honors of of military rank advancement being held from him and how frustrated he was. This is the God is the gardener story. And God did keep him back from those particular honors, but was reserving him for honors of a far higher sort. Elder Maxwell commented on this verse in an amazing talk called the tugs and pulls of the world. And that's what Balak is using to try to tug Balaam in the wrong direction. Elder Maxwell said, granted, some sincerely wish for more power in order to do good, 
but only a few individuals are good enough to be powerful. But craving power and the spotlight sucks out the spiritual oxygen, leaving some past feeling. Strangely, though desensitized, some are still able to hear the beckoning click of a TV camera at a hundred yards. Doesn't the churning over the places of mortal power remind us of the childhood game of musical chairs? Actually, discipleship may keep the honors of the world from us. As Balak told Balaam, I thought to promote thee unto great honor, but lo, the world hath kept thee back from honor. The rouge of recognition is so easily smeared anyway. We wince as we watch those once flattered by the world, like Judas, being used, despised, and discarded. Thus, while granting the deserved role of commendation and praise, we must not forget the words of Jesus about the recipients of mortal honors. They have their reward. That was October of 2000. I was at the beginning of my career teaching, and I just remember really being struck by that phrase. I don't think I'd ever really caught it in the story of Numbers chapter 24. But Elder Maxwell, how oh, that stuck in my mind at an important moment, not to care about the honors of the world, and that God might hold me back from some, but only to give me something better. And I believe in that. I'm still holding to that, to that promise. Well, ba Balaam protests. I told you this from the start. I told you from the very beginning I'd only do what God told me. In verse 13, if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandments of the Lord to do either good or bad of mine own mind. But what the Lord saith, that will I speak. Again, the best imaginable words. I love the language of Balaam. It's just, I don't know about the life and if it's backing it up or not. In verse 14, he says, Now behold, I go unto my people. Come therefore, and I will advertise thee what this people shall do to thy people in the latter days. So this is going to be Balaam's last message. Okay? Sorry I couldn't qualify to get that house full of silver and gold, but let me give you one last word. And it will be latter day related, which is interesting. We don't know much uh, about uh, Balak uh, and the people of Moab anymore. They've kind of gone the way of all the earth. But Israel still stands. And as the house of Israel is preparing the earth in these latter days, what did Balaam see of us? Verse 15, The man whose eyes are open hath said. And then he gives the same preface as last time. I finally have eyes to see. And this is what he sees. I shall see him. But not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. This is a prophecy for a future day, latter day. There shall come a star out of Jacob. Here's light, here's direction. And a scepter, there's power and authority, shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession, Seir shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. It's like his people will finally become like him, like this star, like this scepter. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion, and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. This is a prophecy of Christ. The star, the scepter, 
but it's a millennial Messiah that he's referring to. Because this is not what happened during, during Jesus' mortal ministry. It is what will happen during Jesus' millennial ministry. Coming in glory. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. And Israel will do as valiantly as her king. That's what we need to be preparing for. We can't afford to be Balaam's. We need to have eyes to see and ears to hear and the willingness to move forward in faith. Now, if we ended there, we might think, okay, at least Balaam saw the error of his ways and he left and didn't accept all of their treasures. And, and God withheld him not only from Balak's honor, but withheld him from his own self-destruction. I do believe God does sometimes do that with us in his mercy. But Balaam's end suggests a different path for him. In fact, a cautionary tale as suggested by many others. We saw a bunch of examples in the Book of Mormon of prophets looking back to the brazen serpent and telling their people to look and live. Well, in the New Testament, there are three examples of prophet apostles looking back at the story of Balaam and warning their people, do not be like him. One is in Revelation chapter 2, as John is writing a message to the church at Pergamos. He says, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. It's like, I can't curse them, but that doesn't mean I can't tempt them. Uh, that way I can cause them to curse themselves. What kind of stumbling block did he teach Balak to cast? Well, here it is. To eat things sacrificed unto idols, there's idolatry, and to commit fornication, there's adultery or infidelity. There's the lusts of the flesh. There's wanting the wrong things from the wrong sources or at the wrong times. There's worldliness. And so according to John, that's what Balaam was up to. Yes, he'd say the right things, but then kind of behind the scenes, okay, Balak, I'm sorry, I can't get God to curse them, but I think we, there is a way to get them to curse themselves. I can't turn God against them, but I think I can, you could turn them against God. And the best ways to do it is with all this stuff you're offering me. I mean, it's kind of working. And if I'm the metaphor of Israel, it'll work on them too. Oh, work towards moving them in the direction of worldliness and wickedness. Don't send curses their way. Send wealth. And they might fall for it. Don't oh, actually do this. Send your daughters. Oh, forget princes. Send your daughters and tempt them. Have them fall prey to fornication and indulge in idolatry. And God will not be able to give them the blessings that he always intended. By the way, it's interesting, John would be writing this to the church at Pergamos. Pergamos, I call it the, the ancient equivalent of Boston because it was a place of great higher learning. And Boston's an amazing, I love Boston, it's a great place. Uh, high academia, intellectualism. But sometimes that leads us to seek the honors of the world. And Pergamos, the word parchment comes from that. Okay, I had the second biggest ancient library other than Alexandria. It was supposed to be a second Athens in Asia Minor. Oh, pretty good choice on John's part to say, it's you people I'm most worried about following the example of Balaam. It's the intellectual elite. It's the worldly wise. 
It's the movers and shakers. It's the princes and men and women of renown. Be careful about worldly honors. Ah, that siren song can sound pretty loud in your ears. That was John. How about Peter? Second Peter 2. He, speaking of his people, he worries, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Oh, interesting language there. Even a dumb donkey could see, but a dumb prophet couldn't. He was the mad one, not just angry, beating his, his mule, but, but foolish, crazy, thinking he could go against God. And for what? For the wages of unrighteousness? Because he loved those and was so pulled by them? Maybe I won't cross the ultimate line, but can I cross enough lines to get as much of what the world has to offer and still end up with all that God has promised me as well? Can I get the best of both worlds now and then? I hope so. Careful. One last example, book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, there's murder and get gain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, there's worldly honors over honoring God, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor, which is Korah, Dathan, Abiram, seeking authority over others, like we saw a few chapters ago. Interesting that Jude would pull out all those examples from the Old Testament, two of which we've studied today. Are we falling prey to that in these latter days? And is it keeping us from doing valiantly to prepare the earth for the coming of Christ? We've got to be better than Balaam. We've got to get past worldly honors and seek the blessings of God. We're almost done, my friends, uh, if you've been enduring it well. Chapter 25, more on idolatry and adultery, since that's what these New Testament prophets were warning, or apostles were warning people about in their day. You see, Balaam's intended curses didn't work, like I said. But Balak's temptations sure did. 25 verse 1 and 2, Israel abode in Shittim. Interesting name. That's the wood of the tabernacle. But they're drifting from that because the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab, Balak's people. They called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. Exactly what I was, we were being warned about by Peter and by John and by Jude. You see what Balak's new plan is? Thanks to some of the hints from Balaam, evidently. Oh, we can't defeat them physically. Let's take them down spiritually. If we can't turn their God against them, let's turn them against their God. We can't take away their lives militarily. So let's try to convince them to follow our lifestyles. No more opposition. That'll just harden them against us. Let's go with invitation instead and just lead them slowly down to hell along this downward spiral. Now, adultery and idolatry were both capital offenses according to the Mosaic Law. And the people knew that. They had sworn to the covenant, all that the Lord hath commanded us, we will do. Well, did they? Here they are brazenly breaking those two of the Ten Commandments. Other gods, you must have none other before me. And yet they're eating 
food sacrifice to the Moabite idols. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Here they are committing fornication with the women of the land. And so God commands Moses to pass judgment and execute the guilty. And they proceed to do so. But in the midst of all of that, talk about brazenness. Verse 6, Behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the tabernacle of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. You want to talk about defiance, open rebellion, in your face, iniquity. And to think how they got to this point, flaunting their behavior, either underestimating God's justice or overestimating God's mercy. But to borrow the phrase from Korahor's people, lifting up their heads in their iniquity. Here are people that are worthy, righteous, experiencing more godly sorrow for what other people have done than what the ungodly are experiencing themselves. They are at the tabernacle weeping before the door. I am so sorry for what the house of Israel is doing. You ever felt that way? More sad about someone else's sin than the sinner is feeling themselves? Well, that's Moses and Aaron and others. And here comes this Israelite dragging a Midianitish woman alongside in their face and in everyone's sight. I couldn't care less about the consequences of sin. I don't think this is sinful. How could they get to that point? Look at this detail. Verse 14 and 15. The Israelite man was a prince of a chief house among the Simeonites. And the Midianite woman was a daughter of a head over a people and of a chief house in Midian. Makes you wonder if their pride is lifting them up above the thought of consequence. Oh, I'm sure I can buy my way out of problems. Got to pay the piper? Fine, I got plenty to pay him with. I'm important here. I'm a chief. I'm a prince. I'm in charge. And so the commandments of God are beneath me. It is sad, I think, even in our society in these days, the rich and the powerful sometimes feel like law and justice consequence is for the lowly, the lesser. And that's perhaps what's happening here. Well, verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, so this is Aaron's grandson, when he saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the tent where this fornication was going to take place, he thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. I should have done spoiler alert, uh, graphic imagery here. That's a brutal verse. And even though it says the plague was stayed, this is like, remember when Moses is so concerned that God's going to consume all of Israel because of Korah and Death and Abraham. And Aaron rushes out with this incense and true fire to compensate for the strange fire. And a plague is stayed, although 14,700 men died as a result of it. In this one, Aaron's grandson comes rushing in to try to honor justice and, and end this plague that was spreading throughout Israel. And he did, but only after 24,000 died in that plague. So the consequences of sin, what they're bringing upon themselves, 
starting to make sense why there would be so many carcasses in the wilderness and a new generation wholly re uh, replacing the previous one because they are dropping like flies based on their own wickedness. What Phineas had done here, there's clear judgment, quick justice, ending iniquity, if I can borrow the language of, of, the, of the execution, trying to nip iniquity when it was still in the womb. Picture this javelin being passed through this woman's belly. I know it's graphic. I'm sorry for that. But to try, nothing else is working. This is Mormon at the end of the Book of Mormon. If I go soft, if I soft pedal their sin and try to go with mercy, then they, it just makes them more desensitized. If I use hard language, they just get angry. I, I'm darned if I do, darned if I don't. And here, nothing is working to help Israel fully change. And here, 24,000 die. And lest you think that Phineas has done a bad thing. Again, we, we don't handle things like this in our day, like this. Uh, remember, we're trying to get up to a terrestrial level of living here. But for now, it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. For now, it, these are capital crimes. And he is administering justice. In this case, look at verse 11. God honored Phineas because he was zealous for my sake. God gave him a covenant of peace and the covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God. Now, please don't, like I said, don't take this literally in terms of how do I apply this to myself? No, no vigilante justice here. There is a fine line between zealous and overzealous, a fine line between being bold and being overbearing. A fine line between justice and being so judgmental that we don't give anyone a chance to change or time to repent. This man was not the repentant type. In your face, Moses. In your face, congregation. Right before the tabernacle. And I am flaunting my filth in front of you. The chapter then comes to a close. 16, the Lord spake unto Moses saying, Vex the Midianites and smite them, for they vex you with their wiles, wherewith they have beguiled you. Beguiled? There's Eve and the serpent. And vexed by the world's wiles? Oh, Balak was far more successful than he initially dreamed of being. And Balaam's influence was worse than he imagined. The day will come where he pays for, for that with his life as well. We see that in Numbers. Moving on to chapter 26, though. Time to renumber Israel. Like I said, the people have been dropping like flies for the last 25 chapters. Back in chapter 1, we had our oh, just over 600,000 fighting men. But a lot of time has passed and a lot of deaths. And now that this first generation of Israelites have almost all gone the way of the earth, where are we now? Chapter 26, verse 2, take the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and upward throughout their father's house, all that are able to go to war in Israel. In some ways we're asking how many casualties have there been and how many new replacements have grown up in their place. Again, each tribe is listed. Main families within those tribes are enumerated. One that I think is interesting is verse 33. Within the tribe of Manasseh, you meet a guy named Zelophehad. 
And he had no sons. That's what he's most famous for. But he had daughters. And we get their names here. The names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala and Noah and Hogla and Milcah and Tirzah. They're remembering women amidst all of these names of father and son and father and son and he begat him and so on. We're going to see why that's important in the very next chapter. But to take time to recognize everyone. We're not just numbering men, we're recognizing women as well. And that's important. It's even important in verse 46, the name of the daughter of Asher was Sarah. Now, we don't know anything else about her. At least we'll find out more why the daughters of Zelophehad are mentioned. But Sarah, the daughter of Asher, there's no reason why you and I need to remember that for later. And yet, it was important to Asher. It was important to Sarah. And I love the fact that we still have those names canonized in Numbers 26, verse 46. Jump ahead to 53. God then says to Moses, Unto these the land shall be divided for an inheritance, according to the number of names. To many thou shalt give the more inheritance. To few thou shalt give the less inheritance. To every one shall his inheritance be given according to those that were numbered of him. Bigger tribes need bigger land. Makes sense. Smaller tribes can have smaller inheritances. That makes sense too. There can be, equi there can be equality without equivalence. And we can treat everyone fairly. That's what consecration is supposed to do. Then verse 51, back up a few verses. These were the numbered of the children of Israel, 600,000 and 1,730. Now back in Numbers 1, there were 603,550. Now there's 601,730. So less than 2,000 difference. That's another one of those miracles like we saw with the numbering the Levites and the firstborn. This one, it's almost an identical house of Israel as far as its size, as far as its physical strength, strength in numbers, if you can say. Uh, the group that's actually going to conquer the promised land was no bigger than the group before them that could have. Because it was never numbers, it was never arm of flesh that mattered anyway. The real question is spiritual. And will this group be more faithful than their parents? Will they be ready to, to step forward? Or will they succumb to their parents' fear? See in verse 64 and 65, Among these there was not a man of them, whom Moses and Aaron the priest numbered, when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness, and there was not left a man of them, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. I guess we could add Moses to that, but he's not going to make it across the Jordan River either. And we saw why in his experience, smiting the rock when he should have gently spoken to it. This is a complete replacement. This is a total second take. And to see if faith really does outlive fear, well, here you have a generation to personify it. Honestly, I am waiting for a generation to do just that. Ready to conquer the promised land? Ready to redeem Zion? Ready to follow God? Well, chapter 27, now we see why we mentioned the daughters of Zelophehad just a few moments ago. In verse 2, the daughters of Zelophehad, they have no brothers. They come forward and they have a question for Moses. 
See, the law is new, and so we've got a lot of precedents to set. And they stood before Moses, and before Eliezer the priest, and before the princes, and all the congregation, by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, and they're going to raise their issue, their big concern. But I love who they're approaching. Moses and Eliezer, there's political leaders and spiritual leaders. The princes, there's local leaders. The congregation, there's the people. At the tabernacle, ah, there's God. I'm not trying to get around or work behind the scenes. I'm out in the open, not trying to make myself, myself an exception to the rule. But I really do feel like I'm in exceptional circumstances. And I would love, rather than just coming up with some new game plan for myself on my own, I would love to hear everyone's opinion on this. I want to do this above board. If I feel like I'm different, or if I feel like a change of policy should be implemented, I'm not protesting here. I'm seeking guidance from leaders, general and local, and people, and God himself. This is a good approach when you differ over something. This is a gentle place to be spiritually and just trying to understand what about me? With all of this, they go and ask this question. Our father died in the wilderness, Zelophehad did. He was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. He, he died in his own sin. So yes, he wasn't perfect. None of us are. But he wasn't a rebel. He wasn't destroyed by God in that way. But when he died, he had no sons. So here's our question. Why should the name of our father be done away from among his family? Because he hath no son. And here's our proposed solution. Give unto us, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our father. These women are so far ahead of their time. I love the daughters of Zelophehad. This is women's rights. These are exceptional circumstances seeking specific reconsideration. You see, if, if inheritance passed from father to son and there are no sons, then our father is forgotten. And he receives no inheritance for his posterity, even though there is some posterity and you're looking at us. Is there a way that we could receive that inheritance instead? Well, verse 5, Moses brought their cause before the Lord, like he's had in so many other places where we don't have anything established. That's a great question. I love that he doesn't automatically assume, well, no, of course not. You're women. That, it's, this is for men alone. It's like, no, there's, your, your concern makes total sense to me. Wow, okay. I'm glad you thought of this. Uh, I, I hadn't. That wasn't my circumstance. And so thank you for bringing this to my attention. I'm not going to pass... Oh, hasty judgment in one direction or the other. He brought their cause before the Lord, and the Lord spake unto Moses. And this is what he said. The daughters of Zelophehad speak right. Thou shalt surely give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren, and thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. God honors and provides for his daughters as much as he loves and honors and provides for his sons. I hope you sisters feel that. I can't convince you of it, but God can, if you'll turn to him, as Moses did. And God can say to you, you're right. You're equal. All is... I, I love that statement. The daughters of Zelophehad speak 
right. So honor them. To, are we open to other people's perspectives and experiences? And are we open to God weighing in on those things? That's key. Sometimes we only do one at the expense of the other, and that can go in either direction. There's a, a contrary here too. The Lord then expands that, not just for the sake of the daughters of Zelophehad, but this is a new precedent, and it will then create a new rule for those in exceptional circumstances. Okay? If you don't have any sons, then the inheritance goes to the daughters. If you don't have any brothers, then it goes to siblings. If you don't have any siblings, then it goes to uncles and aunts. It, none of those, it goes to the next of kin. We're trying to honor what it is that people have been promised. Then in verse 12, the Lord says to Moses, Get thee up into this Mount Abarim. See the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. And when thou hast seen it, thou also shalt be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother was gathered. And in case you forgot why, for ye rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin, in the strife of the congregation, to sanctify me at the water before their eyes. Moses, I know what you did was understandable, but it's still not excusable. And I'm not punishing you eternally, but there is a consequence. Where much was given, much is required, and you don't get to go into the promised land. I'm not going to go back on my word on that, but I do want you to see it. You deserve at least that much. In fact, now that I think of it, wait another millennia or so, and I'll meet you at the Mount of Transfiguration. How's that? Uh, you and Elijah will appear to Jesus and Peter, James, and John, and you'll finally get to come west side of the Jordan River. Deal? For now, anyway, come see. I want you to see where you've been headed this whole time to catch a glimpse of your glorious destination. Verse 16, Moses responds, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. It almost feels like Moses, where are you coming from with that? Do you understand what God just said? Moses, you're not going to go into the promised land, but I want you to see it. And there's no, oh, thanks so much for letting me see. Or, come on, I can I really not go across? He doesn't push back. He doesn't protest. He doesn't try to justify or explain himself or ask for reconsideration. He completely trusts God and trusts his judgment, trusts his limits, which lets you know just how close to God Moses really is. And who does he think about instead? Not a word about himself. Instead, he simply says, what about the people? I know it won't be me, and that's okay. But they need someone. This was the shepherd of the sheep of Jethro, and a good shepherd for the flock of God. Please give them a new shepherd. They'll need someone. And God agrees. Verse 18, the Lord says to Moses, Take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thine hand upon him, Set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and give him a charge in their sight. And thou shalt put some of thine honor upon him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. Here we see the passing of the baton. 
Now, we still have Deuteronomy next week. Uh, and, and so all of next week's is kind of this final message from, Joseph, from Moses, excuse me, to the people to renew, uh, reconfirm everything that he's taught them through a lifetime. But we're getting to the end of Moses' story chronologically, historically. And so the thought of Joshua taking his place, we'll see him in two weeks, right, when the book of Joshua comes. But for Moses to lay his hands on him, to give him a charge before all the people, to give him some of his glory. To me, it's frustrating to think of people who set up their successor, not for success, but for failure. To leave the cupboard bare, to leave things in disarray or a mess, to try to go out on their best moment and someone else to come in on their worst. And that's not Moses. Here's a man keeping the first great commandment, honoring God's decision here, and keeping second great commandment, honoring loving the people, wanting them to be well lit, led. And so let me honor Joshua. I'll lay my hands on him. I'll lift him up in the eyes of the people so they know following him is just like following me. So do that. I had heard in a fireside once that Arnold Freeberg had given, the great painter, of all those Book of Mormon paintings and Bible paintings, and he was the costume director for Cecil B. DeMille's great classic, The Ten Commandments. When they were filming this scene of Moses ordaining Joshua, Cecil B. DeMille, according to Arnold Freeberg's memory, was a little bit confused about what Charlton Heston should do with his head. Yes, you put your hands on, but do you look down at Joshua? Do you look up at God? What do you do when you pass the mantle of authority? Well, Arnold Freeberg knew. So, well, we do this all the time in settings apart and priesthood blessings and ordinations and so on. You don't look up at God as if you're hoping that God will honor your request. No, you're authorized. You know you have that authority. So you look down at the person you're giving it to. And with that confidence, knowing you have authority from God to do it, you bestow that authority upon the next person. And Cecil B. DeMille liked that. And so it went. Uh, Numbers 28 and 29 then unfolds pretty quickly with sacrifices and Sabbaths and holy days. Chapter 28, the Israelites are reminded to offer the daily sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Sabbath, sacrifice at the start of every month, sacrifice at Passover, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the sacrifice of the Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost, lots and lots of sacrifice. Now, there's the ritual calendar. And then 29, don't forget Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Don't forget the Feast of Tabernacles, those high holy days. Make sure you offer sacrifice then as well. And then Numbers chapter 30. You've got to keep your vows. You've got to keep your oaths. But he says some interesting things about it. Verse 2, he reminds the people, If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. You said it, then do it. Keep your word. Keep your covenant. But here's an interesting exception. Now, this might sound sexist, misogynistic. Please try to look past that. This was a different time period, okay? But I think there's a principle that does apply to us in an important way. From verse 3 through verse 16, it suggests that if a young daughter or a wife, this is where the, the gender issues might come up, but a young daughter or a wife, if they make a vow, the father or husband can step in to either confirm or deny the efficacy of that personal promise. Okay. Now, uh, again, get past thoughts of patriarchy, of misogyny, 
and think instead of someone, male or female, who is a spiritual mentor for you. And if you're in a moment of, again, think of a young daughter here, just someone young in the faith or young in repentance, young in commitment, young in the mission field, whatever it might be, male, female, get past the gender issues here, okay, please. And think, if a spiritual mentor, someone with a lot more experience and insight, wisdom, were to come to me and, and weigh in on the, the personal commitment I'm making and the vow or the plan that I'm setting out for myself, is there, would it be helpful for them to say, yeah, that's a great idea? Or would, that, would it be helpful for them to say, you know, I'm, you might be running faster than you have strength. So let's take it a little bit slower on this. I sense that sometimes when someone who's really struggled with addiction, for example, repents, is, is forgiven, and it's like, and I'm never, ever, and it's like, okay, careful, good, good. I, I don't want you to pre-plan your prodigalism, but uh, be patient with yourself, okay? Or like a greeny missionary that's like, I'm going to work uh, and just, okay, um, it, mm, I don't want to squash your zeal. But I don't know if that's sustainable discipleship. Uh, it might be a bishop speaking with someone that has a plan of, I've heard this actually from some people. It's like, I want to know the scriptures as well as you do. And so I'm going to give two hours a day. And it's like, um, this is like my full-time job. And I, I can do this for like 40 hours a week. Um, there's no way I could keep up with this if I had any other job. Okay. I'd still be studying every day. Believe me. I'd still be giving it plenty of time. But, um, and I've been doing this for 30 years, so be patient with yourself, okay? Uh, I don't know if you, I, if I were you, I wouldn't make that particular covenant, okay? And these are just the personal kind. Does, I hope that makes sense. See, in verse 4, if that authority figure, if that spiritual mentor, if he hear her vow and her bond wherewith she hath bound her soul, and he shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand. Every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. In other words, I have nothing to say against that. You go for it. And I'm here to back you up and help you achieve it. But verse 5, if he disallow her in the day that he heareth, not any of her vows or of her bonds wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. And the Lord shall forgive her because he disallowed her. You see, God's actually trying to be merciful here. It's like, you promised, you gave your word. And we saw at the beginning of this chapter, you keep it. You made the oath. But again, if we are young in our faith or our conversion or our repentance or whatever it might be, if an older or wiser person steps in and says, you know what? I'm going to take you off the hook. I, you are not responsible to do what you just said you would do because it's too much. And so... Will you please trust me on this? And let's build some momentum and work our way to that point. Okay, you'll get there. You'll get there. I just don't want you to burn out too early or set yourself up for, for failure when I'd really love to set you up for success. God would. In verse 9, he, he says, Every vow of a widow or of her that is divorced wherewith they have bound their souls shall stand against her. And again, get past the gender and just think, if you're a widow or a divorced person, and don't take those literally, just think someone without any spiritual mentor. I'm on my own. And sometimes we choose to be. I don't want to take anybody's advice. I don't want to talk to the bishop about this. I don't want my senior companion weighing in. 
okay, then you're on your own. You really are. And you said it, you will be held responsible for keeping it. Hmm, yikes. Maybe I do want to go talk to somebody. You think so? Good idea. Verse 13, every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul, her husband may establish it or her husband may make it void. And again, that's just any spiritual mentor willing to offer you an outside perspective. It's so hard that sometimes, especially in repentance or things, are we being too hard on ourselves or too easy on ourselves? Striking the balance between justice and mercy when we're the one, we often err on one side or the other. And sometimes it's so helpful to have a bishop, someone else weigh in and say, yes, what you did was wrong, but you're beating yourself up over this way too much. Be a little bit more merciful. Or, yeah, you're being a little too easygoing on yourself. That was a serious sin. We got to work on this. Okay? So get that outside perspective on things. And then flip it all around. Okay? Because that's for the person seeking or not seeking that spiritual mentoring. What about the spiritual mentor? Okay. You've got a responsibility here, either to confirm or deny, either to speak up or remain silent. And the Lord makes that clear too. Verse 14. But if he altogether hold his peace at her from day to day, then he establisheth all her vows or all her bonds which are upon her. He confirmeth them because he held his peace at her in the day that he heard them. You see, your silence might make you complicit in someone else's sins. If I don't speak up, I might be guilty of setting someone else else up for failure. If I didn't try to rein them in a little bit or at least weigh in on things. We'll see this later in Samuel. Yes, we'll honor their agency when all is said and done, but we've got to speak up or our silence will be construed as confirmation that we're totally behind them, even if we're not. And the flip side, verse 15, if he shall anyways make them void after he hath heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. So mentors, you better be sure about the advice you're giving. Because if you hold them back from something that was good, it's on you. Just like if you don't hold them back from something that would be bad, then you're partly to blame as well. Numbers chapter 31, then, you have a war that uh, develops between the Israelites and the Midianites, which again is sad since Midianites do come from Abraham far enough back. And again, that's Midianites, that's Jethro's family, that's Zipporah's family. It's like, Moses, those are your in-laws. But there's sub-tribes within and there's conflict over time and so on. God commands Israel to avenge him against the Midianites. I'm guessing here that it was the Midianites that joined with the Moabites to try to hire Balaam. And so, yes, there's some frustration there uh, on, on the Israelites' part. The Midianites, especially since they're from Abraham, should have known better. But it seems to be a minor skirmish. And so 1,000 men from each tribe come together into this army of 12,000 and they defeat the Midianites. They kill many of their kings. They slay Balaam, which, ah, okay, there was a someone to pay the piper there. Balaam wasn't just saying great things and then leaving. He was tempting Balak to tempt the people. I didn't cross the line. Yeah, you did. And God knows it. And so do his people. And he pays for that with his life. Now, they killed the men, but they saved the women. And again, in our day, from a more gentle perspective, that's a good thing. However, from a Israelite, ancient Israelite perspective with 
with life for life and eye for eye and tooth for tooth and capital punishment for capital sin, not just capital crime, that was a mistake on their part. That was either misplaced mercy, if we're giving them the benefit of the doubt, or some kind of unjustified injustice because, hey, I can take all these wives for myself. And that's not justifiable at all. Either way, Moses is going to be angry, and sure enough, he was. Verse 15, Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? Behold, these, these women, caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Don't you remember Phineas's javelin? What are you doing? Don't you remember over 20,000 deaths in the plague? And now you're just inviting them over? What are you doing? Uh, idolatry and adultery have to be stomped out. We have to avoid even the appearance of those evils. And so should, we should have avoided them entirely. This was the wickedness that caused so much death in Israel. And now we have to respond with eye for an eye justice. They do so. The soldiers are then cleansed after the war, ritual purification. Offerings are made to God from the spoils of that war. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 49, they, the captains in Israel, said unto Moses, Thy servants have taken the sum of the men of war which are under our charge, and there lacketh not one man of us. So despite their mistakes, there were no casualties on the Israelite side. This is Helaman and the 2,000 stripling warriors, and God preserved them all. Chapter 32 comes then, and I love this chapter because it teaches a principle that to me helps us balance another set of contraries between unity and diversity or between community and individuality. And that's a tough one. I think in, a, in the past, it was one size fits all and this is the only way it's going to be done and you have to fit the mold. And that was so restrictive and constraining that the rising generation especially has fully rebelled against that. And instead of correcting it, they have overcorrected it to the point of there should be no conformity to anything. And it's not just one size fits all. It's there's no size and you just do you and it's 100% individuality and who cares about community? It's all freedom and no order. Now, order without freedom is tyranny, but freedom without order is anarchy. And so, like I said, we're overcompensating and overcorrecting from previous extremes. And now we're just replacing it with a new one. I love sharing with my students, the rising generation that knows this, that has felt the pull, the swing of the pendulum. I love teaching them Numbers 32. Because to me, it establishes a beautiful analogy for what it is that we're trying to accomplish with better balance. Now, here's what's happening in Numbers 32. Israel is finally getting closer and closer, inching their way to the promised land. The 40 years are about up, right? And as they're going through the east side of Israel, uh, east of the Jordan River, technically it's not promised land. Uh, Abraham was given the west side between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. And as they're coming around the east side and then going to cross the Jordan westward, two and a half tribes, it's Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. They were herdsmen, had lots of flocks and herds and cattle. And as they're passing through the eastern side, it's the well-watered plain that Lot was so uh, enamored by. And they thought, this is excellent grazing land. This is like the ideal place for people like us to settle. 
I don't know so much about the west side of Jordan. Looks like hill country. Looks pretty rocky and pretty steep in places. I don't know how good that's going to be for our cattle. So they go to Moses in verse 4 and they ask him, Even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel, these lands that we're fighting our way through, they say, it's a land for cattle. And guess what? Thy servants have cattle. Oh, it's a match made in heaven. Wherefore, said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession, and bring us not over Jordan. Can we stay on the east side of the river, even though technically it's not the promised land? Hmm, I don't know about that. That's thinking outside the box. In fact, it's living outside the boundaries. This is diversity at the expense of unity. This is individuality with no nod to community at all. Well, I don't know about this. Well, verse 6, Moses responds, Shall your brethren go to war? And shall ye sit here? And wherefore discourage ye the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord hath given them? Oh, careful, two and a half tribes. Are you trying to keep everybody else from crossing? Because that happened a generation ago. Believe me, I was there. Go ask the old timers, Caleb and, and Joshua. We've got to cross the river. Uh, don't be scared of what's over there. Oh, it's not that we're scared. It's just that we really like what's over here. Uh, okay, but careful. Are, are you going to send them to do things that, that you should be involved in doing too? Well, verse 14, he goes on. Behold, ye are risen up in your father's stead, an increase of sinful men to augment yet the fierce anger of the Lord toward Israel. For if ye turn away from after him, he will yet again leave them in the wilderness, and ye shall destroy all this people. Amazing what they're saying, what he's saying there. Like, have you just grown up to replace your fathers and be no different from them? Are you really going to succumb to fear instead of faith? Are you going to stay outside the promised land? Really? An increase of sinful men? Because guess what? And here's what he hints at. He will yet again leave them in the wilderness. It's wander, wander, die, wander, die. God is still eternal, which means he can still wait and if this generation isn't prepared, I don't know if Joshua and Caleb can live another 40, but God can. And I guess it will be the grandkids that come in. Now, you picture Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh going, oh, no, 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 that's not what we're asking. Okay, uh, We don't want to just be, grow up and replace our parents and be no better than they were. We do want to conquer the promised land. We're just hoping that this can kind of be an annex to the promised land. Can we think outside the box, but include this as kind of an extension of the box? That's all we're asking. So here's the plan. They, they make this promise. We'll build settlements here on the eastern side for our wives and children, okay? Because they're not going to be fighting the battles anyway. So if you'll give us permission to stay, let us set up camps some settlements for them but then us, we're not asking the same thing. Verse 17, we ourselves will go ready armed before the children of Israel. We'll join them. We'll cross the Jordan. We'll fight the, the inhabitants of Canaan until we have brought them unto their place. We'll make sure everybody gets what God has promised us. And our little ones will dwell in the fenced cities because of the inhabitants of the land. The only reason we need some time to build some settlements here is they're still in enemy territory, like we all are, uh, and I just want to keep them safe. But I'm not abandoning our post uh, or our, our mission to conquer the promised land. 
he goes, they go on. We will not return unto our houses until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on yonder side Jordan or forward, because our inheritance is fallen to us on this side Jordan eastward. We won't come back to take our inheritance until we've made sure that everyone else obtains their inheritance first. Now, do you understand what they're asking here, what they're offering here? And Moses actually, wow, that actually sounds like a pretty ingenious plan. Yeah, you guys are a little different. Reuben and, and Gad. Manasseh, you're an interesting bag because some of you want the West and some of you want the East. And okay, wow, there's a lot of difference, even within the house of Israel and even difference within sub-tribes. Can we do more as members of the church to recognize the differences among us and within us? Not just us against the Gentiles out there, which even that is, is overwrought. But there's so many different kinds of Latter-day Saints. And the question is, how do we avoid the dangers of both extremes? Initially, Moses just assumed, you're trying to break every commandment and just forget the covenants and just do your own thing and who cares about the promised land? And they're like, no, 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 no. We value the covenant. We value the promised land. But I just wonder, is there room for us here? We promise to join the community in conquering the land of promise. We just pray that there is room for diversity within that unity and room for individuality within that community. Well, Moses agrees with their plan. They conquer the promised land first. There's unity. And then these two and a half tribes return east of Jordan to settle into their diversity still part of the unified house of Israel with an expanded promised land bigger than what anybody thought before. And I just love that. I've often asked my students, when you're seeking diversity, is it going to come at the expense of unity? Do you want to stay east of Jordan, kind of east of Eden, <laughs> without any nod to what is required on the other side? Because on the other hand, if you are willing to fully embrace the covenant and conquer the land of promise, you'll be amazed at just how much wiggle room there is inside. Elder Maxwell used to teach this beautifully, that God is not trying to ask you to eliminate individuality. He's trying to get you to eliminate the parts that really aren't individually your, yours at all. Oh, there's too much conformity even among the nonconformists. It's just conformity to a different standard, and it's not the standard of God. Oh, there is room for difference. I'm grateful for it. It brings such flavor to the meal. Different body parts, but all members of the body of Christ. And I love Numbers 32 in the way that it portrays that. If, if you're in solid promised land, and can't stand the thought of somebody living east of the Jordan. Pay attention to just what they're doing to live their covenants and to be part of the house of Israel. And if you're the type that, ah, it's so suffocating west of Jordan. If you intend to live your life on the eastern side, just make sure you're still house of Israel. Just make sure that the promised land 
and its parameters is still part of your discipleship of Christ. Because on either side, there's danger oh, of not finding the, the proper balance. I think the Lord even warns about that in verse 23. If ye will not do so, behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. You can't trick God. Be sure you do what you promised. And if you're just faking your openness to diversity or faking your nod to unity, well, God's going to find that out. And that will not be a balanced contrary there. It'll be an unproven one. A couple more chapters. Briefly, in Numbers 33, the, the whole Exodus is reviewed with all kinds of this place to this place to this. Verse 1 and 2 is the, the quick uh, overview. These are the journeys of the children of Israel which went forth out of the land of Egypt with their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. And Moses wrote their goings out according to their journeys by the commandments of the Lord. Are we writing down our journeys? Are we recording our spiritual experiences in some way to help us see and remember the hand of God in our lives for other people to reflect upon? This is how you got here? Wow. This is what brought you to the promised land. A lot of twists and turns there, Grandpa. Yeah, yeah. Guilty as charged, but I made it. You will too, grandson, granddaughter. All the journeys are then reviewed. And it's amazing how long the list is. This is a very long chapter. And it's just place, 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 place. And most of them you've never even heard of. We didn't get the stories of the movements from this place to that. We got the, the big stories instead. But what I love about it, if you were to number them all, it's like, Wow. Those poor Levites, those poor Israelites, they had to break camp and reset up camp like tons of times. And part of me is like, well, good. You'll get really, really good at it the more you take it down and put it up. You'll know the layout of the tabernacle like the back of your hand. And since it's the pattern to follow, since it's the template slash temple after which you're supposed to pattern your life, Good that you become extremely familiar with it. All those trips to the temple for a repeat of your own endowment. Oh, I hope it's starting to stick and you're starting to remember things. They would. Then the Lord speaks to Moses again at the end of this chapter, verse 51. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, that'll be you, not me, Moses would say, then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures, better translation, their stone figures, their false idols. Destroy all their molten images. There's more idolatry. Quite pluck down all their high places. These are hill shrines that sometimes lent themselves to immorality. And ye shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein, for I have given you the land to possess it. We cannot fall prey to the kinds of stuff that Balak was sending in our direction. Idolatry, adultery, any type of spiritual infidelity, it's got to go. And so we need to remove the sources of those temptations as much as we are able. Eliminate where it's coming from. Abstain from the appearance of evil. In 55, but if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you. Again, even if it's misplaced mercy. Then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your side and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. 
If you've ever gone camping, speaking of setting up and taking down the house of Israel every, every so often, have you ever put a tent down before you did anything to clear the ground? And as you lie down, you realize, yep, all the rocks and all the roots are right underneath me. Figures. Well, talk about pricks in the eye and thorns in the side. Talks about a vexing night sleep. Well, no sleep, probably. That's going to be the problem if you just allow all these things to remain. So you got to clear things out. You have to be aware of what you're able to handle, the kinds of influences you can bring in, plundering the riches of Egypt to turn them into tabernacle implements and furnishings, or the kinds of things you must shun, including worldly honors, including anything that would pull you toward building a golden calf. We have to be more discerning. We have to be more wise. The chapter that ends 56, Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. Yikes, what had he intended to do unto them? Cast them out of Israel. All, this is another, another nod to the scattering. This is the land vomiting out her inhabitants. It's vomiting out the Amorites because their iniquity is finally full. Oh, be careful. It'll vomit you out too. If you're not worthy of it, the promised land will be reserved for a people of promise. So let's keep our promises. Chapter 34 then designates all the inheritances in Canaan. We won't read it, but it explains to Moses the borders, north, south, east, and west, and extend it on for the two and a half tribes that will be on the other side of Jordan. God then names one prince in each of the tribes so that they can kind of subdivide their land uh, into inheritances. 35, uh, chapter 35, then includes some Levitical cities and some cities of refuge. I and mean, we're really laying out the geography of the promised land, even though we're not in it yet. Uh, and according to chapter 35, there's going to be cities designated for the Levites. We saw earlier, you don't get a land inheritance. I'm your inheritance, okay? That's good enough. I need priesthood not concentrated, but spread throughout the whole. And so he lists 42 cities scattered throughout the tribes of Israel and names them Levitical cities. That way that people are in that vicinity have Levites to, to work through and access to priesthood. And then he adds six more cities. So now there's a total of 48. The math is look, looking pretty good here. 12 tribes, 48 cities, Levites. Six of those will be refuge cities. Because the idea here is, if someone is guilty of involuntary manslaughter, they killed someone, but it was an accident and they're devastated about it. But in a day of eye for eye and tooth for tooth and, and oh, honor killings and vengeance, that's a scary place to be, even if you're innocent. So we're going to have six cities in Israel where you can run and hide. You hear that in like Middle Ages where they would run to the, the, the cathedral, the church, and yell, sanctuary, I'm on home base, you, I'm, you can't tag me. And that's what's being set up in Numbers chapter 35. In verse 11, that the slayer may flee thither, which killeth any person at unawares. And they shall be unto you cities for refuge from the avenger. Oh, okay. Wasn't bad of me to talk about the avengers today with Dr. Strange. Great. It's right there. Okay. Refuge from the avenger. That the manslayer die not until he stand before the congregation in judgment. So there's, you're going to have to face consequence. Uh, are you really, was it involuntary? Are you innocent? Are you guilty? But let's do innocent until proven guilty, and you can have a place to run to seek refuge. 
But refuge cities are not to harbor the willfully guilty. Again, your sin will be found out, okay? If the person guilty of manslaughter leaves the city of refuge, and if the avenger finds him outside, and if he ends up killing him, then the avenger will not be held responsible. It's like, no, you had a place to go. We're trying to keep the natural man out of each of you and protect you, the avenger from avenging himself. You, you should have stayed. And if you had, things would have been better. Well, we're not going to hold the, the avenger responsible now. It then adds an interesting detail that after the death of the high priest, then the manslayer can return to the land of his original possession. So the death of the high priest is a sort of jubilee year, saying, okay, you're not stuck at the sanctuary anymore. You can go home. There's something to be said for the death of the high priest. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. As we consider, can I go home? Or am I just in some kind of holding cell, some kind of witness relocation program? I just want to be completely free and have all of this behind me. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can be. That just takes the death of the high priest, which is exactly what Jesus offers. Then verse 33, So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are. For blood defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Defile not therefore the land which ye shall inhabit, wherein I dwell. For I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. We talked about the rules of hospitality with Abraham and with Lot. Well, how's this for the ultimate rules of hospitality? I want to dwell among you. Will you let me stay? Will you keep the land clean so that even the ground upon which you walk is holiness to the Lord? Finally, the book of Numbers ends in chapter 36. And in some ways, it's kind of a nondescript ending. Well, it's not ending. We got Deuteronomy next week. We got plenty of more to cover, believe me. But what this chapter does give us is as time goes on, a thought crosses the mind of the leaders of the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh's kind of had to think outside the box because half wants to be on the east and half wants to be on the west. And what are we going to do here? There's certain parts of the church that are like that. Uh, extremes on both sides. And we got very liberal and very conservative people in the same units. And how are we going to keep the peace, right? Well, in this case, they're thinking, again, about a very specific circumstance. And it has to do with the daughters of Zelophehad. They were Manassehites. And what they're realizing is, okay, this was an exception to the rule. And I'm glad God created the exception. It was necessary. But I do wonder, it opens up a new can of worms that I hadn't perceived. And that's often the case. And so we just kind of keep figuring things out as we go, or better yet, keep asking God for guidance and revelation as we go, right? And this is how it, how it works. The thought was, what if they marry someone from a different tribe? Because as soon as they are married, then in this couple, again, get past the patriarchy, then it would fall to the husband but if these Manassehites, with their land inheritance in the middle of Manasseh, fall in love with a Gadite or an Asherite or those, those adorable Judahites, <laughs> then what are we going to do? The, this little pocket of Simeon in the middle of Manasseh, the little, little farm for Nephtali? Ooh, this could get really messy, especially since it's a, a new precedent with this, this could really jumble the whole house of Israel all over the place. What do we do? 
Well, Moses says, oh, good question. Verse 5, the tribe of the sons of Joseph hath said well. So he's like, yeah, the daughters of Zelophehad were really smart. You leaders are really smart too. I'm glad you guys are all thinking this through. I recognize your wisdom, your foresight. So here's, what, here's the plan. This is the thing which the Lord doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. So again, he's turning to God for direction. Saying, let them marry to whom they think best. There's the flexibility. Only to the family of the tribe of their father shall they marry. There's the fixity. You see, we're trying to balance agency with order. We're trying to honor both individuality and community. So can we strike? Can we compromise here? Marry anyone you want, but make sure they're from your tribe. Again, this is an ancient rule, okay? Uh, but for them, it's like, oh, that makes sense. I still have plenty of options. And marriage in those days was much more... Uh, well, less, had less to do with romance. I'll put it that much. You can still pick who you want. Just make sure it's a Manassehite. That way it stays within the larger tribe. And we'll go with that. And they were great with it. And thus ends the book of Numbers. But what doesn't end is its relevance in our lives. I hope we've seen, among other things, the causes of our tendency to fall into the trap of wander, wander, die, wander, die. To think about this, the obstacles we sometimes face. I mean, on the one hand, it's beautiful that this book begins with big picture 603,000 Israelite men and ends with five women that we know by name and are we meeting their individual needs? It's amazing to watch that whole spectrum pass in the, in the book of Numbers. But it's also so amazing, speaking of numbers, to see how many were lost and ended up losing in their lives. As I said at the beginning, they could have crossed the Jordan River after a, a year and a half. And 38 and a half years later, they finally got a second chance because they weren't ready. They didn't know how to get past their complaints and just trust God would provide. They couldn't look past the simplicity of manna or the easiness of the way with that brazen serpent. They wouldn't trust that God really had chosen Moses and Levites. No, they all wanted to be chosen themselves, but in the wrong way. They succumbed to some of the temptations of Balaam and Balak. They... They heeded the fear of the ten rather than the faith of the two. And this is what happened. When will a rising generation truly rise to the level of their potential? When will a prophet finally be able to say, actually, this really is the greatest generation. And there'll be no generation greater forthcoming because this is the one that's ready to part the veil and allow the Savior to come. I hope I'm alive to see it. I think God does sometimes let us climb the mount and at least look across the river and see what we're someday going to obtain. I just want to be alive to participate. I'm tired of wandering. And I just want to come into the promised land. I know that God is making that possible. When I was on my mission, 
I dreamed of miracles and reaching goals that seemed out of reach and getting closer and closer and closer to it and almost reaching it. My very last, I was in the office and serving with the president and the very last set of zone conferences I got to teach at. Right before my, that last area where I was sent off to, to try to find one last soul to save. And it was, I knew it would be my last chance to teach the whole island, to teach the whole mission. And I felt so strongly the kinds of things I've been teaching today from the Book of Numbers about wander, wander, die. There are certain goals I set from two years ago, the beginning of my mission, and as a mission, we are this close. But I'm going home in a month, and I want to live to see the Promised Land. And I just taught these kinds of principles. I taught my fellow elders and sisters about wander, wander, die. I, I wanted us to, to have faith and to trust divine promises and to keep the Word of God and teach with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. At the time, I stumbled across a, a hymn in the hymn book that has been one of my favorites ever since, although we hardly ever sing it. It's from the sealed portion of the hymn book, sadly. Evidently, it was included in Pratt's collection, but I don't even know what that is. Is that Parley and Orson? Did they have a little hymn book that they were sneaking around behind Emma's back? <laughs> I don't know. But it's a hymn. It's number 50 in our hymn book. It's called, Come Thou Glorious Day of Promise. I'm not sure who wrote it, but they nailed this concept. And so may I close with these magnificent words of prayer. And it's a prayer that I offer to God on all of our behalf. Come, thou glorious day of promise. Come and spread thy cheerful ray when the scattered sheep of Israel shall no longer go astray. When hosannas, when hosannas with united voice they'll cry. Lord, how long wilt thou be angry? Shall thy wrath forever burn? Rise, redeem thine ancient people, their transgressions from them turn. King of Israel, King of Israel, come and set thy people free. Oh, that soon thou wouldst to Jacob thy enlivening spirit send. Of their unbelief and misery make, O Lord, a speedy end. Lord Messiah, Lord Messiah, Prince of Peace or Israel reign. I am a little bit haunted by those words. Lord, how long wilt thou be angry? How long do we have to wait for the Melchizedek priesthood and its ability to present us to the presence of God? How long do we have to wait to cross the Jordan River and finally enter the Promised Land? How long do we have to wait to have the strength to redeem Zion and build the new Jerusalem as required. How long will we make the Lord wait before Christ can come? I testify of him. I'm grateful for his patience with us. And maybe I could stand a little more patience myself. But there's a part of me that just wants to cross the river.
and come. Will you come with me? Will you come into the promised land? Will we prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ? As Alma said of the first coming, so I feel about the second. Would to God that it might be in my day. But be it sooner or later, in it I will rejoice.